Tonight at 9 p.m., it's office hours where the listeners talk and I listen. Go to David Feldman Show. Dot com. Hit the attend a live taping menu, sign up and you'll get a link and you're in tonight. Office hours, 9 p.m. Eastern Standard Time. It's where the listeners do all the talking and I do all the listening. I'll see you tonight. <laughs> Welcome to what tomorrow's papers are saying today. Let's go to Washington, D.C., where First Lady Melania Trump will be joining us. Hello, Melania Trump. How are you feeling today? <coughs> oh, Davey, you know I am not feeling very well. Yeah. I have the fingering cough. You have a lingering cough. Yes, Davey, I have a fingering cough. Uh, that's why you weren't able to very accompany, bad. you couldn't accompany your husband in Erie, I could not accompany Toner. Donald. Toner to the Eries of Pennsylvania. Yeah, very sad. Well, we're glad you're healthy enough to help out on what tomorrow's papers are saying today. First up. Thank you. Yes, thank you. And thank you for doing this. Thank you. Thank you. The Washington Post is reporting tonight that a new study shows that chocolate companies rely heavily on child labor. This is bad news, First Lady Milani, because I love children, but I also love chocolate. And oh, please, give and, me a fucking break, Davey. You well, love the children, those I, little mongrels. I don't believe you. I well, don't we all love a word of it. For, we, not for a minute. I'm sorry? Not for a minute. I do not believe it. I love children and I love chocolate. Chocolate goes well with peanut butter, but not children. And Give uh, me a fucking break. Okay. You're not upset that, that chocolate companies are relying on, on child labor? I mean, that's pretty, that's pretty horrible, don't you think? I mean, First fr- of all, baby, it is not child labor if you do not pay them. So okay. stop with all that liberal fuck shit already. Give me a fucking break. Chocolate makes me happy, you asshole. Chocolate makes you happy, yeah. But it doesn't have to come from children, does it? Chocolate does... makes me happy, you asshole. Chocolate come from bean. Chocolate come from beans. Chocolate come yeah. from a bean. Yes. Uh, this is going to be a little awkward for you. I hope you're okay with it. The Philadelphia Inquirer is reporting tonight that lawyers are still struggling to reunite over 500 migrant children with their parents. You know, your administration, your husband's administration, separated all those migrant kids from their parents. And now they've been combing Central America looking for the parents. They have 500 kids who don't have parents. That must make you feel horrible. I mean, you're you're the mother of a child. You're Please, an immigrant. Please, Debbie, give what? me a fucking break already. Really? I mean... Come on. Melania is trying to reunite with her sunglasses. Oh, you lost your sunglasses. Students, they shouldn't be migrating from their parents. What the fuck? Well, they were migrating with their parents. It seems kind of insensitive on your part. But the New York Times is reporting that Trump is stirring up more chaos in final stretch, and he may be exhausting the voters he needs. That is possible that he's exhausting his base because he's at their three rallies every night. They may be tired. Are you worried that the people who are going to vote for Donald are just 
too that tired now? That would be the first time he is exhausting his base, if you know what I mean, David. No, I don't know what you mean. Oh, please, give me a fucking break. Exhausting he's his base. Exhausting his base. Fuck this, he's exhausting his voters, sheet. Okay. My husband not, does not need voters. He just needs votes. Good point. Good point. Let's move on. And Politico is reporting tonight that Obama goes full throttle for Biden. So the heavy guns are out there. Former President Barack Obama. 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 Yeah. Obama. President Obama. President Obama. Yeah, he's full throttle. Yeah, he's going full throttle. Does that mean he's choking Hunter Biden for orgasm again? I don't know what you mean, but uh, let's move on. Full throttle was name of a film I did in France. Oh, full. I did see that. Yes, before you were married to the uh, president, I did see Full Throttle. It was a great movie. Yes. Thank you, Davey. Yeah. New York Magazine is reporting Trump donors blew one billion on the QVC president. One billion dollars blown. They don't know what happened to the money, Melania. That's I mean, such liberal bullshit. You are all so complicit with these liberal bullshit fake news media. This is not fake news. It's New York Magazine. And your husband received about a billion dollars in donations. And it says here they blew it. The Trump donors blew a billion. And I blew Trump for one billion dollars. So the fuck what already? Yeah, good point. Come on. And what is wrong with QVC? That is where I bought my first teats. Oh, you got your first teats uh, from QVC? Yes, Davey, my first pair of teats from QVC. Would oh. you like to see them? No, thank you. No, thank you. Let's no, move on. I show you my teats now? No, 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 thank you, First Lady Melania. The Hill is reporting tonight that televangelist Pat Robertson says... God told him Trump will win. That's good news for for your side, Melania. And then, ooh, an asteroid will hit Earth. Ooh, <gasps> asteroid. <laughs> Do you like oh, asteroids? Davey. Davey, no, not asteroids. After I gave birth to Barton, I had a really bad case of asteroids. Asteroids. I don't think that's what... Asteroids. Yeah, I don't really think... bad. Quad punks with their shit pisses me off. Okay. Well, this is interesting. Brian Wilson from the Beach Boys is upset with Mike Love. This is what Variety is reporting tonight. Apparently, Mike Love of the Beach Boys did a benefit for Trump, and now Brian Wilson disavows Trump's Beach Boys benefit in California. So there's a little more uh, conflict between Mike Love and Brian Wilson. That's... uh, Do you like the Beach Boys? You like the Beach Boys. I love Mike Love. Yeah, he's great. great. Good vibrator. Such a good song. Yes, great song. Good, 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 good vibrators. Yeah, I don't think that was... Such a good song. Yeah. So, fuck Brian Wilson. I think he wrote it. and I have support What? Who? Who? Tonel. Donald. Tonel. Yeah. And I have support... From the Manson family. The Manson Did family. Well, I know that the, I know Charles Manson used to write for the Beach Boys. So the Manson family is supporting supporting Donald and you. Yes, he holds mirror up to society. Who holds mirror up to society? 
Charles Manson. Charles Manson. Oh, so you like Charles Catch Manson. Catch a wave and you're sitting on top of my face. <laughs> I, I used to love that song. Well... Wouldn't it be nice if you just shut the fuck up? Am I right? <laughs> well, I think a lot of people would agree with you on that. But Wisconsin. Good vibrators. Good vibrators. Great song. Your husband held a Mike big Love, ra- Very talented. You, you like Mike Love? Mike Love. Very talented. Yeah. He danced creepy like my uncle Slobodan after burning Croatian's children's hospital. Ah, such warm memories, such warm memories. Well, just shut the fuck up. Thank you. You've been. Thank you, Melania. Thank you, First Lady Melania Trump, for appearing on today's edition of what tomorrow's papers are saying today. We'll see you. You can all lick Melania's bleach taint. Okay, we'll see you tomorrow. And seek to the Heil, to the Hitler. Fuck this shit already, okay? Just shut the fuck up and be best. You can all lick Melania's bleach taint. Be best and seek to the Heil, to the Hitler. Thank you, First Lady Melania Trump, for appearing on What Tomorrow's Papers Are Saying Today. I'm David Feldman, and we'll see you tomorrow, today. Good night, everyone. Diabetic Fury. Hosted by David Feldman. Saturday, October 24th, 9.30 p.m. Eastern Time. Starring Jim Earl and Martha Previtt. For tickets, contact Diabetic Fury Show at gmail.com. Follow us on Twitter at Diabetic Fury. So many questions, so little health care. It's time right now for the David Feldman Show. So get your ears on right and buckle in real tight. He's got a lot to say and he's coming your way. He's got a lot to say and he's coming your way. He's got a lot to say and he's coming your way. Thank you so much. What a great crowd. Welcome to the mop up for October 22nd, 2020. I'm David Feldman. And the presidential election is fewer than two weeks from tonight. And if anyone overseas is watching and has an attic or basement that needs cleaning, I'm really good with a mop. And all I need is room and board. Pope Francis said in an newly released documentary that he supports same-sex civil marriages, which means, according to Supreme Court Justices Thomas and Alito, that would make the Pope a bad Catholic. Purdue Pharma, the maker of OxyContin, agreed, so nice of them, they agreed to plead guilty to criminal charges. That was so sweet. They agreed. How sporting of them. The fact the the Sackler family, they own Purdue. They have killed more Americans than El Chapo, who right now is rotting away in an American prison. But the Sackler family, they get to agree to plead guilty to uh, to something. No prison sentence. They agree to pay something like a two hundred twenty five million dollar civil penalty, even though when news broke 
about this investigation into Purdue Pharma, the Sackler family, they sold $10 billion worth of stock, which it looks like they're going to get to keep. But at least they agreed to plead guilty. 2.5 million Americans behind bars. A lot of them, a good number of them, drug dealers, but no room at the inn for the biggest drug cartel in America, the Sackler family. Half a million Americans in the past 20 years died from Oxycontin addiction. And guess what? Purdue Pharma, which is owned by the Sackler family, they're now in bankruptcy court, which means the company who, and I say who because corporations are human beings, the company who has agreed to pay $8 billion in fines, turns out they won't have to pay anything close to that because they're in bankruptcy court. Well, if corporations are human, I certainly hope Purdue Pharma dies from a drug overdose. No room in prison for the corporate CEOs at Purdue Pharma who killed half a million Americans by selling opiates like they were candy. The Trump administration says that they have been unable to find 545 parents of migrant children who Homeland Security separated at the border. And the ACLU says the government can't seem to find 362 children who were separated from their parents at the border. Republicans say this should have no negative effect on Trump's base in the upcoming election since none of the parents were separated from their fetuses. The United States is reporting 421,000 new cases of COVID-19 in the past seven days. 421,000 new cases of COVID-19 in the past seven days here in the United States. And it looks like the Trump administration is going for herd immunity. That means they're going to spend the next two weeks pretending they never heard of COVID-19. And I wish I never heard myself doing that horrible joke. President, I don't even know if that was a joke. That was just words. President Obama appeared at a drive-in movie theater rally for Joe Biden in Philadelphia on Wednesday. Obama stood in front of a gigantic empty screen, which just like Obama, people project onto it whatever they want to see. Meanwhile, Mitt Romney said today, that he mailed in his ballot, but didn't vote for Donald Trump. When asked who he voted for, Romney said he wanted to keep that secret. Once again, Mitt Romney proving he is a man of principles who will never allow his principles to get in the way of his principles. Thank you for that. Mitt Romney, the great... The great Mitt Romney. Well, let's go to Orlando, Florida, I hope, where Congressman Alan Grayson, I hope, is standing by. Are you there, Congressman Alan Grayson? I am. Joining us in Florida is Congressman Alan Grayson, author of High Crimes, the Impeachment of Donald Trump. Go to impeachbook.com to buy a copy. It's a thrilling roller coaster ride through American history. Congressman Alan Grayson chronicles every single impeachment. This is really an amazing book. It's unlike any book you've ever read about Donald Trump. And I mean that he, he it's uh, he chronicles every single impeachment 
that ever took place, not just in the federal government, but in state government as well. And Congressman Alan Grayson proves that Donald Trump is guilty of every single crime, every single crime that every single American government official has ever been impeached for. Ralph Nader calls high crimes, the impeachment of Donald Trump, one of his favorite books of the year. Welcome, Congressman Alan Grayson. How are you? I'm fine, but I think you misunderstood the Pope. Oh, oh you're going to humiliate me after I've done yeah, a pretty good job the, of it myself? Said, <laughs> the Pope said that he was in favor of some sex marriage. Oh. That's a big step forward. <laughs> All right. That's a big step forward for the Catholic Church. Okay, let's put 50 cents in your jackpot. We have uh, little time. The election is fewer than two weeks away. Uh, earlier this week, I asked Howie Klein to give us his predictions. Now it's your turn. Here's your first question. You have 50 cents in your pot. Are you ready to play? Yes. First question. Will Donald Trump go gently into the night? No. Actually, that's, uh, hang on, that's a wrong answer. Hang on. We screwed up there. Uh, you got that wrong. I'm sorry. Time will tell. You think he's going to, you think he's going to put up a fight? If it's a landslide, you think he's going to? Yeah, I mean, look, in Florida, anybody can challenge every single mail-in ballot by saying the signatures don't match. And Florida's not alone that way. The tools are readily available. Um, I, I, he's Donald Trump. I mean, when when is he ever uh, lost gracefully? Ever? And did he lose gracefully in any of his six bankruptcies? No. He turned around and sued the banks. So what are we for look- lending him money? What are we looking at November third? How do you see this playing out? I think that in in states where he comes within single digits, uh, you'll see a concerted effort to uh, challenge the results as fraudulent. And are we, well, let's go state by state, if you don't mind. I did this with Howie Klein. Do you agree that if it's a landslide, he can't do anything? He just has to walk away? No, I tweeted out this week that uh, given his persona, Given his, his psychosis, I think that he will gr- graciously offer to remain president of all the states that vote for him. <laughs> what about his saying, I lost, I proved my point, this was the greatest scam, I, you know, I, I, I've proven everything I wanted to prove. Now I'm going back to the private sector and he'll go down in history as one of the great businessmen of all time. Don't you think that's one way he could he could spin it? Look, we're talking about Donald Trump. That's not how he's built. He's going to offer one hundred thousand dollars to every Biden elector to vote for Trump instead. He's going to what? He's going to the Electoral College votes for the president. He will, knowing Donald Trump, I, he might offer $100,000 to each elector who Biden elects so that that person will vote for Trump instead. I was going to say that's not legal, but then again, nothing is, but it's done anyway. 
Well, who's going to prosecute him? The attorney general? So he, are, are you joking around? I mean, how bad do you, you're, you're are you being, what are, what are you painting? I, 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 listen, I, I, I think that he's capable of endless amounts of destruction uh, and, and an infinite amount of mischief. I, I don't expect him to do anything except to say I won and anybody who disagrees with me is wrong. I mean, this has been going on since day one of his administration and the past 40 years for those who, you know, those who knew him in New York. I mean, I, mean, I, I remember when he touted Trump Airlines as, as the best airline in the world. What a piece of crap that was. I, I, no, look, uh, a, a leopard never changes his spore. He's still going to be Donald Trump. He's still going to claim that he won. And he'll push it as far as he possibly can. And is this the I'm same? I'm sorry. I'm not happy about it, but that's the way I see it. And is this the same Republican Party we've seen for the past 40 years that won't admit defeat, even though they've been defeated? Is this the same Republican Party we saw in Florida 20 years who went down and disrupted the vote? Is that what we're going to see? Yeah, you mean the Brooks Brothers riot? Yeah, uh, yeah but, but in a far more organized uh effort than, than we saw in the year 2000. I mean, you'll see this statewide, not just in one, two, or three place, places. Well, the Brooks Brothers riot was in one county in Florida. There, there were more than 60 of them. Um, you'll see it statewide. Um, it's being planned right now. Um, and you'll see it in states like North Carolina, like Ohio, uh, like conceivably Texas, where the, the, they might just barely vote for Biden, and there'll be an, an incentive to challenge every vote. This is not a to mention the fact that in certain places the vote's going to be the count's going to be rather slow. I mean, that, that's going to. I mean, as you know, for instance, let, let, let's talk. For, let's let's take a concrete example. In in some states, uh, let, I'll pick Ohio. Um, you're you're not supposed to count the mail-in ballots before election day. So, you know, what we might see is that Trump is ahead by 37 votes at midnight on election day. And they'll run off, he'll run off to the Supreme Court and say, we have to stop, stop the count. We have to stop the count. Excuse me for a second. Here. Are you having Cuban food? <laughs> no, I, I set an alarm because I have a 530 appointment. But um, the, uh, the, they'll run off the Supreme Court and say, we have to stop the count. Trump's ahead. And Trump will say, what are you talking about? And they'll say, Bush v. Gore. They'll say, oh, yeah, Bush v. Gore. You're right about that. We have to stop the count. Right. That's exactly what that case decided. We have to stop the count. So, uh, you know, that's what's going to happen with, I mean, the Democrats are rolling up enormous advantages in the mail-in ballots, but if they're not counted on election day, then there might, you know, might be states where Trump looks like he's ahead when he's really not. The numbers uh, it can move very, very substantially in California because California counts every ballot that's postmarked by election day. And, it, you know, if you look like every cycle, there's like four or five uh, Democrats who are behind on election day in congressional counting. And then because of the mail-in ballots, they end up winning. So it's like this is a well-known phenomenon in California, and now it's going to be true around the whole country. He, do, he doesn't need, Biden doesn't need Ohio, and it looks like Trump may win Ohio if 
Trump Biden needs Pennsylvania, Michigan, and one other significant state. And I don't mean to say that I was insignificant, but it has only six electoral votes. So that that's basically where we are. Biden has to win three states, three states of some size that uh, that Trump won four years ago. And it looks like he looks very good in Pennsylvania and, and Michigan. So it'll probably be Pennsylvania, Michigan, and at least one other state. That state could be North Carolina. That could state could be Florida. That state could be Arizona. Um, I think Arizona would put him over with with Pennsylvania and with um, Michigan together. Uh, and you know that that state could be Ohio. Ohio is much more competitive this year than people expected. But Biden needs three major states. Well, the battleground states, you do polling, so you're able to read these polls better than than I am. The real clear politics averages show Biden up close to five points in Wisconsin. Hillary didn't win Wisconsin. I mean, that's significant. The Democrats, the Democrats basically won Wisconsin in the congressional races two years ago. They elected officials statewide. They elected a congressman as their attorney general in, in Minnesota. Um, I mean, that whole area has moved noticeably to the left uh, since Trump was elected. And I think that's true throughout the Midwest, and Trump hasn't been able to make that up anywhere else. I mean, the, the, basically, the Midwest has sort of come home a bit to the Democrats. But, and, and, you know, Arizona realizes that it's surrounded at this point. I mean, <laughs> They're surrounded. Democrats might build a wall around Arizona. Right. They got, you know, Democrats have California, New Mexico, Colorado, uh, Nevada. Um, it, you know, Arizona is moving in the same general direction that these states moved uh, years ago. All right. So let me paint a picture for you. November 3rd, around midnight. It looks like Trump has won. Uh, Biden has won Pennsylvania. Will we know Pennsylvania on November 3rd? Yeah, I mean, I, I looked at that. I think around 7.30 we should have meaningful information. And, uh, you know, the, uh, you're going to just have to tune out what the other side says about this. But, but uh, okay, so but Biden, the polls close in enough states by 7.30 East Coast time so we should have a sense of, of what's really happening. All right, so we get November 3rd. Biden wins. Let me paint this picture for you. Biden wins Pennsylvania. Ohio is too close to call. Or even Trump wins Ohio. Florida is too close to call. But Biden wins Wisconsin. He wins Michigan, where he's leading. Well, nobody's going to get more than 52% in Florida because no one ever gets more than 52% in Florida. Um, I think you have to go all the way back to Reagan to find an election where somebody on more than 52% of Florida is that close. Um, and, and, you know, there's, you can definitely, 2% two, 2 in Florida means 200,000 votes. You can definitely challenge 200,000 votes. No question about that. They're going to, I mean, there's already one, more than a million Democratic mail-in votes. But what you if, can challenge what, what, every one of those if you're crazy enough to do that. What if this is the adios Florida and Ohio election? It's just like you're, we're done with you. We no longer need to pay attention to Florida and Ohio like we have. That's not true. Well, I'm just saying, what if? what if? What if? What if? But I mean, for that to be true, for that to be true, Biden would have to win in really convincing fashion 
uh, in in Pennsylvania, Michigan, and at least one other major state like Ohio, Wisconsin, Arizona. That it, that's not what the polls are showing. The polls are showing that that he's ahead, but within less than six points in in all of these states. So it's it's not going to it's not going to be a, a situation where say Ohio and Florida don't matter anymore. What what happened was that people were surprised by three reliably blue states moving over to Trump's column last time, Pennsylvania, Michigan, especially in Wisconsin. And if those states simply move back, then, you know, at that point, Florida and Ohio become extremely crucial. You're not optimistic. Oh, uh, about what? I mean, I'm delighted that the American people have seemed to, well, at least 50. <laughs> Fifty-three percent of the American people seem to understand that Trump is the worst president who ever lived. I mean, uh, you know, I went to I went to drop off my ballot today, and the lines were literally around the corner. And in Florida, you know, you could kind of tell from honestly, like looking at people, <laughs> if they're, if they're likely to be a blue vote or a red vote. You can kind of tell that in Florida, and I saw a lot of blue votes online there. An awful lot of blue votes. So clearly, like, people are on to how awful he is. I mean, for God's sake, it, we, he's, he's killed almost as many Americans as World War II, for God's sake. <laughs> why, am I, you make, why are you making me laugh at that? That's horrible. It is horrible. It's absolutely <laughs> horrible. I mean, he's killed more Americans than all of the soldiers who've died in every war since World War II. All of them, the Korean War, the Vietnam War, the war in Afghanistan, the war in Iraq. He's killed more Americans than all of them put together. Do you know my grandfather served in World War I, and you know why he survived? He, why? Wore, he wore a mask. Mm, right. He wore a mask in World War I. Right. right? So now, now you're going to have to go back in time in your time machine and kill him so that you'll never be born. <laughs> Tell me something. You'll do that, won't you? You'll do anything for a laugh. You you are famous for that. You would do something like that. <laughs> I would do anything. You never you don't remember the benefit that I did for you. I would do anything not to get a laugh. That's that's how <laughs> I, I have I have a Madisonian that's the benefit. <laughs> I have a Madisonian view of comedy. If the audience is laughing, I'm very suspect of the mob. Mm. Wow. Yes, right. All right. Will you come back next they week? Can't I probably take a joke, F them. I, right. I, I promised that I would keep this short because I know how busy you are. Give me the scenario. I think, I think okay, I, I, I am going to have to go soon, but I, I would ask you to do this. You know, I know you have some free time now before the next guest. Who I understand, by the way, is the flying nun. Is that correct? You have the flying nun. The flying nun. Tonight? And she's not, well, I was going to yes. say something dirty. But what is she flying on? <laughs> Why is she so high? She's feeling. But, but in any event, here's my suggestion. I suggest that you recount, given the fact Chris Jersey's back on the news for having been hospitalized for death COVID. I suggest that you recount all the fat jokes from that fabulous show from four years ago, Triumph the Insult Hog. Those were the funniest Chris Christie fat jokes I have ever heard in my entire life. Damn. So I, you, you, you should go through all of those again, and people will be in stitches, especially those in the emergency room. They'll be in stitches. <laughs> Fat jokes, gay jokes are not permitted unless they're 
directed towards uh, Republicans. Oh, come on. Unless they're directed oh, at on. Republicans. I saw the show. It's fantastic. It's a, it's a brilliant, brilliant show. Yes, it is. Robert's and it's nothing but fat jokes and gay jokes. There's nothing else in there. But, but... And it's a big but, because we're talking about fact. <laughs> Another gay joke. <laughs> but the I don't believe in making fun of the way somebody looks or what their taste in sex is, unless they're Republicans. Then I think... Okay, so who wrote all of those jokes then? Are you blaming your, your colleague? It's a team effort. I, take cre- <laughs> I only take credit for the jokes that are funny. And the bad jokes that I wrote, I don't... When people say that was a horrible joke, it's normally written by me. And I say, I don't know. I I told him not to do that. Well, I'll tell you, like I was emailing somebody back and forth about Chris Christie being in the hospital. All I had to do was just to recount some of those brilliant lines about Chris Christie on the show. And you could literally hear him laughing across the Internet. Uh, somebody said, this wasn't mine, I think somebody in the chat room here at the show said his lungs are more congested (laughs) than the George Washington Bridge (laughs) while he's trying to get get even with the mayor of Fort Lee, who we have coming up, by the way. That's good. We have the mayor of Fort Lee. That's good. That's good. But, But the show is funnier. Yes. Thank you. Well, (laughs) thank you. Thank you. Congressman Alan Grayson. Follow him on Twitter. He's got a great feed. And speaking of Chris Christie, he's got a great feed on on, uh, Twitter. And uh, he couldn't join us via Zoom because he's using Jeffrey Tubin's because account. I I have a, I have a face for radio. That's why I couldn't. No, I'll be honest. Face. Jeffrey Tubin lent you his Zoom account, and there's something about Harvard Law. Did you know that Jeffrey Tubin? I'm ashamed of that association at this point because of <laughs> Jeffrey Tubin. I, I I don't get me started on Jeffrey Tubin, but I, I have to go. So I enjoyed it very much. Thank and, you. Come back. To, to the three or four people who heard my voice today, God bless you all. <laughs> Thank you, Congressman Allen Crazen. High crimes, the impeachment of Donald Trump. Go to impeachbook.com. We'll be back with Bert Ross, the former mayor of Fort Lee, New Jersey. Thank you, Congressman. You're listening to the David Feldman Radio Program, you sad, pathetic hump. I'm on my way to be a billionaire. Now you can make fun of me, but I don't really care. I have a plan to get there by and by. As long as I stay healthy and I never die. 
15 bucks an hour Five days a week 52 weeks a year And 32,000 years I know it's a long time, honey To 34,020 But when I get there, babe I'm gonna be in the money I'm on my way To be a billionaire Now you can make fun of me But I don't really care I have a plan To get there By and by As long as I stay healthy And I never die All I really need Is a second job or a third Lift myself up my boots And join that elite herd Of the 600 billionaires In the USA Who make more in a second Than I do in a day I'm on my way Yes I am I'm on my way I'm on my way Yes I am Now you can make fun of me, but I don't really care. I have a plan to get there. Yes, I do, by and by. As long as I stay healthy, I never die. As long as I stay healthy, I never die. As long as I stay healthy, and I never I can hear you. I can hear you. Bert Ross is with us. Can you hear me? Now you're muting. Can you hear me now? Can you hear me, Bert? Bert Ross. You can't hear me? All right. So go into Apple preferences or we can do it by the phone. You want to do it that way? I'll call you on your phone. Here we go. I'm going to call you. Here we go. While we're waiting for Bert to join us on the phone. <laughs> this is I love it. There we go. We're calling Bert. The phone is ringing. Answer your phone. And we'll do it this way, Bert. There, there Hello. We'll do it this way. You are. I can't hear you on the on the Zoom. OK, so we'll do it. We'll look at you for the people in the Zoom room. And I've always, I've always been able to do that before. Well, you know, as we get older, the things that we took for granted, we we can't do. So Bert Ross joins us. Just relax. It's no big thing. Don't don't worry about it. Well, well I want to. I want to. Well, hang on. T- t- mute. Mute Zoom. Mute Zoom. Here's the thing I've learned. Now we can talk. Okay. I want to promise you something. OK. Can you hear me? Yes, sir. This is important. I'm going to promise, I'm on the record, that I will not pleasure myself during this Zoom call (laughs) or or any other Zoom call. You have my word. Thank Thank you. you. Thank you. Uh, I think these are the kinds of things that you need to to say up front. I think all your guests need to say that. I I would assume my chat room, the people who come to the show via Zoom, 
I would assume that they are constantly violating themselves. Yeah. Now, I've been yeah. told we can't joke about this. By whom? Certain people associated with my show say that Jeffrey Tubin is mentally ill. This is allegedly mentally ill. You can't make fun of somebody who is an exhibitionist. And there's nothing funny about somebody whipping out their penis in front of other people. That's a violation. It was just, I, I am not making fun of anybody. I am just making a promise to you. It just happened if somebody in the news happened to have done that. It's, it's an absolute coincidence that I'm raising this subject. Right, but raising now, the subject is the wrong way of putting it. I don't mean to say raising the subject. <laughs> See, now I have been told, Bert Ross, yes, that it is. And I'm not trying to trivialize this or be sarcastic. It is traumatic for somebody to bear witness to a man pleasuring himself on Zoom during a meeting, and that it's nothing. It's a violation. You know then we all better get out of the humor business. You know? Well, um, Louis C.K. certainly to, did. I don't mean to offend a particular individual, whoever that might be, male or female. Right. But I can't help it. I have to have... Uh, uh, I, I want to go on. I, I also want to talk... Well, I want to talk about Jeffrey Tubin for one second, because he did it. Yeah. He did it during a uh, meeting of the staff of the New Yorker. And... Great know, place, by the way. A great place to do it. Yeah. Really, the New Yorker. Right. If they want to see somebody's junk, all they have to do is read Shouts and Murmur. Ever read the Shouts and Murmur section? That, no. that, that shit is so unfunny. I, I read it and I go, did I write this? This is so bad. I, I must have written this. What would happen if you found out? Now, you have a daughter who I understand you're very fond of. Is that correct? Yes. Not, not in the way that Donald Trump is fond of his daughter, no. <laughs> but excuse me, we can't make fun of that because it could offend either him or her. Right, right. You yes, have a daughter. We don't want to offend her in the humor business. Right. You're, you're, we should yeah. mention that, that Burt Ross, besides being an American hero, besides being the former mayor of Fortley, New Jersey, who stood up to the Gambino family and then went on to invent the right turn on red in New Jersey, he is also a humor columnist for the Malibu Times. Amazing. Mm. Now, your daughter, you're proud of your daughter, right? Yes, I am. For reasons that escape me, she, uh, some sort of pediatrician? That's exactly what she does. Your daughter's a pediatrician. She's an excellent pediatrician. Your daughter's a pediatrician. Now, does that make yes. a does that make a father proud to say his daughter is a pediatrician? We've had this conversation before, and 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 I, we talked about my reluctance to use the word proud. Your conclusion was therefore I'm ashamed of her. Thank you for your punchline ahead of time. I I feel really great about her doing what she enjoys doing and that it, it, it helps other people right tony soprano uh, wanted meadow to be a pediatrician it's it's something that every yeah. father did she, ever, did she ever become a pediatrician no, we don't know no. maybe they should have a sequel <laughs> just for that purpose she went into the, law she went into law 
that's that's you have a good memory yes yeah she went into law so apparently parents okay what would you do if you discovered that during a telemedicine session a client of hers a patient of hers pulled a jeffrey zubin jeffrey zubin pulled a jeffrey tubin or a Zubin. Let's call it a Zubin. That's a good portmanteau. Yeah, that is terrific. A portmanteau. Copyright that. Yeah, a you're, Zubin. Way, you're making fun. You're making fun of somebody who might be sick. That's, make- that's offensive. Those people who say that, you know, it's like when Donald Trump keeps saying people say. Right. He says that all the time. People say if you wear a mask, you're going to come down with the virus. Who these people are, we don't know, but anyway. Answer my question. Answer my question. Somebody, somebody pulls a Zubin. Yes. With your daughter. Are you, are you going to go yes. get a baseball bat? Yeah, she's an adult. Okay, I'm like, what do I? What, how do I get involved? You, you're not appalled that some patient would calls your daughter up. She sees, she sees babies. This would be amazing. All right, let's say she's just a regular doctor and I have a urinary tract infection and I pull a Zubin and ask her to look at it. Would you be appalled? If, she, if she's a urologist, that's what she does for a living. Stupid question. I want to talk about a couple of things here. I'm on this thing. Okay, go ahead. Do you realize, I, I, I did an analysis and do you know the number one issue that's impacting not only the 2016 election, this election? The, the what? Don't. What was the question? I'm sorry. Do you know the one thing, it's actually a sexual act, the one thing that has most impacted the 2016 election and might impact control of the Senate? What? Okay, I'm going to answer. Sex thing. You know... Four years ago, yeah, because of uh, Congressman Weiner, that schmuck, who was sexting. Right. The FBI was investigating him and found on his computer some uh, emails of Hillary Clinton's and went into an investigation of her, reopened the investigation, Comey announced 10 days, I think, prior to the election. And for four years... We now have this monster and all that he has done because that wiener, that schmuck, was sexting. Now, a couple of weeks ago, it's not bad enough that we lost the presidency, but we have the senator from North Carolina, the, the Democratic candidate from North Carolina, Cunningham. who is sexting. Now, the good news here, there is good news, is he wasn't sexting the crown, his crown jewels. He was flirting with a woman who wasn't his wife, not as bad. But the the way I analyze the Senate race, we need to pick up a minimum Biden win of three, a net of three. Looks like we're going to lose Alabama. Looks like we're going to win Colorado, Arizona, and Maine. We need one more. The most likely candidate for that is North Carolina. Fortunately, right. he's still in the lead. But if he loses, we will have lost the presidency because of Sexton. And we will have lost the Senate because of sexting. And I say, to Democrats all over the world, and the sexting, the nug with sexting. The what? You heard it here. You know, the nug. What is that? Enough. Mean? 
Is that, is that French? Is your mother listening to this? Yes. Is your, is your mother know that you don't know the word Ganug? She said... She never told you Ganug. That means enough. I know. Enough she, she, she told me to act as though you're not. Play she, dumb. She did not. She did. She said, play dumb when it comes to Yiddishism. Really? That's, that's how I was raised. I don't believe that. I'm serious. We weren't allowed to speak Yiddish in the house. Assimilate. Did they ever speak Yiddish? Huh? Did they ever speak uh, Yiddish? They were, the I, I think they grew up in a household where all they heard was Yiddish. So I think they wanted me to mm-hmm. assimilate. Well, basically, they wanted me to get the F out of the house is what they wanted. Yeah, well, that's it. My, my mother, may she rest in peace, who, who skipped two grades until she went to public school, n- n- only spoke Yiddish. And that's true. Uh, that's true of a lot of immigrant families where they speak their native tongue from where from whence their parents came until they go to public school. And then they, they learn to speak English. And my father, who is looking down on us, He's not dead. He just looks down on us for speaking Yiddish. He's very condescending. My, yeah. my father way, told the me that. You mentioned your father. There was a picture of somebody who came up on the screen. Yes. That's, our, that's Jeff Blackwood, who's, who's coming up next. So go ahead. So you're saying enough with the, the sexting. Have you ever tried sexting? Sexting is not helping the Democratic cause. How about if the Democrats the stood up for the 99%? They could sext all they wanted. How about like a really good candidate who appeals to the 100 million Americans who don't vote? They could I, they could walk around with their fly open and David, their, their David, junk hanging out. I'd people, vote for them. There are people who won't vote unless you if you offer them a thousand dollars. There, the one group that I had in unbelievable intolerance for. And I'm not talking about people who are, who are not citizens and therefore can't register to vote. But if somebody came to the mayor's office and complained, the only time I would really get pissed off is if when I said to that person, are you registered to vote? And they said no. I said, you go register to vote. I don't care if you vote for me or not. But when you come in here with a complaint and you're an American citizen, you register to vote. Period. Now I'd like to talk about a crisis that this country is going to have if Donald Trump is defeated. And I don't think there's been adequate attention to it. Okay, talk a little closer to the phone, please. Talk to the I can't, that's in my my friggin' uh, face at this point. Well, that's good. Why don't you you organize a Zoom like I always had, where you could talk on Zoom? Well, but... You're, you're, you're attacking me for you're not being able to understand how Zoom works. Let me let me just tell our audience. I've never had a trouble before. With you. Well, well, you know, maybe if you didn't and take you don't last have any time, so you you send me you can't. Will you take my a, my AOL address, which I haven't had for years, and stop sending things to my AOL address, please? Okay, I've mentioned it a few times. Thank maybe you. if somebody didn't cancel last week, so he could see his only son you would still be in the habit of Zooming with us. Apparently, I don't mean to embarrass Bert Ross, but his son was in town and he chose seeing his son over doing this show. And uh, I got to be honest with you. I got to be honest with you, Bert. I, I People people who qualify themselves by saying, I have to be honest with you, are normally not. 
Right. But this time I'm being honest that you would choose you would choose your only son over the complete strangers who listen to this show. I don't understand your thinking. And it was a really hard choice. (laughs) I waited. It was it was really tough. Now, let me get back to yes. a column I wrote, Trump withdrawal. We are about to encounter, God willing, a very serious crisis, the Trump withdrawal syndrome. Do you realize that friends, married, married couples who have nothing to talk about once he leaves the scene? I thought, by the way, if you live in Malibu, you, you use a lot of this, like, gets off the stage, leaves the scene, very theatrical out here. So you have to, in order to gets keep can- your readers, gets canceled. you have to use theatrical. Gets canceled. Can- canceled, yes, perfect. Exactly. Tubin, he gets tubin. You know, it's really depressing because I thought he was, and obviously people can have multifacets to a person. He's a brilliant commentator. Uh, he's a joy to listen to. Obviously, has an issue. Hope he gets it taken care of. Um, Harvard Law. Think, yeah, you went to Harvard Law. Do you think that's a problem? No, I went to Harvard College. I, I did not get into Harvard Law, and I hold the record for getting turned down by Yale Law School quicker than anybody else. I sent I, I sent my application in from Cambridge and went down to New Haven, and 24 hours later, they rejected me. They didn't say, "Are oh, you did it." But it, 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 they couldn't have opened up my application. That's how quickly they, they respond. But I went to a, I got into the University of Pennsylvania Law School, top law school transcript, NYU. Rudy Giuliani, who I never met, was in my class. I think Harold Bellamy may have been in the class law, so I don't remember meeting her. Um, Giuliani is something else. But we're not, we're, people are going to have to go to marriage council. Because to, they have nothing you know, to talk about. Yeah, you're going to say, I, I, I can't relate to my, to my mate, I sit there. There's absolute silence. What what are what are the late night comedians going to do? Trevor Noah, Seth Meyers, Stephen Colbert, Jimmy Kimmel—they're out of business. John Oliver—they're all going to go into retirement. You know what they're going to do? They're going to run reruns for four years. Well, you will miss Trump, except I mean, when you when you. Forget like about, a bad toothache. No, you miss, except for the kids in cages. And it, the license. Be, everything that's going to be so dull when, when you don't on a, every morning you wake up because he, he first of all, had, Trump had a good urologist who could get him through the night without peeing. He probably wouldn't get up at 3 a.m. And then he can't go back to sleep. He says, I'll tweet some bullshit. I'll tweet that, uh, you know, uh, if you 85% of the people who wear masks come down with the virus. Uh, the Democrats are, are running uh, sex trafficking in the pizzeria in Washington, in the basement somewhere. We're, we're not going to hear that. We're going we're gonna to go, we're all going to go to sleep. It's going to be terrible. What do you think so happens? I, I, I asked Con- Congressman Alan Grayson was just on the show. And yeah. He says that Trump isn't going gracefully into the night. I think he's going to destroy the Democratic Party by calling Biden and being magnanimous on election night and going off into the sunset. 
And if he does that, now open your mind for a second. If Trump. Impossible. Impossible. But I'll, I'll try. If Trump. If Trump. If Trump concedes in the, in, the, in the scope of history, in the big sweep of history, could an argument be made? If he were to say, hear me out, if he says, you know what, I lost, the American people have spoken, I wish Joe Biden good luck, and to be honest with you, I proved a point. I wanted to prove a point, and I think I have. I've exposed all the loopholes, all the, the crevices where the fluid could seep through. I made my point. I'm done. I'm going to go cash in now. Is you, marijuana is marijuana legal in New York City? <laughs> no, I'm just crazy. Oh, you know, is that possible? I remember. I remember no, I remember okay. when people used to say he won't run for a second term. He is a narcissist. He is a pathological human being. He, every time somebody predicts he's going to change, he doesn't. He doesn't have the ability. If he loses, God willing, he will, bl- it will be the nonstop blame game. He will blame it on the media. He will, he will blame it on Bill Barr. He will blame it on uh, Mike Pompeo. He will blame it on the FBI. He will blame it on Ben Sass. And the list of people he blames will be endless. My fear is that if Biden doesn't win significantly, and it gets down to one or two states, I we have... You. I agree with you. We have... There will be some ballots in question... And the state legislature could very well, if every one of these swing states are pointed out before, is controlled by a Republican legislature. And they can, for the first time in our history, they can say, because there's nothing in the Constitution that prohibits them, they can pick Republican electors, even though Joe Biden won the state. And the Supreme Court, bipartisan individual will vote to support him in a five-to-four vote. They will do a strict reading of the Constitution, which says that they have the right to do what they want, states' rights, we can't interfere. And that, if that happens, that is the end of the democratic experiment in this country. Okay, it was my my understanding that the only way that could happen is if it's 270-270. But I believe the Supreme Court... No, you're missing... But it's not... But they, it's, it, it won't be 270 because they can pick the electors for any candidate they want. No, no, no. Hang on for one second, Bert. I, I don't mean to get serious here. My understanding is the Supreme Court recently ruled that electors have to go with who won their state. They cannot. Do I've that. never. I well, was a Supreme Court. Check that. Check I, that because I, I have not heard of that rule. Well, th- this is what the scenario I believe that you're painting is is the following. It is my understanding that the Supreme Court re- recently ruled against electors who switched their vote in the last election and went against the popular vote of that state. The scenario. So it, it's what not. What state was that? 
I don't. It was the Supreme Court. The Supreme I, the Supreme Court ruled that that you that an elector to the electoral college has to reflect the will of the people okay. who voted. I'm not, on, for, with that. I'm not familiar with that case. And, and do me a favor when you locate the case. Well, email I'm, me. I'm pulling, it out, I'm pulling it out of my yeah. ass, so I know where it is. Well, could be. Okay, now the scenario. The, the, okay, let me tell hang you. On, hang on, let me. I have an audience that needs to be informed. Hang on for one second. The scenario you're painting is the following, and it could happen because if you move the map around, it is conceivable that Biden and Trump are tied in the Electoral College, 270, 270. I'm not talking about a tie. Then it goes into the House That's of Representatives. I'm then talking it, about, take Pennsylvania. Let's assume that the uh, there are millions of, of uh, mail-in votes. They don't start counting them until the day of. Uh, he wins the, the in-person voting. There are a tremendous number of Ballots that they're questioning because of uh, the signatures don't match, whatever. And therefore, nobody has ruled the winner of Pennsylvania and the legislature, controlled by the Republicans, both houses, declare that they are, because the election is undecided, we will pick the elector. And they pick Republican electors. That now, let's assume for a minute, let's assume for a minute that Joe Biden wins. Let me tell you what I would do if I were president. First thing I would do is get rid of the filibuster. Second thing I would do is vote to admit as a new state Washington, D.C. and Puerto Rico. You now have four. And then when you, when you do your judicial reform, you add to this, not only for the Supreme Court, but all those all those courts, federal courts, that in the last year of Obama's administration, when McConnell wouldn't bring any of them up for a vote, that you uh, add justices all over the place. And I don't agree, as much as I respect Michelle Obama, I don't agree that when they go low, we go high. How does that work for us? When I ran for mayor, within a few days of the campaign, one of my billboards was destroyed, and they started to take down my signs. And within 48 hours, there wasn't a Republican sign in that town. And every time they put them up, we took them down. And as far as I'm going to, I didn't throw the first punch. But if you're going to play dirty, I'm not going to sit there like, like the British did in the Revolutionary War and stood up while, while we hid behind, uh, behind three. In Fort Lee, by the way. No, we got to, we, we unfortunately got the hell out of Fort Lee. But Fort, Fort, Lee, was, Fort Lee was a scene of many battles. No, I don't think so. I think, I think that uh, when, when the British took over New York City, uh, we, we got out of town. And in, in reality, his constant retreating was brilliant. Because we would have gotten killed had we stayed. And we waited to fight another day. In Jersey? And, and, and was, no, very little of it was in New Jersey, actually. We, what, what, what happened is we ended up in Pennsylvania. And then you had the Delaware crossing on Christmas uh, Eve or Christmas Day. The Hessians, these, these paid professional fighters for the British, were drunk. And we went over you know, that famous photo 
of Washington crossing the Delaware, and they attacked, and 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 that was the one of the major fights in the in the, in the, in the revolution in terms of fighting in New Jersey. But most of New Jersey was a retreat. How many terms did you serve as mayor? One term was more than enough. And you didn't think of running for re-election? I mean, you would have. No, won- I, I I think that it's, my philosophy in life is. is um, Get out of town when they still like you. And well, they were uh, trying to kill you, as I remember. Well, that was that was prior to to the end of my term. They had been sentenced, um, and I had gone through quite an ordeal and quite an, an emotional ordeal. Do you ever um, wonder what would have happened if had you stayed in politics? Because you were, you were. I ran hot. for Congress, and I lost. Oh, you ran for Congress. Uh, I ran for Congress. I, I lost the primary. Helstowski? Did you run? Against, was it Helstowski you ran against? He finished last, I think. Yes, he he was no longer an incumbent there. He he had been replaced by uh, Happy Hollander or something. Um, a very very mediocre uh, one term, one or two term congressman. Um, I thought that uh, Ronald Reagan uh, would lose to an incumbent president, Jimmy Carter, in a landslide. Of course, it was reversed. There wasn't a single Republican incumbent in Congress who lost in that election. So Hollenbeck, I think his name was Hollenbeck, Happy Hollenbeck or something, he, he got reelected. I lost in the primary very narrowly. Uh, I had two issues. The head of the Democratic Party in Bergen County um, was disbarred for relationships with the mob and the head of uh, Union City. Uh, ended up being uh, convicted of bribery and went to federal prison. And those two people made sure I was out in, in column, in Yenemville, column 22 with the communists somewhere. Uh, and I still almost won the primary. But I'm very grateful I didn't because I would have lost um, the general election. As I said, there wasn't a single Democrat who, who defeated an incumbent Republican. George McGovern got kicked out of the Senate. In that election, a number of them. There were some wonderful uh, uh, Evan uh, uh, Birch Fine from Indiana. Um, yeah, uh, Birch was a very good senator. Not his son. Uh, well, I'm talking about Birch. Uh, George McGovern, actually, of all the people I hosted at Harvard when I was president of the Democratic Club, I really liked him a lot. He, he was a real intellectual. This is a guy who flew a bomber plane in World War II. He was a professor of history at, at a Midwestern college. And when he got to Harvard, he disappeared in Wagner Library for three hours. He was a real intellectual, but a wonderful guy. I remember his sitting in his office after uh, Kennedy had been assassinated and Johnson had become president. And he was talking to me about who should become vice president. We both agreed he was helpfully. In retrospect, I'm not sure that was a good choice. But... Um, I just found him a gentleman. Um, he had a class, class act. Very few left in, in the Senate, like McGovern. Yes. Um, I, I, I must Except say for Ted I Cruz, maybe of... Ted Cruz. That's the only one I can think of. No, it's just, you're very funny. What? Um, the, you know who I had a lot of respect for? Jeff Flake. Jeff Flake? Jeff Flake, who, who didn't run for re-election. The fact that somebody votes against what I believe doesn't 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 make him 
any less of a profile in courage. This is a guy who didn't run for re-election, and when he was asked, he said, uh, my approval rating in the Republican Party is 18%. But he got on the floor and was absolutely uh, critical of the president, uh, and he wasn't nuanced about his criticism. Uh, Except when he had a vote on the big issues, like the tax cut to the richest 1%. There's a difference between, look, I have arguments with Republicans all day long who are for Trump. And I say, forget the issues for a minute. How about talking about the monster, the the absolute vulgar personality, the narcissism, the nonstop lying? And at least that slate had the courage, unlike almost every other single member of that Senate chamber who's a Republican, to, to, to say that the emperor has no clothes. But I'm going to vote with him anyway. If you're voting for him because you agree with the policy, that's one thing. But at least he said the, the truth. He spoke the truth. Well, I, I admire him. Okay. You come back next week? I Well, if you send me the correct email, uh, if I'm around, I will. Yeah, but maybe if you let maybe. me know a couple. Let me know more than an hour ahead of time. Well, I mean, next time maybe you'll choose me over your son. But he'll be gone. He'll be back in New York then. So yes, I will. You chose. You chose your son over me, and yes, I got, and I'll always. I'll, I'll take that. I'll take that regret to the grave. Read. Others, be well. Read. Regards to your mom. Thank you. Leave my mother Please. out of it. Bert Ross well. is a columnist for the Malibu Times. We'll be back with Jeff Blackwood. When it comes to politics, I never discuss I'm an island of blue in an ocean of red Four more years, I might be better off dead Oh my, my, so many signs I'm miles behind enemy lines gotta get behind joe it's the way to go gonna give the democrats all my dough i got my ballot i'm ready to vote if the other guy wins i hope he don't glow I'm 300 miles behind enemy lines You can fool some of the people all of the time The truth now is a hard hill to climb I got crazy uncles, I got crazy aunts I'm pretty nervous, I got ants in my pants So many signs I'm 
us behind enemy lines. We got a pandemic, it hit us slow. The economy's bad, it's going too slow. Gone are the dreams of a better place. Sanity needs to make its case. is Professor Mike Steinell. He makes life worth living. No matter how bad it gets, I can listen to Professor Mike Steinell's music and I go, ah, okay, life is good. Mike Steinell. Listen to him on Pandora. Let's go to the dark, dark recesses of the far left where Democratic strategist Jeff Blackwood is standing by. That's not his real name. He works with some of our favorite leftist candidates, but he goes under a nom de guerre when he's on my show because the stuff he says could jeopardize his future. Hello there, Jeff. Good morning, David. Good morning. You're just waking That's up? M-O-U, M-O-U-R-N. <laughs> yes. You are a Democratic strategist. You work with candidates who don't have a chance of winning. Exactly. Are there any candidates? Was there anything that you saw that gave you hope this year? Um, yeah. Uh, you know, there's a candidate in Tennessee who is the general election candidate for the Democrats for the U.S. Senate seat. And if people still feel like donating to anyone, I, I would I would suggest they donate to her. Her name is Marquita Bradshaw. Okay, can, can you turn your volume down just a just a little? Just a little. You sound okay. great, though. Thank you. Uh, you too, David. Um, uh, how about that? Good. Much better. Thank you. 
Yeah, Marquita Bradshaw is the Democratic nominee for U.S. Senate in Tennessee. She's a black woman. She's an open uh, uh, member of the Democratic Socialist of America. And they pulled up, they pulled out an, an upset um, primary victory. She had virtually no money. Um, there, was a, there was a party-backed uh, contender in the primary. Um, and What state and is this? I'm sorry, what state is this? Tennessee, Tennessee. Tennessee, okay. Yeah. So, you know, um, so that was just very promising for, um, you know, socialist electoral organizing in the South. Um, I also know people in Nashville DSA who, um, who have a great chapter over there, which, which, um, they kind of run into more anarchist tradition. She's running against Bill Haggerty, correct? Marquita Bradshaw. Um, If that's the guy, I don't even know. Um, so, yeah, if people want to donate, I would suggest they donate to her. Um, I think a closer race <clears throat> is uh, Mike Espy in Tennessee, a black man who was the general election nominee for U.S. Senate in Mississippi. That one you may have seen yesterday. Obama came out and endorsed him. Um, you know, he's not a leftist like Marquita is. Um, but uh, if we're just talking about the Senate more broadly, I would say that that one is definitely one that could use support. Um, don't donate to uh, to Jamie Harrison in South Carolina. Really? He, well, he in Q3, he raised more money than any Senate race in a quarter in U.S. history. I live in New He's, York and I'm seeing commercials. I mean, he must be getting money from Wall Street because all I see it in Manhattan are commercials for for Jamie. Yeah, I mean, no, Jamie Harrison has uh, long ties in the Institutional Democratic Party, both, both nationally and in South Carolina. I think he may have been South Carolina Party Chair uh, a while back. But in any case, let me just say, I feel bad for uh, Lindsey Graham. He's had a string of bad luck. First, uh, he feels a touch of a woman for the first time in 40 years and happens to be Diane Feinstein. Oh, <laughs> be nice. And, uh, but we don't talk. We, wait, hang on for one second. Hang on for one second. We have a policy here. Not to out closeted gay men in the Republican Party. So we're not going to talk. We are not going to tell the people of South Carolina that Lindsey Graham is living a lie and hasn't told you that he's gay because it's nobody's business. Even if you're a Republican who who has voted against same sex marriage, Lindsey Graham has every right to keep his sexual preferences secret while persecuting the very people he's part of. Let him be. Shame on you, Jeff Blackwood. Yeah. So sorry. So yeah. So string of bad luck. First that, and then um, then he's losing to a a black person. But I mean, it's not the first time he's found himself under a black man, from what I understand. Oh my God. Well, you know what they say about Lindsey Graham? He's he always comes from behind. So you never know what. (laughs) That is true. I I have heard that about him. (laughs) Yeah, but that's not. See, this is the times have changed. Well, he said. During the debate, are African-Americans safe in South Carolina? He said, as long as they're conservative. So is that why Jamie is safe? Is he a conservative? <laughs> he's he's, he's going to be probably the most far right member of the Democratic caucus in the United States Senate if he wins. And it looks like he has a good chin. I mean, you know, you're seeing Jamie Harrison ads, sure. Um, I'm the past few days. I've been seeing nonstop Lindsey Graham ads all over my internet browsing. You know, targeted towards me, I guess. Because I that's a grinder. You're on grinder. 
But yeah, exactly. You see, know, that's not like fair. That's not. That's, see, you know, see what you you opened up. I have a in all honesty. <laughs> you're you you can do fat jokes, and you can make fun of somebody for being whatever, as long as they're Republicans, because you know. Chris Christie has no right to tell people, you know, to tighten their belts and pull themselves up by their bootstraps when he'd lose two vertebrae. They would snap in half <laughs> if he tried to pull up his bootstraps. Um, you know, I lost a lot of money uh, recently. I, I had gone all in on him dying uh, within <laughs> six days in the ICU, and he pulled it out. I mean, that was a hundred to one shot there. Um, uh, seriously, you know, if you're not part of the ruling class, there's no way you look and feel like Chris Christie and survive COVID. He, he must have been getting the best. You know, he doesn't even have that much money. I don't know if you remember when he left the governor's mansion. He had trouble finding a job, and I still don't know what he's been doing. I mean, maybe he has a radio show or something. He's on Good Morning America. With M-O-U-R-I-N-G. Yes. No, no, he's he's a pundit on Good Morning America. Oh, really? oh yeah. yeah. You know, I've been seeing him on, on ABC. And so, well, of course, that was controversial because he was helping do debate prep for, for Trump and then commenting live after the debate on ABC, right? So that's, uh, yeah. that's yeah. ridiculous. Um, well, he has asthma. Uh, that's that, that was his what he said was his comorbidity as right it's just that yeah, Only just asthma. asthma just asthma let's be nice um, i wonder if you ever ask uh bert ross about um the famous because every time i see bert ross on your show i always think time for some traffic problems in fort lee right <laughs> that's the only thing i remember from bridgegate right right he hates chris christie and yeah you know I've heard rumors about Chris Christie's connections. Let's just say he's connected because that should have been the end of his. He should have gone to prison for Bridgegate, but somehow he survived. And when yeah. you know, New Jersey is not the cleanest state when it comes to the environment or their politics. Give yeah. me more optimism. What are you optimistic about? Um. You know, I, Prop 22 in California, you know, I, I've heard it's a 10 to 1 spending advantage in favor of Uber and Lyft, you know, like 150 million to 15 million. But I've heard um, it seems like, uh, you know, the polling is split. Um, that would be absolutely incredible if it passes. I also don't know, I mean, uh, I don't know if Uber would stay in business if it passes. Um, I mean, that doesn't affect my opinion, of course. I, they have a, Their business model is based on hyper-exploitation um, that should be illegal and, in my view, is illegal. Um, and, in fact, a court in California declared it illegal. And then um, when Uber and Lyft threatened capital flight, uh, then the... Um, the court in California put an injunction injunction on the ruling. In any case, um, so that, that would, you know that would be an incredible uh, um, success for labor rights, particularly coming from the state where Janice originated. Um, yeah, so well, I, the not just Uber but Lyft, DoorDash. There's this big fight to take the workers for these gig employees at Lyft, Uber, and DoorDash and not list them as contractors to list them as actual employees. 
And then if their employees are not contractors, they have to be treated like human beings. And that treating people as human beings is not part of Uber's business model. Is that correct? Exactly. So, right. you know, um, Kamala Harris's uh, wife's husband is working overtime right now. He's general counsel for Uber. Right. It's called Kamala, sorry, Kamala, Hall, Kamala Harris's sister's husband. Right. Um, and Ariana Huffington is on the board of directors of Uber. Right. I believe. And let me just mention, you know, if people don't know Maya Harris, Kamala Harris's younger sister, is not just the sister of some random politician. She was a senior advisor on the Hillary Clinton campaign. She's been Democratic politics for a long time. She was chairperson of Kamala Harris's failed presidential campaign. And I don't know what role she's playing currently in the Biden-Harris campaign, but um, Maya Harris is the real power player in that duo. And so you can be sure that she is the one who is deeply involved in the, in the campaign and will be in the administration as well. In, in, towards um, making sure that Kamala Harris has a strong seat of power in the administration and is well suited to well, see Joe Biden. That's pretty interesting. That's where most of the dirt, when they run out of dirt on Hunter, they'll turn to her sister and I'm sure her husband. I'm sure if you examined Kamala's husband, he's a Hollywood entertainment lawyer. I can't imagine the number of anti-union lawsuits he's been a part of yeah i should know more about him doug uh what's his name ernhofer or something like that um yeah. but uh um yeah it's very weird that you know she allegedly like lives in the bay area and he lives in los angeles i don't really you know my, i have my perspective on I, their marriage doesn't seem it seems like very much like a transactional marriage like she seems like she just needed to marry a guy who had kids so she could get that over with and um is there any now you're you are far left is that fair to say yeah yes do you have any trump fatigue on the far left or do you see my trump, my trump fatigue is from the Liberals. I mean, like, I almost want Biden to win just so they would shut the hell up. I mean, stop hearing them whine and complain. But, you know, I, I don't think that that will happen. They'll Once Biden wins, they'll just start blaming the left about um, the Supreme Court and Amy, Amy Kobe Bryant or whatever her name is. And um, they'll, they'll blame uh, the left for, um, you know, uh, pushing Joe Biden too far left or something, you know, people, you know, I heard Harvey on your show, Harvey JK on your show recently saying that, you know, maybe once Biden comes in, he'll look back at Carter and Clinton and Obama and think that them moving too far to the right was bad for their presidencies and Biden will, will see the light and and kind of be more progressive, particularly in the light of this economic crisis. But let me tell you, um, you know, I should say, I not only work on left campaigns, I do work on on right wing Democrat campaigns to pay the bills when because my left candidates can't always pay me or pay me enough. Um, So I know very well I live in D.C. I know very well how people in Biden Harris world think and more broadly that spectrum of that part of the Democratic Party. They will never their logic prevents them from ever thinking moving to the left is a good idea. You know, it's not it's not an ideological thing, really. It's. It's their view on what works practically. You know, they all think that one of the reasons Hillary lost, you you won't believe this, is that she moved too far left due to Bernie. Bernie in the primary and Bernie in the, you know, 
Bernie running against her in the primary forced her to move left on certain positions. And then when he had talks with her at the end of the primary, you know, she moved a little left on her college plan and maybe minimum wage or something that all of these things push Hillary too far to the left. And that's why she lost. Okay. For you and I and your audience on the, on the actual left, we think that's the craziest thing you've ever heard that Hillary lost. because She was too far left, but that's how these people who work in democratic establishment politics think. So do they, do they think what they want to think? Do they see what they want to see? Or is that or, or can they back that up? Can they say, like, for example, if Biden wins by a landslide and this kind of talk really scares me because this is identical to the conversation I had four yeah. years ago about yeah. Hillary. But let's say Biden wins with a landslide. Then does it become settled law that Bernie was an outlier? There is no thirst for leftists in the Democratic Party and that the Democrats are neoliberals, technocrats, and that appeals to America, that the American people want center, center right politicians running the Democratic Party if he wins by a landslide. It doesn't matter if he wins by a landslide or wins by a hair. Their logic will, they'll conclude. By a hair plug, you mean? Yeah. I had to do that before my chat um, room did that. I compete with my chat room. Go ahead. Um, however he wins, you know, their strategy, the Biden's campaign strategy is obviously to um, target centrist, Republican-ish voters, right? And so if they win, regardless of who actually put them over the edge, they will conclude that that's a strategy that won those the voters who got them there. So, um, you know, your question, I guess, is like, do they have data to back up the fact that their, their idea that Hillary lost because you moved too far left or whatever. The, the data doesn't matter to these people. You know, they blame Jill Stein in states where Jill Stein's vote total didn't actually make a difference between Hillary and Trump. And they don't care that you, that third party voters, Green Party voters in particular, when polled, say they would rather not vote than vote for the Democrat. You know, that was true in 2000 in Florida. That's true every time because the reason people vote for people like the Green Party candidates is because they hate both parties not because they're torn between the Democrat and uh, and the Green. So data doesn't matter to these people. They believe what they want to believe, and uh, everyone around them thinks the same way. So they won't move to the far left. They, sorry, they won't move to the left at all. Um, and, you know, let me just say, even – even if the Democrats win the Senate, and I do hope they win the Senate, because at least then whatever, something will pass uh, of some very mild significance. And whereas uh, I'm not quite sure what will happen if the Republicans hold the Senate, I mean, probably they'll still pass something. It'll just be even more to the right than whatever uh, a tri Democratic trifecta will, will pass. But um, you should keep as a high watermark what, what happened during the first two years of Obama administration. You won't get anything more to the left of that. And that, and that was not very far left. So keep that in mind. You know, Jeff Blackwood's first rule of politics is that past behavior is the best predictor um, for what politicians are going to do in the future. Um, and that's the Democrats did when they had tremendous. It's hard for us to remember the kind of tremendous political capital Obama had when he came into office in January 20 in 2009 um and then they plus they had you know 59 slash 60 votes depending on which month it was of those two years in the senate and an overwhelming supermajority in the house as well 
you know, these crazy people and they won down ballot races all over the country. People were talking about the end of the Republican Party. But of course, you know, leave it the Democrats to a few years later, people be, were talking about you know, after 2016, the end of the Democratic Party. Um, but uh, so they're not going to do anything better than that. Don't get your hopes up. It's not going to be that good and uh you know for bert ross who's a huge jeff flake fan congratulations you're gonna you're gonna get a lot more of jeff flake pretty soon on this show on this show we have the closest we have to the opposing viewpoint are biden supporters people who were supporting well people who voted for bernie but have less of a problem with Biden than I do. That's that's the farthest we go to the right. And I have noticed that the people on this show who are to the right of us keep saying that Donald Trump will not go gently into the night, that he's a fascist and nothing can stop him and he will steal this election. Does the left you are, you know, you're on the. You're in the dark recesses of the far left. Does the far left see Trump as an existential threat to the soul of America, that he's that democracy is at stake in this election? Do you do you buy that? Um, I personally don't, because uh, in my view, you're comparing not democracy to not democracy. Plus, I, I don't I don't care which one we end up with. We're starting out with not democracy. Um, but I'll say uh, other people on the left um, are taking it very seriously. Uh, left organizations like DSA and a lot of unions across the country are organizing and making plans preliminarily. There's active organizing as to what to do if Trump doesn't get to the election. You know, you've seen, for example, the Rochester chapter of the AFL-CIO, Rochester, New York, say we're planning for a general strike. And other people coming out and saying that as well. I think Sarah Nelson was saying that and she's supporting that because she's always trying to get people to talk about strikes. So, uh, which is good. She's Um, with the steward, the airline she is the president of um, the AFA, the Association of uh, Flight Attendants, Flight Attendants, which is the which is a union. And right. and, and keep in mind, you know, another thing that's going to be the kind of the most important uh, election of sorts that happens after this election will take place, I think, in January of next year, in a couple of months. That's when the AFL-CIO will replace Richard Trumka because he's uh, termed out as president of the AFL-CIO. Now, it's unfortunate that the people who choose the next president are just high up people in the labor movement, basically presidents of other unions. Um, and it's hard to, you know, it's like trying to get the Senate to replace Chuck Schumer as Senate majority leader. You know, you're voting, you're so far removed, you're voting for a guy who votes for a guy who votes for a guy and same thing in the AFL. So it'd be great if um, we can get Sarah Nelson uh, at the top, but uh, you know, she's too radical and too amazing. So I, I, I'd be surprised if that happened. How old are you, Jeff? Uh, let's say mid thirties, mid thirties. Do people your age, are they worried about the soul of America? Are you worried about Trump the way people from my demo are? Um, yeah, I think, you know, even so I'll just delineate, you know, they're, they're the kind of, uh, people who are, uh, yuppie libs who are doing pretty well and then have the tip typical dem position that you'd expect from people of older generations as well, where they, I don't have to describe that. 
then there there are the socialists who um, who do mainly hope that Biden wins. Um, you know, they are holding their nose and voting for Biden if they're in swing states and so on. Um, and they do think it's important to combat the rising uh, tide of fascism as they see it in their view. So people care. Um, uh, yeah, I'd say. Um, but, you know, I mean, they're they're not going to be giving Obama the honeymoon, Biden the honeymoon that Obama got, certainly from from people of that age, age and that generation and younger that uh, happened in 2009. So um, have you voted? Um, have I voted? I, I've been traveling, so I haven't been able to get a hold of my ballot, which came in the mail. Uh, so I think it looks like I'm just logistically not going to be able to vote, actually. Is there any uh, it, like Shahid Buttar in San Francisco? He's not going to beat Pelosi. Is there know, any? His, his campaign really imploded after the allegations came out in July. It just it was doing very well. Had a chance, I think it was it was booming. There's a lot of left energy, uh, a lot of um, uh, donations coming into races after the New York um, primary where Jamal Bowman won June 23rd and Charles Booker got you know, nearly won. Uh, so that time his race was doing very well, but since, since the allegations came out about, um, gender, uh, and it was just one woman who came forward. Well, it's a complicated series of allegations. There was one woman who claimed sexual harassment, but then there were a number of women who had recently quit his staff, um, who claimed that they were treated, uh, not in a not in a sexual harassment type fashion, but he was dismissive towards them and that kind of thing. Yeah, uh, you know, emotionally abusive, dismissive, uh, respecting men's opinions more than others, and and you know, um, uh, you know, I've talked to a lot of some of these people, and and they certainly had a pretty tough time working with him, regardless of whether it was gendered or not. So. Um, that race, uh, is not happening, but, um, um, in a campaign, in a campaign is, I'm just thinking out loud and then we'll wrap it up. Just thinking how we negotiate these times, sexual harassment is unacceptable, but the perception of the boss as being difficult And I've had abusive bosses. All bosses are abusive. They're emotionally abusive. They're fiscally abusive. You know, that's their job. That's why they're the boss. And we need to change the culture. But it's not a democracy in the workplace, even though it's a democratic pursuit, getting somebody elected. Can it be that he was a, that Shad is a typical Boss and people who felt their ideas weren't being used looked for excuses. I mean, isn't that conceivable? I mean, they're. I hate to sound like a right winger, but well, let me let me let me mention one crucial point, which people who aren't um, professional campaign staffers may not be aware of, but. Um, Anyone who is a professional campaign staffer knows that the candidate should not be involved in the running of the campaign. And Shahid essentially 
um, from what I understand, talking to his um, current and former staff, he was the campaign manager de facto and was micromanaging every aspect of the campaign. You know, regardless of whether he, he was. So he didn't delegate. He didn't trust anybody. Exactly. Kind of like Jimmy that, Carter and Donald Trump. And that kind of campaign involvement by the candidate, everyone knows, is a recipe for disaster uh, on a campaign, as is, for example, the close involvement of a family member. For example, that's why, um, you know, with her spouse or in Kamala Harris's case, her sister, her sister being the campaign chairwoman was the cause of the downfall of her campaign in many ways, aside from Kamala's own just repugnance as a human being on the campaign trail when people saw her speak because she the chairwoman ended up sidelining the campaign manager on the harris campaign for president 2019 and there was no a clear line of authority um and and that led to there were a number of political pieces in november december leading up to her her campaign suspension that describes more detail they were just uh, all kinds of senior advisors with no specific roles no hierarchy and, and that just bubbled down the the organization so kamala harris's sister should either have been the chair sorry she really just shouldn't have been you can't have your your family member be the the, the cm the campaign manager so she really shouldn't have been been there at all but um whatever uh she's not going away anytime soon but who cares about Kamala Harris but it's, you know Shahid from what I understand um shouldn't have been the boss I mean part of the reason you don't want the candidate to be the boss is because people get into conflicts with their boss and the candidate has to remain the in the position of inspiring the staff and when you have the person who you're having boss worker conflicts with also be the candidate, then you no longer feel inspired as staff to work for them. And that's bad for morale in very concrete ways. Right. You'll come back next week. Sure. Great. Jeff Blackwood is a Democratic strategist. It's not his real name. It's his nom de guerre. He comes to us from the dark recesses of the far left. And I would assume, once again, you're not as itchy about November 3rd as the rest of us are right you're well, not who knows i mean again everyone knows we were having the same conversations conversations four years ago although four years ago i was thinking trump would win um despite the polls but, but this time i just i feel overwhelmed by the by everything so and overwhelmed that, too big to steal too big a, a landslide yeah to steal? i think it, i think it's too big to steal um so we'll see, uh, you know, crazier things uh, have happened, I guess. But uh, just one more plugger again, Marquita Bradshaw in Tennessee, a socialist general election nominee for U.S. Senate. Donate to her if you have money. Great. Jeff Blackwood, thank you. I'll talk to you next week. Thank you. See ya. Well, let us now go to Washington, D.C., where the Reverend Barry W. Lynn is standing by, I hope. I, I saw him earlier. Are you there, Reverend? Well, while we're waiting for the Reverend Barry W. Lynn to come onto the scene, I should mention that Saturday night we're doing a pay-per-view event, Diabetic Fury. It's a fundraiser to raise awareness. There's the Reverend Barry W. Lynn. It's a fundraiser to raise awareness 
about diabetes. It will star the brilliant Jim Earl, Martha Previtt, who you recognize on the show as the voice of Melania, and Susan Collins, and Eddie Pepitone. Eddie Pepitone will be with us. The Bitter Buddha, Eddie Pepitone. To purchase tickets, go to davidfeldmanshow.com, then hit the pay-per-view button, and it'll take you right to Eventbrite. We're only selling 100 tickets, and there are several tiers. They're funny tiers. You can pay for Jim to write somebody's obituary. You can pay for a, a shard-out from Melania. Tickets, I think, are $15, and they're offering a $10 ticket as well. Well, Washington, D.C., standing by the Reverend Barry W. Lynn. For nearly a quarter of a century, the Reverend Barry W. Lynn ran Americans United for separation of church and state. Besides being an, an attorney, he is also an ordained minister in the United Church of, you know, I, I want to read, I just want to make sure I'm reading this properly. The United Church of C.H. Christ? Christ. Christ. That's correct. I got it. Can you even hear me? I can hear you and I can see you. You're, you're coming to us inside a little a boob television. tube. I like that. I, I don't know why this is happening, but it doesn't matter. I like it. I'm here. Well, good. It's cute. It's a nice and effect. I'm in my field. Has I'm in tele- my field. Has television ruined Adley Stevenson? didn't want to do television advertising. He said, I don't want to be treated like soap. I don't want to be advertised like soap. I wish we advertised politicians (laughs) like soap. Like soap. Seriously, Irish Spring would never say the stuff about ivory that Donald Trump says about Joe Biden. And somehow you can get away with saying horrible things about your opponent. It's perfectly legal. But if a soap manufacturer said the same things about its opposition, they would be taken to court and sued. Shouldn't politicians? I know the Supreme Court ruled that you can lie about your opponent in a TV ad. Right. There was some kind of billboard in Ohio and a a politician sued and said, this is a blatant lie. I I believe the court said, well, and too bad, too bad, too bad. There was an effort before that case, uh, Senator Danforth of Missouri, who for a brief nanosecond was viewed as a kind of moderate Republican, offered legislation, which I found in my notes writing this book of mine that I had opposed, um, that said that if you make a disparaging remark about your opponent, you either have to give the opponent free time to respond or uh, there was some other option like uh, you could I don't know some other option but that was the one that everyone assumed would be taken but that too that violates the first amendment I mean I do think that decision was absolutely right if you forced courts to decide whether people were making sense or making or lying about their opponents we would have no time to file lawsuits to stop people from voting right (laughs) so i mean what are you gonna do Uh, so yeah that was um 
That's the law. That so is the law. The two, if the two of us ran, you could say anything about me you wanted, and I would have no recourse except to take out another ad and, um, you know, say bad things about you. Although I really couldn't think of any bad things about you. Mm. I mean, I wouldn't know what to say. But I if mean, you, I wouldn't. If you and I had two companies, though, if you, yeah. if you made, I don't know. If you had a podcast and I had a podcast and we were competing and I said horrible, if I lied about you, then you could sue me for damages. Possibly. Some places I could, some places I couldn't. But generally, the federal law about this is very unclear. And it's not 100% certain that no matter what the company said, you could be sued if you're the other company. Not clear. Not clear. We had Greg Palast on this show, and he's on the Ralph Nader Radio Hour. Sure. This week. They were talking about Rush Limbaugh doing essentially an infomercial for Donald Trump. Rush Limbaugh had Donald Trump on about two weeks ago. Sure. And Ralph was saying that even though the fairness doctrine has been sent into the dust heap of history, there's still the equal time law that forbids somebody like Rush Limbaugh from having Trump on without offering equal time to Biden and Howie and the pe- yeah. you know the pe- other people who are running. Is that true? Sure. I think it's true. But remember, those doctrines only apply to local radio and television stations, not to cables, not to syndicated programming. So since Rush Limbaugh is syndicated, candidates would have to go to every one of the individual stations on which he's broadcast and make the claim that they deserve something like equal time, not necessarily on Rush Limbaugh's show, but an equivalent amount of time, roughly at the same time of the day. And that's still the case. But there's no requirement for that on CNN. CNN still runs commercials for Trump. That's purely a financial decision. And uh, they shouldn't make it. And just the other a few hours ago watching CNN, I happened to see an ad from Billy Graham talking about getting saved. Franklin Not Graham. He, Franklin Graham. I said Billy Graham. I mean, it's, it's an insult to Billy Graham. But, yeah, Franklin Graham. And they don't have to take those either. But they do because they, I guess, are under the impression that people still think that CNN is a neutral network and that, therefore, they want to be good and they want to show that they're not a bunch of anti-religious bigots. So they take his money and they put on his goofy ads. Billy Graham, you implied, is a better man than his son. Well, I'll tell you this. I only saw Billy Graham preach once. It was in Madison Square Garden. I was in literally the top row. And there was an enormous power just as a preacher to Billy Graham. But, of course, we know from the Nixon tapes that Billy Graham was a a terrible person. He was an anti-Semite. He was a racist. But at the time, just for giving a sermon, this guy really knew what he was doing. And, of course, I've heard Franklin Graham, and I've been on television with Franklin Graham, and he's got no pizzazz at all. He's not even a great preacher, and he is a, a total and complete liar about almost everything. 
Why did Billy Graham have such a hold on so many leaders, including the Queen of England? Yep. What, what was because, it about him? And what was well, his I denomination? Think, you know, I don't remember what his denomination was, but I do know that he was one of the few people that people recognize as a, a religious figure in America during that time in the late 40s and 50s and early 60s. He was the go-to person. Now, you know, <laughs> preachers are a dime a dozen. You can get us about anything, but you notice that the only uh, preachers that they have on most networks are right-wing preachers, not just on Fox, but, I mean, they tend to have... Franklin Graham is is often offered time on the networks. Um, and if you're a Unitarian minister or something, I mean, I had a Unitarian uh, preacher friend of mine who used to run SECUS, the Sex Information and Education Council of the United States, and she used to be on television all the time. She became a Unitarian minister, and all of a sudden those offers dried up. She hadn't changed, but they were a little nervous about having her on because she was the reverend someone. Is it because That's she was not, a Unitarian? Because we do no. see. No, no, no. It had nothing to do with that. I mean, but there's no problem saying the reverend Jerry Falwell, the reverend Billy Graham. Right. Why is that? that? Is, so why is that? Well, because, <laughs> because I, I think that. We have so corrupted the networks and so corrupted the cable systems that they don't care about having right wing preachers on because they can always get somebody, they think, even if that person is not a preacher. Now, you know, when I was. But, but we don't on, see left wing preachers. No, you don't. Unless you have a debate, but even those debates, I used to do a lot of those debates, hundreds of debates with Jerry Falwell. And most places they would actually say the Reverend Barry Lynn. But in some cases, it was just like, we're just going to call you Barry Lynn. Really? <laughs> we don't, yes, absolutely. They don't want absolutely. a left wing minister. No. They're ashamed no. that, they, but they They're have ashamed. no problems. <laughs> no, they have, they have no compunction about referring to the to the Falwells as the Reverend Falwell. And, and for a while, you know, Pat Robertson actually gave up his ministerial credentials for a while when he ran for president. But, but they used to refer to him always as the Reverend Pat Robertson. <laughs> that is... Yeah, it's shameful. And, and it's not because they can't pronounce like Christ, like you can't. It's, it's deeper than that. I don't think they even want to acknowledge in most of these networks that there is any religious organization or any religious person that could be of use in gaining viewers for their networks. Now, Reverend Barber, you know, who's very popular. Poor People's March. Or Poor People's March. He occasionally does get on television, but um, not as often as he should, because he is a genuine leader, a spiritual leader. He's got no problem. And, and they're also afraid that you're going to start talking about the Bible. You're going to talk, talk some kind of language that the average person watching MSNBC wouldn't understand. Is it the novelty are the networks thinking? I'm thinking of Father Coughlin, which yeah. goes against what I'm about to say. Do they view right wing Christians as an interesting exception to the rule? It's easy to have. Sure. 
Reverend Barry W. Lynn, he's a lefty. So was Christ. That's, you know, that's that's more interesting to see somebody who calls himself a religious person and spews the opposite of Christ's teaching. Is that the thing, the novelty factor at one time? I do think that's a part of it. But now the novelty's worn off. And I think that if Jerry Falwell were still alive today, there would be some greater hesitation to put him on. He once said, you know, uh, I was the guy that exposed the fact that uh, he, he, Jerry Falwell, had written that the Purple Teletubby, a very popular PBS program, that he was uh, basically telling young children to become gay. Right. And he said, well, like, why would he wear a, why would he carry a purse? And, and this was so embarrassing. And I mean, Falwell had to explain himself literally on every network. And the payoff to me was he went on ABC one day and he said, you know, I, I know people are making fun of me, but every time I'm on television, I am speaking for Jesus Christ. Yeah, and he was yeah. the original Teletubby. I mean, he was he was not <laughs> he was a rail. A, he was not a rail. He was definitely not a rail. But he, um, yeah, he, the treatment of, you know, religion used to be one of those things that uh, you had to do uh, in order to keep your, Again, this is all at the local level. Your local television license, you had to you had to show up with some kind of a programming that would reflect uh, the religious community. The very first time I was ever on television, it was at it's some kind of a local uh, discussion about some political issue. And they tried to get a religious person on each side, but they, they couldn't. So they had me on and, and a former Congressman John Conyers on to talk about whatever the issue was. And it was just hosted by a local Presbyterian minister. Whose fault is all this? Who, who do you blame? Do you blame the FCC? Do you blame the networks? Or do you, believe, do you blame religious organizations? Why would religious leaders allow only right-wing religious leaders on television. Why aren't the lefties speaking up? Or is the religious community primarily right-wing? Well, I I think the religious community is more right-wing than left-wing or more right-wing even than being moderates. But I think that most of these churches... Excuse me for one second, because we're very smug... We always say, you know, Jerry Falwell is not a Christian. You know, these people aren't good Christians. Read the Bible, read the Bible. But you're saying that religious people in America tend to be right wing. Is that what you're saying? Right of center. Right, right of, of center. center. Yeah, because, and this is why so many local ministers get out of the ministry because when they speak, they do a sermon to their congregation every day or every Sunday. It's um, they're, they're worried that they're going to turn off people in the pulpit. I mean, in the pews and they're terrified of this and they, that's why they don't want to be involved. That's why they don't want to be involved in any, they don't want to be seen on television. They don't want to go on radio shows because to try to explain this means that they're going to risk losing some of their parishioners. It's, what is your, what is your take? Thing. The American people, I, 
we're always told that there are 100 million people who don't vote. If only we could get them yep. to vote. Are they becoming mythical? Do they exist? Is that a vote worth trying to get? Or are they never going to vote? And who are they? Are they as left of center as we've been led to believe? I mean, that was the whole thing that Bernie was selling. Sure. That, you know, there are 100 million people who are looking for a voice. Well, yeah. you know, Bernie got as much airtime, got he was able to make his case to the American people in a way that Eugene Debs never could have. That's right. And they didn't show up, did they? In the in the 60s and early 70s, they did a lot of research on the nature of non-voters and found them surprisingly similar, almost identical in some surveys to people who actually did vote. And I think, frankly, that there's a kind of mythology, as you called it, about who these non-voters are right now in this election, for example. I mean, if I don't think there's a huge volume of people who uh, are kind of not going to vote because they're too far to the left and they don't think they they can vote for Biden and they certainly can't vote for Trump. I don't think that's a huge number of people, frankly. I think the people in the center who really, for no good reason, go a pox on all your both your houses, they're not radically left. You know, I think I said a couple of weeks ago, this is not a revolutionary country. We don't. We had a chance. Even some. I mean, I don't consider Bernie a revolutionary. He's just more to the left than most people in the country, but he couldn't get elected. And it's not because it's not solely because of what the Democratic National Committee did or the manipulation of that. I think he just his message was just too much for most people in this country. Has anybody ever posited this, that 100 million people don't vote because they're OK with the way things are? Oh, they, absolutely. They, 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 we always read it like this. There are 100 million people mm-hmm. who don't vote. That's because they're, you know, as you said, a pox on both houses. They're completely disgusted yeah. by the, sim- yep. the system and they're staying home. They're clenching their fists and saying, damn you, this is not a democracy. Or, you know, I leave New York City. I leave Manhattan every now and then. You go out into the suburbs and then you start going out into the country and the sun comes up and the birds are chirping and you turn off AM talk radio and Washington, D.C. and government is is irrelevant. Maybe it's 100 million people who are happy. It's a terrible thing to say because you you should be voting. Voting should be mandatory. But maybe. Maybe there are 100 million people in this country who are actually happy. They, they don't they don't pay attention to politics. And that I always, dis- you know, as they used to say in Nazi Germany, not paying attention to politics always works out <laughs> perfectly. <laughs> but I mean, it would be nice. No, I think you're right. I mean, I'm not going to have a, d- a debate about you with it on this issue, because I think you know, I've been in Western Pennsylvania lately. I've been in West Virginia. I've been uh, in parts of the state of Virginia. And not not only are there vastly more Trump signs than Biden signs, but there are a lot of people who have no signs. And I think it's because they think it really doesn't matter. The Supreme Court 
why aren't people up in arms about this? And this crazy woman who is not talented at anything is about to be basically anointed on Monday because the Democrats, of course, have don't think they have or claim they don't have any way to stop her. People go, well, it's uh, yeah, it's OK. It's uh, uh, the court doesn't mean anything to me. The court doesn't mean anything to me. So I think you're right. I mean, there's an enormous amount of, of America that just goes, I'm happy. Uh, I, I, let me check the soybean prices. That's all I care about. And I don't want to do I, jury I you're duty. Right. And I don't want to get. I don't want to do. No, hell no. Right. You get called for jury, jury duty if you vote, right? <laughs> yes, you do. I've even been on a jury and I'm a lawyer. And in most states, you can't get on. They say you're uh, anyone here a lawyer and one or two people raise their hand. But around Washington, 60 percent of the people raise their hand and they go, they, we can't strike everyone. I and do. then they go on. And then you learn from the side of not making an argument to a jury, but sitting on a jury, how dopey the jury system in America is. Right. Let me tell you one story about it. This was a. Let me tell you my story about it. Go ahead. And then you tell me your story and then we have to wrap it up. Okay. This is what my father who is looking down on us. He's still alive. He's just very condescending. And that's the third time I've told that joke today. Yes. My father loved this story. He said, you are the definition of the word schmuck. He said this to me. You were, he said, if they had a competition for world's greatest schmuck, you would come in second. And I said, why would I come in second? He said, because you're a schmuck. He, he said, this is, I told him this story and he said, you're just a schmuck. So I was living in San Francisco at the time and I got called for jury duty and I had to show up. And... Mm-hmm. And I thought I outsmarted the system. I get up and they say, it, it's, uh, what is it called? There's a, uh, it's a, fr- when they're. Voir dire. Voir dire. Voir dire, which sounds yeah. like a Yiddish express. It sounds Yiddish. Yeah, it does, that? Voir dire. So, yeah. uh, Mr. Feldman, is there any reason you feel you shouldn't serve on this jury? And I said, yeah, as a matter of fact, I, 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 I'd like to serve on this jury. Now I think I'm being smart, right? But I hate lawyers. I hate judges and I hate lawyers. Now I get a laugh and I look over and the judge is laughing and I see the two (laughs) lawyers laughing. I'm thinking this is so great to be funny. I'm getting, and now I start going, they don't care about jurisprudence. The, The defense lawyer over there just as only cares about money. The prosecutor, he just wants to put numbers up on the board. He doesn't care if somebody's innocent or guilty. And judge, with all due respect, you're, you're thinking about your next tea time. You don't care. Big laughs. And the judge goes, anybody have a problem? <laughs> I swear to God. Anybody have a problem with Mr. Feldman? And the prosecutor <laughs> and the defense attorney go, nope, he's good. And I went like that. Biggest laugh. The judge, the whole room starts laughing. And then they start to applaud and then they stop applauding because they realize wow. it's a courtroom. Of course. I made everybody's day because I was even handed. And that's what they're looking for. And my father is, you're a schmuck. If you had just gone after the judge, then they would have. But you had to be, you had to go after everybody. You're a schmuck. What's your story? And then we'll wrap it up. 
That's that's a true story, uh, by the way. No, and that and that it's a very good story, better than my story. No, but if you, good. This then, is a good. Then, then, then by all means, tell it. <laughs> this is a civil case involving a truck that may or may not have run over someone, hit someone who was walking across the street. In a civil case where you're claiming an injury, a tort, a personal injury, the one thing, if a company is involved, because this guy was driving for some big beverage company, the one thing no lawyer can discuss is whether the company is insured in other words, because you, you don't if you feel sorry for somebody and you go, well, it's a big company. They're not going to miss a couple ten thousand, twenty thousand dollars. So we go back into the jury room after an entire day and a half of sitting there listening to t- really two of the worst lawyers I've ever heard. Uh, the first question out of the mouth of the first person to speak is, you know, I wonder if that beverage company had insurance. And the judge tells you, don't do this. That's the first question. And and people kind of sheepishly go, uh, I don't <laughs> think we're supposed to ask that. But hey, speaking of humor, I, I just want and I see that Ethan is here. Um, I'm told that Trump has been told to tell more jokes tonight at the debate. And I wrote him a couple. Listen to these killer jokes. This is the kind of thing I think he could gain. Hang on, hang on. We don't allow you can't tell any racist jokes on this show. Oh, no, no, this is not a You can't tell joke. homophobic jokes on this <laughs> no, show. This, this is why I cleaned them up. You can't tell sexist jokes on this show. This is why I have cleaned this up. Okay. Okay. You should say, hey, uh, why did the chicken cross the road? And then he could answer it himself. He could say, oh, to find more of Joe Biden's hard drives, you know, the ones that contain images of bestiality. I would get a great laugh. Say it like it is. That was a shit show. (laughs) How about what is red, white? What is black and white and red all over? And he could say the answer to that should be obvious. The communist New York Times and it's fake news. So That's good. Make a pitch and he could tell these old jokes and with a different. And I think people, his followers would go, that's the funniest thing I've ever heard. That's funnier than Red Skelton. That's funnier <laughs> than Buddy Hackett. That's funnier than Lewis Black. That's what they would say. Got any more? I like those. <laughs> no, I can't. No, I have to save them in case I go back and ever do stand up again. You know, the thing we have to wrap it up. Yeah, he is a great stand up. Donald Trump is a great yeah. stand up. Yeah. And yeah. he made the same mistake that Dennis Miller made. If you didn't know that he really meant what he said, you'd think he's a genius. But Dennis yeah. Miller and Donald Trump they mean what they say, so it stops being funny. But he is entertaining to watch. I mean, he's, a, he, you know, except for the millions of people who are dead because of him. Yeah. He's a great entertainer. Yeah. Oh, I, just one more story, then I, yeah. then I will leave. But, uh, you know, Julia Sweeney was on Saturday Night Live. She's a big humanist, and she used to go to a lot yeah. of humanist conferences. I used to speak to him, and I, I did a lunch speech once, and I, I didn't 
I didn't know her at the time and she came up afterwards and she said, Barry, you are really funny. And I didn't have the heart to tell her. It's not that I'm funny. It's just that the things that the religious right does are so ridiculous. And the things they say are so ludicrous that it, you think I'm funny. I'm just telling you what they said. Mm-hmm. Yeah. The Reverend, but this was great. Uh, are we going to see you tonight after the debate? Uh, yes, uh, you are. Good. Um, I'm going to I'm going to go off briefly and eat a potato and watch this on on a big television. And then I'm going to come join up uh, a few minutes before the end of the debate. Great. We're going to do we're, we're having a debate watch party on Zoom. OK, we're going to stop recording on YouTube and then we're going to come back on YouTube and do the mop up with the Reverend Barry W. Lynn, Professor Harvey J.K., Professor Adnan Hussein, Professor Marianne Cummings. We're going to have Emil Guillermo from the PETA podcast, Alan Minsky, the executive director of Progressive Democrats of America. They're all going to join us for a postmortem on the last debate this country will ever have. The Reverend Barry W. Lynn, for nearly a quarter of a century, ran Americans United for separation of church and state. He is a member of the Supreme Court Bar because he is an attorney. And besides being an attorney, he is also an ordained minister in the United Church of... I can get this. Give me a second. Please. Just I'll give you a second. Take a deep breath. Christ. Have a swallow. Christ. Perfect. United Perfect. Church of it's, Christ. It's so good. It's 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 marvelous. Thank you. I'm so happy for you. I'll see you later tonight, Reverend. In the what meantime, say? in the meantime, say? yeah, Reverend, stay yeah. out of trouble. <laughs> Only good trouble. Thank you. We will be back. Bye. We will be back with the Hershenfelds. <laughs> I can't wait. It's always fun to talk to the Hershenfelds. You're listening to The David Feldman Show. Adomo, scusato. Io, io sono stanco, sono beleato. Well... I'm nervous. Well, well, well. I am wor- worried, Dr. Hershenfeld, because your son, I'm being serious. He made me laugh so hard the past couple of weeks that I started to see stars circling. And a killer. Uh, and you said it's a blood pressure problem? If I killer, see- killer. Do you know what a killer is? No. It, it's a hernia in Yiddish. You could get a killer from from. Wow. So, so that's the famous rapper Killer Mike. <laughs> <laughs> also, uh, I wanted to say you and uh, the Reverend were talking about uh, you were puzzling out what was um, um, Falwell's denomination. And I'm not sure, but my denomination is the Twan. Uh, you broke up. I can't hear you. Well, my denomination is the 20. The 20. <laughs> I actually I, I just killed the joke. I heard you. I just wanted to. I was so competitive. No, no, that's is that your favorite? The 20? No, the 20 is good because it, it, it gets you. It can get you lunch. It could also get you arrested. Like if you try to, <laughs> if you try, if you try to bribe, 
try to bribe someone with it. Like, I mean, a 10, if you try to bribe someone with a 10, it's like you didn't even try. Uh-huh. A 20, uh, that's, that's a problem. Dr. Hershenfeld, your son, yeah. a lot of people who see these segments tell me, I mean, the bits he, he does that are off the top of his head like off that. Off the top of his head, absolutely. When did you first realize that he was this funny? Seri- I'm being serious. What, what, like, when did it occur to you that he's extraordinarily funny? And were you worried that he was extraordinarily funny? I was not worried. I sometimes had to bite my tongue so as not to laugh <laughs> when I would have been stern. And it's, I've said this before in this show, it is the weapon of the youngest child. He can't beat anybody else up, but he can really provoke them with his wit, with his rapier-like wit, yes. And they have done studies. The youngest child politically tends to be rebellious and that the oldest child tends to be more conservative and stands up for the status quo. Correct. Yes. That's interesting. And Ethan, you are the youngest child. I am the youngest child, um, but um, only in years. (laughs) (laughs) And that's just intelligence in intelligence and good looks. I am the eldest. You are. I mean, you look the oldest. And you yeah. can, and and and, yeah. and you can't remember what you know. Is that what you mean? That's sort of what I mean. Also, okay. in 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 inches, I'm the oldest. I'm much taller than my siblings. Okay, Doctor Hershenfeld. Yes. My father. I never once doubted that my father loved me. Never once. It was okay. never. I mean, there and was. Yet he didn't. <laughs> I mean, it's, 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 which says a lot about your judgment of people. <laughs> That's, uh, so he would he would call me a schmuck you're a schmuck yeah and you know that's verbally abusive my son will make me laugh my son makes me my son and daughter although i don't do this with my daughter uh my son will make me laugh really hard and mm-hmm. i'll go i hate you right. now that's a that is horrible to say to a kid. He's making me laugh so hard. I go, I, I effing hate you. I hate you. I'm laughing so hard. Yeah, I, I would say you got to take into um, take the context and the affect behind the hate you. And you can't just say it's terrible. This is what he does to me. This is what my son does to me now. He'll, I'll talk to him for 40 minutes and the conversation's winding down, and they'll say, all right, I'll talk to you right now. Hello, how are you? <laughs> right. And when I'm trying to wind up a conversation, he keeps doing this. All right, I'll talk same, to you right now. I actually do the same thing to him when we're on the phone. He <laughs> frequently, when he, he's very bad at ending conversations. He just, he doesn't, he... he uh, this You're is talking about I've your father, not my son. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, yeah, my father. I've tried to coach him in like nice ways to end a conversation, like things like, uh, "Okay, nice speaking with you. I'll, I got to go," or speak to you later. Instead, he'll say things like, "Well, I got where I'm going." So, uh, <laughs> uh, the kid. Because for fifty years, 
What? For 50 years, I've been ending conversations by saying, time's up. <laughs> I know. That's, that's, that's why. I know. Yeah, that's well, the training. Let me run a question by Ethan and see if he gets this answer correctly. Mm-hmm. As a psychologist. I, I don't, because I love the bell that you ring for a wrong answer. Oh, let me get the bell ready. Okay, hang on. I love that sound effect. All right, hang on. Let me, get the, let me get the bell. Okay, you're a psychiatrist, and your patient lobs you a comedic softball. I mean, it's like right in front of you. And you have like, you just know it's the most clever thing you can possibly say. Do you say it to your patient? Can you make your patient laugh? Like, it's just right down the middle. You can knock it out of the park. Do Do you make the funny? Well, I would say this. Um, I know that um, the the proper answer is it just depends on the context. So it really depends on why are they trying to get me to laugh? Is it to mask the... No, 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 no. You're not hearing my question. I was so busy looking for the sound effect, I may not have phrased it properly. You're a psychiatrist, Ethan. Yes. I come in, (laughs) right? Yeah, and you lob me a setup that's so easy and I can knock it out of the park and make you laugh. Or make yourself laugh or be able to come home and say to your wife, I got yeah. a good one off at the office today. Boy, did yeah. I did I? Yeah, I won't choose that option because my wife, when I get home, she hates it when I talk about work. So I definitely <laughs> won't do that. I'm just not allowed to. I would say the best the best thing is just to um, to really acknowledge what happened. Say, look, I know what's going on here. And I, I, I could say a joke to make us laugh, but let's really look at why you're trying to make me laugh and why, why you don't want to dig into all the horrible. No, I'm not. You're not getting the patient doesn't know (laughs) that. Oh, the patient says something Uh like, you know, yeah, no, no, no. In that case, definitely don't, don't do the joke. No, no, no. Suppose you have something like, it's worth losing the patient over. It's so funny. Here it is. I think if you're as a practitioner, if you're at that stage in your career when you're when you're ready and willing to risk the entire career over this joke, then yes, do the joke, enjoy it, and then go start your comedy career. But if you're staying in this in the therapy game, the game is the game. You got to stick with the game. You can't go uh, dabbling in comedy. That's what I think. And similarly, I've seen comedians make the mistake of trying to psychoanalyze their audience <laughs> while they're on stage. And it's normally, it's not that funny. I, mean, I hypnotize the audience. I put them to sleep. It's kind of like. Act. That's, that's a good act. Yeah. 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 I just knock them out. I'm sorry it took me so long to understand your question. Well, I, I think you understood the question. Dr. Hershenfeld. Yes, David. When I go to work, one of the great joys of a job is being around other people and making, you know, the 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 the, the coolers. You know, did you did you see Jimmy Fallon last night? Did you hear? What he, if you're a psychiatrist, there's no water cooler. I had a therapist who had a water cooler. This is true. <laughs> I used to see a guy. He was around 26th and 5th, and he was in a shared office suite, and there was, there was one waiting room and then three therapy offices and a water cooler, wouldn't you know? So there was actual water. That was weird. That was, a, a, that was completely 
as a kid who grew up going to therapy on the Upper West and Upper East Side, where it was one waiting room, one patient, one doctor, that was just, that seemed insane to me. So, Dr. Hershenfeld, where do you do your water cooler talk? Can I, um, can I quote your father? My father? Yeah. Yeah. You're a schmuck. (laughs) (laughs) Because unwittingly, you, you gave a tell that answered all of these questions. What? You said, when you, do you tell the joke that's been set up so easily for you so that you can go home and tell your wife this hugely funny thing that you said during the day? Or the other tell was when you said, what do you do for the water cooler where you can share all these experiences with other people? Both of these things have to do with your own narcissism. <laughs> and, and now we all, we all have it. Right. And it's, not, it's, it's, it's totally normal, but as a therapist, you try very hard, and believe me, I don't always succeed, but you try very hard not to indulge your own narcissism. So to hit that ball out of the park, as gratifying as it would be, and you could tell all your colleagues and whatever else, it's, it's really not the best thing to be doing for the patient. It's, uh, so that's the difference between doing a career where you're serving others like, like you're doing there to try to make them feel better and getting on stage and t- I guess it's the same. You're serving others, but in a different way by getting the laugh. Okay. Yeah, your job is to get the laugh. Yeah. When you're doing that. We have a question from a physicist. Uh-oh. From, <clears throat> this is from uh, an actual physicist, Saul. He asks, what do the Hershenfelds think of Bandy Lee, her analysis of Trump and his supporters? By the way, Bandy, Dr. Bandy Lee was scheduled to be on my show, and then she found out who I was. She canceled at the last minute. Does she, does Dr. Bandy Lee, I don't know her theory about Trump and his voters, but if her theory is that they're, um, you know, they're rageful, closeted maniacs, is that, then I agree. Is that, is, was that her theory? Her theory is that he is worthy, she has said in print, I saw the interview in Salon, she was going to be on my show and then canceled at the last minute. But she says that he makes statements worthy of an, an insane, insane asylum. Well, for sure. That absolutely. Yeah. But that is true. You do agree with that? Well, yeah, he does. But I, I think he has a certain appeal to certain people who feel legitimately totally alienated. And he makes these people feel that, hey, he's one of us, which he is not by any means whatsoever. He's using them, but he has some secret sauce that makes them feel that way. Can they, can they, I'm sorry. 
Go ahead. By the way, speaking of, is, is it okay if I, speaking of secret sauce, is it okay if I plug my line of chutneys and salsas? Is this an okay moment? <laughs> but don't okay, tell us how it's made. Hey, by the way, do you want to plug your Quibi show? Oh, the Quibi. <laughs> Act <laughs> fast. Act fast. There's a 14-day free membership. Do it now because the thing isn't even going to be around for another 14 days. Quibi is going under. Uh, I can't believe it. Meg, when I think entertainment, I think Meg Whitman. If anybody has their finger on the pulse of America's entertainment thirst, it's Meg Whitman. Well, you need you do need a business person behind you when you're an entertainer, which is why whenever I'm on stage, anyone who's seen my live show knows that right behind me, I literally have my account standing (laughs) right behind me. So you're in the red. Get funnier. You're in the red. Yeah. Um, and my lawyer is right off stage. So I, I like to have a team of business people because I don't have that. I'm not focused on those things. But so Whitman and Katzenberg, which, you know, it sounds like a law firm. Um, they launched this thing, but they they got uh, you know, they got just like Trump. They 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 got blindsided by the pandemic. Right. So that's what happened. But he is great in his quibby debut and see it if you can i I will it's called the expecting the show is called the expecting it's a horror thing in episode 10 i play a back alley abortionist an albanian back alley abortionist which is also a vocal warm-up it's it's a tongue twister (laughs) albanian back alley abortionist albanian back alley abortionist and he's a he's a he's actually a, a an empathetic practitioner of the back alley abortion because i mean that's actually a career that's it's about to have a big resurgence we're going to need people who are willing to step up in the absence of health care, health coverage, and in a situation where there are now going to be fewer abortion clinics than there are polling sites in in uh, in in each county in Texas. Right. Um, we're, we're really heading for that. So you got to find your good. It's cash only. You're in, you're out. <laughs> and guys like my like my character, they're honest. They right. tell you the truth. They don't mess around. Yeah, right. Now, I can tell you're you're coming to us from a hotel by the lock on your yes. door. By the lock on your door, I can tell that you only see that kind of lock. Yeah, I'm in Houston. I'm, I'm, I'm uh, not Houston. Where the hell am I? I'm in Atlanta. I'm in quarantine. We're, we're filming a film called Red Notice starring Dwayne The Rock Johnson. Wow. And yes, it's starring Dwayne The Rock Johnson. And it's also Gal Wonder Woman Godot. Oh, Those imagine are, that. Yes. Imagine. And imagine. Ryan Reynolds and me. Wow. So that's the cast. Yeah. Wow! So right now I'm just quarantining, and uh, you're, you're then in a week they'll let me out. Is that how movies are made these days? Yeah, you got. I got a test before I came down here. I, I'll get a few tests this week. And Screen then, um, tests or COVID tests? COVID, COVID tests. Yeah, I heard yeah. Gadal doesn't have to test; she just gets the part. No, in fact, on, on on Twitter I saw a photo of her getting the thing up her nose. She posted a uh, please. Their kids, of, their kids watching. Profe- uh, professor, Doc- well, Professor, Dr. Hershenfeld. You can call me Professor. Uh, okay. Can a sickness make you healthy? Now, we all quietly rejoiced when we heard that Donald Trump had the COVID. We sure did. Yes. And you said I there did was- not. I did not. I was out loud about it. And, well, some of us. And he beat it. Now, some one, some may claim it was the monoclonal antibodies or the remdesivir. I say his sickness made him healthy. 
that he is so sick, he made the COVID sick, that he has so much power, that, that he's so narcissistic and malignant that he just willed his way out of sickness. Is, can you be, can you have a psychological condition that makes you defeat your sicknesses? I, I think that is a common fantasy that people have. You know, why this guy live to be so old because he's so nasty? Right. No, I don't think so. Um, but, you, you know, it, I, I do think, by the way, that he is not completely better from this. And my guess, I heard that in, in his voice also. Mentally... He's a little worse than he was a couple of weeks ago. I did notice he's starting to make sense, and I'm worried that he may be off his game. Uh, did, did you know that uh, this is something I didn't know about about what's going on with COVID? It's actually um, in 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 China now. It's actually passed from humans back into the animal kingdom, specifically among the the pandas. It's a it's a real pandemic. I've, I've read that. <laughs> Thank you. Did you like how long that setup was? It took like seven hours. That's so bad. I can't believe I didn't say it. <laughs> a panda dem. I would have. Yeah. Anyway, thank you for. Uh, well, You're wasting a minute. <laughs> what about the 100 million people who don't vote? Earlier, I said that we've been fed this idea, this mythical 100 million Americans who don't vote because they're so disgusted with the system that they can't bring themselves to vote. Are we missing something here? Is it possible that there are a hundred million people in this country who are fine? There is a very well-known sexual researcher in my field. Havelock Ellis. No, no, no. This is somebody current. Doc Ellis. We called him Doc Ellis. He was a, a doctor. Please. He, he was asked how many different sexualities there are. And his answer was, the number is infinite. So I would say the same thing about these hundred million people. That their reasons... For not voting are probably infinite. All right, let me. You can't say, you can't make a statement. This is why so many people are or are not doing something. Let me ask Ethan a question, see if you, if he gets this right. You know, okay. I don't, as long as it's, you know, whatever you're, I don't care about anybody's sexuality or their, whatever they want, as long as they're not hurting anybody. And even if they are, then that's all for me. <laughs> I, I understand. Where'd he go? Did, did he die? So whether, whether they're hurting or not, okay, whether there's an exchange of cash or not, I understand where you're going with this. But what's the question? Uh, I keep hearing... But what your what your father just said, that there's an mm -hmm. infinite number 
of sexual preferences. Mm -hmm. Again, I'm not judging anybody. Yeah. But there are only so many holes. There are only so many ways to. I mean, what? How much? What, I have a very simple. Personally, I don't know about everyone else, but I can really only speak about myself. My sexual preference is Tuesday. <laughs> Because it's a really, it's a, I recommend it. It's a good day to, if you're in a relationship or even if you're not, it's a good day to make it happen erotically for yourself. Cause it's, it's a, it's an, it's a day that's ignored. People aren't expecting it on a Tuesday. Right. And people are frequently up for it on a Tuesday. A lot of people think, oh, Thursday, Friday, Saturday. Whoa. Yeah. No, Tuesday. That's my advice. You know what I like about that? It, there's a taboo. You're not supposed to have sex on a Tuesday. So it's there's something dirty about it. Oh, I, I don't know about that taboo. There's a biblical basis for Tuesday, which you must unconsciously at least know. <laughs> it's, 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 it's as far. Wait, you're supposed to do it on, on the Sabbath. And Tuesday is far from the Sabbath. So what's the Tuesday? Thing? Well, God created. What did God create on Tuesday? I'll tell you what. You're close. The motel. <laughs> what? Oh, my God. The ultra Orthodox get married on Tuesday. And Why? Because after every day of creation, it says, and God saw it, and it was good. On Tuesday, he says twice it was good. Hence, so they, two, 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 he, you put the two in Tuesday. That must be it, exactly. But why, if it says, uh, and it was good, does that mean you're supposed to make love on a Tuesday? Is that, well, is that? You're supposed to get married on a Tuesday. It's but why did the big Hasidim wedding that was going to be attended by 10,000 people take right. place. It was supposed to take place on a Monday. Well, maybe they weren't as orthodox as they pretended to be. 10,000. Well, yeah. yeah. Um, 10,000 Jews at a wedding. That was just like that band from the 80s with Edie Brickell, 10,000 Maniacs. That was <laughs> 10,000 Jews at a wedding. That's a lot of fish to send back. <laughs> Yeah, that's a lot of um, there's something. Can you can you let me try the only thing that's vegetarian? This fish is, you know, I once talked to a caterer at one of those events and he said to me this. I didn't know those lines in the salmon, those lines that look like grill lines. Yeah, they don't actually grill like 400 servings of salmon. They actually have a brush with three bristles. It looks like a trident and they dip it and brush this black line on it to make it look grilled. Is that true? Yeah. 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 The trident brush. I, I never forgot that. That was the most amazing thing I ever learned at a bar mitzvah. Dr. Hershenfeld, you're a Freudian. Indeed. The salmon. Let me run this by your son and then we'll wrap it up. The salmon oh. is running. The, the salmon, the salmon is born, right? Yeah. In fresh water. It leaves the home. Yeah. Goes out into the salty sea mm -hmm. and can't have sex until it returns back to where it was born. Mm -hmm. That was like me. I worked a lot in Europe. I never got laid over there. Whenever <laughs> I came home, 
I always thought, oh, I'm going to Europe. I'm going to Europe on a gig. It's just going to be wild. I just, and they, I don't know what it was, but back in the States, I was all right. But in, I thought far away, it turns out like a salmon. You get home, boom, you're, you're scoring. That was my experience. Doctor, anyway, sorry. how would a Freud, Freudian analyst treat the salmon? Where, what, what does the salmon have to, and, and is it right for a, a a woman to when you're younger, like nineteen or twenty, to want to have sex on their parents' bed? If, if I I I knew a a woman who when I was younger who wanted to have sex on her parents' bed, and I said, "You're making me feel like salmon." <laughs> I'm in the mood for locks, but I don't have sex. But what what does it say about an animal that wants to have sex on their parents' bed? Because that's basically what the salmon are doing. I would say that, <laughs> that this young woman was demonstrating what the researcher I quoted meant, which was there's an infinite, you know, as you're right, there's only so many physical ways to have sex, but the fantasies about it are infinite and they're particular to each individual human being. So this girl, you know, whatever, it meant something to be doing it where mom and dad did it. Ethan? And obviously you had a problem with that, David, and if you would like to talk <laughs> offline about that. <laughs> I'm always available. I, I wanted to just also point out the interesting, um, the interesting hypothetical here, where a salmon comes, uh, Doctor Hershenfeld's office on East Sixty Seventh <laughs> Street, and first of all, I'm picturing the salmon talking to the doorman, and I'm picturing the salmon. Does he take the elevator or the stairs? But then I also I like the tank, like it's a tank on the couch. The salmon gets into the tank and then in the tank is one of those little, you know, how when you get a fish tank, you can get like a little chest, like a, a treasure chest and mm -hmm. different items. You get it inside the tank. There's another couch. <laughs> so it's a tank on a couch and in the tank is a couch. I like the. Um, I don't know. I like the whole image. I think salmon are, are, are the sickest fish. I, I do. I think they're mentally ill. They don't. You know what's also uh, a, a, a fish, the pilot fish. These, these guys have a lot of psychological problems. They spend their whole life on the backs of sharks, just tagging along with the shark. It's a pathetic species, the pilot fish. They, I feel like they should just jump off and do their own thing. Even if it doesn't go well, it's better than being on the back of a shark. It's like being Chris Pratt's agent. David, we can exactly. also talk later about <clears throat> why you are projecting many of your own issues onto this poor fish. <laughs> I, 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 yes. That's yes, it. there must be a reason. All right. Dr. Philip Hershenfeld is a Freudian psychoanalyst, and his son Ethan is a comedian, actor, and singer. And can we see your work on Quibi, or has it... Please see it. Get it. It's called The Expecting. Go straight to episode 10 before they take the whole goddamn thing down. Quibi, free 14-day membership. Yesterday, I signed up for the $8 a month membership without advertisements. I might be the... I thought I was the first ever to sign up for the thing. It turns out I might be the last ever to pay for Quibi. <laughs> Thank you. So, Thank but you. there it is. Quibi, The Thank Expecting. You. Thank yeah. you. Thank, Thank you sure. so much. You won't regret it. Thank you. Thank you. We'll be back with Henry Asks and Professor Avina right after this. Thank you.
time right now for the David Feldman show. He's talking politics and comedy too. He'll tell a dirty joke if you want him to. He's just a lefty from way back. He's a union man with an Emmy for writing. Someday he's mad and he feels like fighting. It's time right now for the David Feldman Show to get your ears on right, buckle in real tight. He's got a lot to say and he's coming your way. This week, Bolivia got a reset, we think. They had a bad year. There was a coup d'etat. But it looks like there's been a peaceful transfer of power and a socialist candidate, Luis, I don't know if I'm pronouncing this properly, I'm going to say Arce, claimed victory. And his centrist opponent, Carlos Mesa, I think, went gently into the night. Is this a harbinger of what might happen about two weeks from tonight? Here to answer that question is Henry Huckamacki. Hello, Henry. You have a special guest. That's right, David. I've brought back a guest by popular demand. Yeah. Um, the the people were clamoring for Dr. Avina to come back, and we happened to get him at the perfect time, as you said, to talk about what's happening in Bolivia. So thank you. Without further ado, let's turn it over to uh, Dr. Alexander Avina, professor of history at Arizona State University, author of Specters of Revolution, Peasant Guerrillas in the Cold War Mexican Countryside. Dr. Avina, David uh, let us in pretty well. We had a quite the result in the election in Bolivia recently. And we had some tears on election night from, uh, you know, certain candidates and those tears really did feel feed my joy. Um, would you like to talk about what was happening in Bolivia, perhaps for the last year or so? Sure. Um, I'll start by, I'll start by saying, or by quoting um, one of my favorite experts on Bolivia is professor Brett Gustafson at Washington university. And he had a great piece this week that came out in which he says Bolivia gave the world a vital lesson in democracy. And, and really that's how I viewed um, Sunday's result. Right? Um, we, we obviously, we, we had a country that had lived through almost 12 months of a coup d'etat government. Um, if you recall in November of 2019, Evo Morales, the, the first in, indigenous president in the history of Bolivia, um, seemed to have won his fourth 
uh, presidential term. Um, it looked like he had won uh, over 40% and he had more than 10 points over his next uh, opponent, which should have guaranteed him the victory with no necessary runoff. And as, <laughs> and as we all saw, right, there was, there was a, um, a coup d'etat that was organized against him. And he ended up having to flee into the jungle in Cochabamba for his life. Eventually, Mexico stepped in and said, look, we will take him in um, an asylum. And this uh, far-right government took over, a coup d'etat government, and for the last 11 months have been governing Bolivia along far-right lines, right, with a lot of repression, um, a, a, lot, uh, a terribly mismanaged situation with COVID-19. Bolivia has the world's, I think, third highest death rate of COVID-19 per capita, so you had corruption cases in which ministers of the, the coup d'etat government were stealing money that was supposed to go to the purchase of, of ventilators. Um, you combine, so, so it was this crass, like, neoliberal uh, plunder of the government combined with political terror and repression, the persecution of, of mass officials and leaders, mass being the, the movement toward socialism, the movement that, um, that Evo Morales was a part of. It's a movement and a political party, so it's got, like, this hybrid identity um, and then we get these great results on, on Sunday, right? That Luis Arce, who had been a minister um, of finance under Evo Morales, he's uh, seen as a more centrist, more pragmatic, moderate figure. Um, he wins with, I think right now, they've counted something like 96% of the vote, and I think he's at 55%, which is just overwhelming. Um, so it looks good. It looks good, but we, you know, some questions remain in terms of whether the, this revanche is right in Bolivia will accept the results. Um, I just read actually a couple minutes ago before logging on that the leader of the miners federation was attacked in the street and he's currently in the hospital. So, you know, I think the way David set it up, I think the second place candidate Carlos Mesa, I think he will go quietly, (laughs) gently into the night, but I'm more concerned with the guy who finished in third place, Fernando Camacho, who's a fire breathing, you know, far right fascist. And um, right now I'm, I'm in contact with a, a group called the Academics for Democracy in Latin America and in the Caribbean. They're there right now to serve as um, observers of the election. And what I've been hearing from them is a lot, uh, a lot of racial tension in the streets, a lot of race, racist epithets in certain parts of the, of the country being launched by and opponents of MAS, um, you know, everyday forms of, of racial harassment against people who are perceived to be MAS supporters. And then we get the news that the, the, the head of the Miners Federation got physically attacked. Yeah. So, uh, and I just want to let the listeners know the tears I was referring to earlier were Camacho's tears uh, who had quite a terrible result at the polls. And and it really did make my day to see such bad returns for, as you said, a fascistic leader. Um, It's always good to see fascists crying. It's good. uh, Always, uh, always. It really did make my day. But what you, what you said is absolutely true. Luis Arce has, uh, as you said, about 55% of the votes right now, which is significantly more than Evo himself got about a year ago, which would indicate that, you know, the people of Bolivia were not exactly happy with the machinations that were going on in the lead up to the coup, as well as what was happening under this right wing um, dictate basically by, by uh, the, the government interim as they were being called. But uh, one thing that I want to bring up with you before we go on to other topics is I've been seeing a lot of people online 
saying, you know, Bolivia is a case in point of how you can just vote out fascism as if the vote was the only thing that was happening here. Uh, and there was no other conditions in society broadly that were occurring for the last year, as well as far beyond that. Um, they kind of took the results at the polls in isolation and used that as an example for the U.S. that, you know, I, I, you could have a fascist leader, but all you have to do is vote and get it out. Uh, Dr. Vino, why is this not exactly um, a good example of why voting alone is the way to get rid of a, a fascist in power? I think it's uh, a great question. I think, and we can talk about the, the analysts later, right, that, that, that you're talking about on social media, but I think what this view misses is 10 months of sustained popular mobilization on the ground in Bolivia to force the golpista government, the Kudita government, to actually hold the election, right? Because um, the interim golpista Kudita leader, Janine Añez, um, she actually kept postponing the election, right? And she had the COVID-19 pandemic as an excuse. And really, there were signs that, they, the, that these uh, elections were going to be suspended indefinitely or continuously um, until August, right? When there was a mass general strike throughout the country in which the, the popular base of support for the mass party took to the streets, shut down the, uh, the economy and forced the coup d'etat government to follow through on its promise to hold presidential elections. And so, you know, if we, if we focus on just the act of voting, which in a place like Bolivia was an extremely courageous one, considering the type of violence that, that mass supporters had suffered for 11 months, the everyday harassment, the racism, the attacks, um, you had the attack that made news around the world last November of an Afro-Bolivian mayor in the city of Vinto, where her opponents actually dragged her out of her house. They cut her hair. They, they poured paint all over her face, colored her, her hair. Um, she's known she's in the beat, Senate. Right. And she's, and she, and um, she got beat up. Right. And then, and now she, now currently she faces charges from the golpista government. Right. So she's accused of like kidnapping and sedition. Luis Arce, I think also faces criminal charges from this, the, the golpista government, right? So a view that focuses strictly on the election misses out the sustained, powerful mobilization that occurred in the last couple of months in a broader context of a, of a really deadly COVID-19 epidemic, uh, pandemic in, I mean, obviously throughout the world, but especially in Bolivia. Um, so it's, it's, the vote helped, right? And then we also have to see in terms of it, if the, the revanchist right is actually going to respect it. Um, and that we have some good signs and then we also have some worrying signs as well. Yeah. I, correct me if I'm wrong, if I'm misremembering this in some way, but did they, did the protesters not at one point completely blockade an airport and prevent Anya's from, from flying out from the airport? Or am I misremembering that? Well, I, I think you're remembering correctly. I mean, I think that's one of the, one of the strategies that, that these popular movements in Bolivia have used. I mean, at least since the eighties and probably even before um, is, is the, is shutting down streets, right? Preventing the circulation of individuals and preventing the circulation of goods and commodities. Um, so I, I, I can't remember the specific incident that you're talking about, but I'm, it sounds like that's something that they would have done. Um, yeah. bring, bringing a complete shutdown of the economy and the, the ability to circulate in, in La Paz, the capital city, um, from the base of, of El Alto, which is like a, a, a city nearby that's a really stronghold of the MAF. Yeah, so just to summarize what you were saying, um, the vote was just kind of the culmination of this 
long, long, almost year long process of shutting down the entire economy and really, really holding the government accountable for what they were doing, this interim government for what they were doing. Uh, and as you said, I think the election got postponed something like four or five times. Um, and yeah, as you said, if it wasn't for that sort of mass mobilization and completely of shutting down the country by the workers of the country, who knows if that election would have ever gotten called. But um, the last thing I guess we should talk about on Bolivia, since I don't know if uh, it's been mentioned on the show before, and I'm sure a lot of listeners are vaguely aware of it, but let's just make sure that everybody knows about it. What is the importance of engine, um, like indigenous politics within Bolivia and how does Evo Morales fit into that? Uh, that's a big question. I mean, it's, you know, it's the fact that Evo Morales was elected president when 2006, the first time being the first democratically elected indigenous president in the history of Bolivia, it, it was a hugely, hugely symbolic act, right? In addition to some of the reforms that um, him and, and, and Mas were able to implement in their 14 year rule until last year, that actually improved the everyday lives of indigenous movements, right? Evo Morales himself comes from an indigenous movement, comes from the Cocalero, the Coca Growers Movement. MAS itself as a political party is really a coalition of different social movements, rural uh, indigenous worker unions, urban indigenous workers unions, um, the coca growers, workers union, miners unions um, that come together and created this thing, MAS, that's really uh, a way of them to exercise political power. It's almost like an instrument, right? So now there's, there's issues with that in terms of how Evo kind of moved away from some of that as he you know, entered his second and third year. Uh, third term as president, um, but this marked the the this marked a moment in which indigenous peoples themselves saw themselves represented in the political and economic structures of the country for one of the first times. Right, the fact that you know there's a do that they created a new constitution in 2009 that was defined as a plurinational constitution. Right? Bolivia as a nation was referred to as plurinational. There was space for indigenous nations and indigenous groups to coexist alongside the Bolivian nation state. The adopting of the Wifala, right, the indigenous Aymara flag alongside the traditional Bolivian flag. I mean, these were not just symbolic um, victories, but also very, they also had material victories in terms of programs that reduced poverty and extreme poverty during the 14-year tenure of Evo Morales. Um, the quasi-nationalization of, of really important natural resources like natural gas, and there was moves toward doing something similar to lithium, right? So this marked a moment in which it seemed that indigenous peoples in Bolivia had a stake and had an ability to shape the political life of the country. Yeah, and just so all of the listeners really understand, an incredibly large percentage of the population of Bolivia is indigenous, and it was from there was like 150 years of governance where they had never had an indigenous leader, despite the fact that for the majority of the country's history, more than half of the individual uh, individuals in the country were indigenous. And I believe the number stands at like something like 45% right now are, are indigenous. Uh, so yeah, definitely interesting uh, book recommendation for the listeners. Um, Vijay Prashad's new book, Washington Bullets. I had the opportunity to speak with him earlier today, um, but his book is really a, a through line of how the CIA and the U.S. establishment 
kind of forces these coups on different countries. And uh, Bolivia, Evo Morales wrote the preface to the book. And uh, the case of Bolivia was really used uh, as an example, both at the beginning and at the end with all of the methodology that the U.S. security state uh, uses throughout the middle. So if you're interested in, in that, check out that book. It's like 100, 100 some pages long. It's really short and it's, it's really interesting. You'll learn a lot with that. Um, but let's move on to a, a different topic now. So now that we've got current events out of the way, um, let's cover a few different things uh, in regards to Latin American politics and history that, you know, the listen, that you're going to have a very different perspective on than most of the listeners are going to have been exposed to both in their education as well as in the media that we have available in the U.S. So one of these parts of Latin American history uh, that has a very let's say monolithic view of how things went within it was the Cuban revolution. Um, we, we tend to be presented a very one tone depiction of the Cuban revolution and what Cuba was like post revolution. Would you be able to tell us a little bit about what the material conditions of Cuba were like before the revolution, maybe some of the misconceptions of the revolution itself and what, what Cuba post revolution is like uh, compared to what we would hear in the media. Yeah, that's, that's a big question. Um, and I think that's one of the, look, growing up, um, my mother had this famous photograph on, on our, on our refrigerator. And it was a, it was a photograph of like the late nineties when the Pope John Paul II visited Cuba for the first time. And there's a picture of him, like hugging or shaking hands with Fidel Castro. And she cut that out and she, and she had it like it, by the time she finally took it off the fridge, it was like fraying and, and it was yellowing. And the, and the reason that she explained to me why she put that up is because she said, those are the two men that I respect the most historically, but I really respect Fidel because he always gave the middle finger to the gringos. Right. And my parents are undocumented migrants from Mexico. They had a, they have a particular perspective on, on us and us history in addition to being Mexicans, right? Mexico lost half of its land in the United States. Um, so it, the, the way I, I, I teach and I talk about the Cuban revolution is that if we focus on this three-year um, effort from 1956 to 1959 that managed to oust the dictator Fulgencio from power, then we need to talk about a democratic nationalist revolution that at its core had two main principles. One was the reclamation of national sovereignty, and two, it was social justice. The first part has to do with the fact that Cuba was in a semi-colonial relationship with the United States from the 1898 Spanish-American War. So the, the United States did not technically convert Cuba into a colony like it did with Guam or with Puerto Rico or the Philippines. Other than Guantanamo Bay, they did take that. Although it's technically a lease that they pay every year for, and it's, that money goes into some bank account that the Cubans don't touch. So, a weird story. But... Um, so this national sovereignty, go, that demand goes back to this then subsequent three, four decade relationship between Cuba and the United States in which the United States would constantly intervene militarily to preserve what they would say Cuban independence and freedom, right? So the 19, there's, there's uh, Marines will invade in 1906. They will invade during World War I. They will in, invade in 1912 to put down an Afro-Cuban uh, political effort to organize an independent political party. Um, and it really, this type of intervention only stops when you have uh, uh, Roosevelt come into power and he institutes what, what is referred to generally as a good neighbor policy, um, which was n the U.S. was a quasi good neighbor, but at the very least, it wasn't like sending the Marines to constantly intervene in Latin American countries like it had done in the first decades of, of the 20th century. 
Um, the second part about social justice has to do with the material effects of having a neo-colonial relationship with the United States, right? Because the Cuban economy depended primarily on one commodity, which was sugar. And sugar took up um, the vast segment of the Cuban economy, right? Um, most Cubans worked in the, sugar, in the sugar industry in some capacity. Most of the sugar or large percentage of the sugar economy was owned by transnational corporations or by a really small segment of Cuban elites. Um, sugar workers were only employed seasonally, right? Because they were only needed about half of the year to work the crop during the harvest, especially. Um, so in the countryside, there was great inequity, right? There's no uh, peasants lack uh, access to land, land ownership. They're they are held in really exploitative labor conditions. Um, they lack literacy. They lack education. They lack access to health care. So when Fidel Castro, his brother Raul Castro, Che Guevara and other members of the July 26th movement were up in the mountains fighting against Batista. They came in direct contact in with, with these peasant communities, these Guajiro communities. And that really shaped um, their priorities in terms of what they were going to do after they, they succeeded in overthrowing Batista. And that was improving the life of rural Cubans. That was providing healthcare, education, nutrition, um, and really trying to develop the countryside and kind of diminish the inequities that separated a city like Havana, which was a global city, which, attracted tourists from all over the country, which had become a base of the, right, the, the U.S. Um, Italian mafia. Um, it essentially was a, a hedonistic playground for, for U.S. tourists. Um, so, so when this revolution starts and breaks out and actually manages to overthrow Batista in 59, it starts as a democratic nationalist revolution. There's individuals within um, the, the revolutionaries that were Marxist-Leninists from the beginning, um, if you read Fidel Castro's works throughout the 1950s, there's little indication that he was already a Marxist-Leninist by the time they ousted Batista. Um, but the, the important thing to remember is that this revolution was massively supported from below and actually across Cuban classes because this, but this particular dictator was pretty heinous. Um, so this revolution had a lot of support across Cuban classes. And this is something that Americans tend not to think about because the way we're taught about the Cuban revolution is to think of it as the work of a few evil geniuses that tricked the rest of their Cuban citizens into supporting them. And then all of a sudden they turned communist and they instituted some sort of dictatorship over them. Right. It's, it's that to do that completely decontextualizes this history, right. From these, this process from, from history. Um, what, what in the sixties, you start to see a radicalization of the broader revolutionary process, particularly as it started to interact with the United States. Right. So by the end of the 1950, 1959, you have declassified U.S. State Department documents that are talking about how this is a dangerous example for the rest of Latin America to follow. And this is a revolution that we cannot allow to succeed. And really, this is how it, this is how this can tie into Bolivia today. It's the fact that these governments that are democratically elected or popularly supported and the example that they provide for the rest of the region and the global south that will motivate people in Washington, D.C. to start plotting against them. So, yeah, they don't like things like the nationalization of oil, nationalization of sugar, nationalization of, of natural gas or, or lithium or whatever. Um, that They don't like that. But what's really dangerous is when these revolutionary progressive governments serve as a model for other countries in the region and other peoples in the region who might start thinking, hey, that's a better way to live. And that's what the Cuban Revolution did throughout Latin America in the early 60s, especially. They provided an example of a different way of living. Um, whether it was accurate or not, it didn't matter. The messages that, you know, Mexican peasants in the countryside were receiving was that there was an alternative, better, more just way to live. And the Cubans were doing it. And that proved to be really inspirational. Um, the 60s, uh, 
so the, the revolutionary process radicalizes, right? In, in, in large part, um, in relationship to what the United States is doing. So by 1960, 1961, it's pretty clear that the U.S. is going to try to intervene. And in April of 61, you get the famous um, Bay of Pigs failed invasion, or as the Cubans referred to it as, you know, the first defeat of Yankee imperialism in the United States, right? Um, and that, that really sets that by 61, 62, we have a situation that exists pretty much to this day with some differences. There were some moments where there was an attempt to, of rapprochement, right, uh, during the... Um, the, the early 1970s, there was an attempt to uh, kind of sign a truce. And then the Cubans went to Angola and supported the newly Angolan government against the invading apartheid South Africans. So that angered the United States. And then under Obama, right, there was a brief opening um, that then com- gets shut down by, by the current tr- Trump administration. Um, the, the first decade of the 60s is, is referred to by some historians as like the, the, a decade of tropical socialism or socialismo con pachanga. Like it was a very creative, innovative way to reorganize Cuban society along socialist lines using moral incentives, right? Using the idea of Che Guevara's ideas of the new man, of a, of a non-capitalist subjectivity that is motivated by improving the welfare of everybody in the country. Um, by the 70s, uh, it's the, the Cuban revolution starts to look more like in terms of uh, governing structure, economic plans, um, starts to look more akin to what like the Soviet Union or the East, some of the Eastern Bloc countries were, were practicing. There was, there worth, there was economically, it was, it was a good decade in terms of people's access to material goods, but had Che Guevara lived, he would have seen that and been like, this is just a left-wing version of the d- distribution of goods from the state, um, which he was always highly critical of the Soviet Union for being that as opposed to what he viewed as like more authentic socialism, which involved workers controlling the economy, workers controlling the political structures. Um, so, and, and one thing, I, and, and one specific, this is like a super long-winded answer, I'm sorry, Henry, but the one last thing I'll mention, because this always surprises my American students when I teach this, is the, what the Cubans did in Angola in, in the mid-1970s. When Angola obtains its independence from Portugal, there's three main political units fighting for who's going to take the lead, the leadership role of Angola and independent Angola. The left wing group MPLA emerges victorious within the civil war. Um, but when they, when they emerge victorious, the South Africans instigated by the Americans who couldn't do anything because of Vietnam, this was 1975, um, they invade. And it looks like the South Africans who are already controlling in illegal fashion. Um, uh, I think Namib, the country that is now referred to as Namibia, they invade they almost get to the capital city of, of Angola. And at that point, the MPLA reach out to the Cubans and the Cubans send t- tens of thousands of soldiers and they stop the South African advance, push them out of the country and force the South Africans to, to leave. Right. And the great historian of this episode is a guy by the name of um, Piero Glejesis. And he has looked at Soviet archives, Cuban archives, American archives. And what emerges from his research is that the Cubans did this out of something we call internationalism and solidarity. They did not expect material recompense from the Angolans. They did this because in the words of Henry Kissinger, the Del Castro was an authentic revolutionary. And then the Cubans will stick around and they will finally defeat once again in the famous battle in the, in the late eighties, the South African army that once again invades Angola and people like Nelson Mandela fully credited that Cuban victory against South Africans. It's kind of like na- the last nail in the coffin of apartheid in South Africa which is one of the reasons why when Nelson Mandela, the first person he wanted to visit once he left Robben Island was Fidel Castro. Right? So Cuba, Cuba's um, 
1970s African adventures in regard to Angola is it's such a clear distinction between what they're doing there and why they're there in contrast what the United States is doing there, right. On the side of apartheid South Africa. Um, and that always, that always surprises my students. Right. And, and this is why the Cubans are remembered, um, in Africa in a radically different way than, than they are here. Right. Yeah, you're absolutely right. And as you said, a, a lot of scholars, I would say the majority of honest scholars would give a lot of credit to Cuba for the, the fall of the apartheid regime in South Africa. I, you know, eventually apartheid would have fallen. It's just inevitable. But the push was really uh, something that occurred with Cuba's help. You know, the, the South Africa's failure in Angola really did help precipitate its downfall among many other things. Of course, I'm not saying that Cuba was solely responsible for it, but you're right. That's never talked about in the U S because to give credit to Cuba for anything, uh, especially something that we eventually wanted to laud, you know, of course, originally we, we were not necessarily in favor of uh, ending apartheid, but of course, once apartheid fell, we wanted to uh, really laud, you know, uh, the South African um, liberation struggle uh, as something that we can uphold as, as a major and positive event in world history. But we can't give the Cubans credit for that. It would be uh, completely out of tune with everything else that the Americans want to say. And I want to add one other thing before we go back, uh, before I circle back to the beginning of what you were saying a little bit is that when you're saying that the Cubans sent tens of thousands of soldiers without expecting anything in return, this is very deeply entrenched within the Cuban ethos. Uh, We see it now with their medical brigades. So Cuba has the highest concentration of doctors of any country in the world. One out of every 11 people in Cuba is a doctor, medical doctor. And anytime that there's a health crisis globally, they'll send out thousands of doctors to work on the front lines and places that they don't have enough doctors of their own. We saw it um, in sharp display in the Ebola crisis in 2014, 2015. There was thousands and thousands of Cuban doctors who were deployed out to the front lines uh, in West Africa to combat Ebola. They didn't get anything in return for that, but that was their way of showing solidarity with people, human beings having solidarity with each other. But I want to circle back to uh, some of the things that you were saying at the beginning of that. So, you said, you know, Fidel was not necessarily a, a Marxist-Leninist during the revolution. That's that's right. Of course, he, I'm sure he read Marx and Lenin. You and I know how uh, vociferous of a reader Fidel was. Um, but it was really the effect of the U.S. intervention and pressure on Cuba that really radicalized him. And I think that that's something that a lot of Americans don't realize is that he was not an absolute wild radical on the left at the beginning, but it was the material conditions that he was put under by the U S that did radicalize him. Um, and then the last thing I want to say before I let you comment more on it, because of course you're the expert. I'm just, uh, you know, allegedly, allegedly. here blowing words out of my mouth. But, uh, the other thing that you mentioned that I, I wanted to highlight, and it's why I brought up Cuba right after talking about Bolivia is that anytime we see a leader, in Latin America that is not fully in line with uh, what the U S imperial state wants, 
the U.S. will draw wedges in between that state and then the rest of the states in the region. We, we can see the Lima group is a really good example of um, a group of nations that does this. Canada does this too. Canada is not getting off scot-free here. Canada is a very major player in, uh, in the Lima group structure. But yeah, I, I, do you have anything that you want to comment on how the U.S. drives wedges between these countries? Uh, you know, the pink tide was a, a a big event in, in history. And then of course the U S made sure that that, uh, was not to, uh, come to fruition broadly. Yeah, no, I think those are all great points, Henry. I would say that, um, the U S the U S empire is most effective when it can interface with opposition movements that it already exists within these individual countries. Right. So we shouldn't give the U S this overwhelming omnipotent power because in many cases, they are dumb as hell. Like if you read some of these like declassified CIA documents, it's, it's unbelievable um, how bad their analysis at certain, in certain ways is. I mean, when they planned the Bay of Pigs invasion in 61, they figured they were going to be just as successful as when they um, did almost the exact same type of operation. Um, what was it about seven, eight years earlier when they overthrew the democratically elected president of Guatemala. They, it, the, the, the operations were very similar and they, their whole plan was we're going to land these 2000 Cuban exile paramilitaries onto the Island because Castro is an authoritarian. As soon as the Cubans see this force, they're going to flock to their side and there's going to be a popular rebellion against Castro and that, and we're going to win Castro outlived like how many U S presidents. So say what you will about a Cuban authoritarianism, internal contradictions. It's not a perfect uh, government or, or society, but there is something there of popular support, right? The, the reason that this little island still exists as a gadfly in U.S. imperial designs, I think is something that we need to, as Americans, pay serious attention to. Um, but back to my earlier comment. So the U.S. empire in its covert or overt actions in Latin America, the area that I know best, it works best when it interfaces with local opposition groups. Um, and then it also has something like the Organization of American States. So uh, the Cubans famously referred to the OAS as the Yankee ministry of colonies. I think they called them that like in the early sixties. And in the last couple of years, the OAS has had a terrible performance in the region, right? Led by their president, Luis Almagro, who played a big role in um, not recognizing the legitimacy of the Evo Morales election of November, 2019, and essentially allowing or facilitating the coup d'etat. Now we now know that everything that OAS was saying um, in November, 2019 is not, was not true. So you have people like Evo Morales, um, president-elect Luis Arce saying, we want to we kick you out of the OAS because you lied and you used this organization for political intervention. The other day, the Mexican representative before the OAS spent 10 minutes just lambasting Luis Almagro and demanding that the OAS launch an internal investigation over his role in facilitating the removal of, of Evo Morales uh, from power. But what, made, but what made that removal even more effective is that certain segments within Bolivian society also participated and gave the veneer of popular support for this coup in November of 2019. So it's, always, so it's not just the evil United States coming in from the outside. There's that. But it also requires their local allies on the ground or people who at least want the same goals and aims to work together. And then they're more successful in achieving that. And that's something that they never managed to accomplish in Cuba. Um, they, they tried and through a variety, right? They had the Bay of Pigs invasion of 61. 
JFK initiated something called Operation Mongoose, which was essentially U.S. state terror campaign against Cuba. They would bomb sugar refineries. They would land secret teams who would then burn down sugar plantations, uh, sugar crops. They would bomb uh, Cuban copper mines. Right? So they would wage like economic sabotage and, and, and bloody hit-and-run campaigns, not to mention their Cuban exile assets who were known for blowing up civilian airliners in the 70s and 80s, right? And even then, they still could not gain a foothold on the ground in Cuba to make that intervention actually successful, right? So U.S. empire always requires allies on the ground, and it, it requires them having a little bit of knowledge of local conflicts that they could then expose and, and use for their broader aims. Yeah, so let's close out the conversation. I mean, we've got 15, 20 minutes left. Um, with one topic that we could talk 15 or 20 hours about and uh, still not get all the way through, but David likes to use the Perones as an example pretty frequently on the show. And so I think that uh, it would be worthwhile while we have you here to at least have a, a brief discussion of the Perones, who they were and the contradictions present within Argentina during their reign. Um, honestly, like this is, Sorry, David, I'm going to disappoint you. But when it comes to teaching like Argentina and like 20, like modern Latin America, 20th century, it is like the, it's a political puzzle for me in terms of. Excuse me, Henry uh, got it wrong. I suffer from Peroni's disease. It's a completely uh, different. (laughs) Uh, The, the amazing, seemingly uh, politically contradictory thing called Peronismo, Peronism, right? Like the fact that there's a left-wing Peronism in Argentina, a right-wing Peronism, that there's this like broad tent, but you have different, uh, you have different political sides. And, you know, in certain moments of Argentine history, like the 60s and the 70s, they're actually fighting one another. And then you have left Peronism inspire urban guerrilla movements in the 70s. So it, to me, it's just, it's just this crazy, um, uh, like to me, a political and historical puzzle. The fact that Perón rises to power what, in the 1940s on the backs of like organized uh, labor, right? Organized, very powerful union. But by the time he dies in the, in, the, in the early 1970s, he's almost unrecognizable. But even in the 40s, he has like these flirtations with certain fascistic notions about corporatism and integralism, right? So, but there is something there about him having genuine, authentic, popular support. And I think the historians that talk about Peron and Peronismo in the most interesting way to me are people like Daniel James who, and, and Ernesto Seman who think about how the everyday worker translated Peronismo in their own terms, in their own understandings, right? And, and truly made it a radical ideology, beyond, more radical than, their, than the very leader of this movement was in the 1940s and 50s. Um, I mean, to a certain extent, they, again, they, this, this guy in this movement in the 70s was inspiring a, a new generation to take up weapons and try to create um, a, a more just socialist Argentina, um, which was, you know, destroyed and taken. These guys were mostly destroyed, taken out by, by 1975. Um, the also cool thing about Argentina is that it's one of the areas that has the richest history of anarchist organizing in the late 19th century, early 20th century, because you have such a influx of European um, migrants, particularly from Spain and, and Italy, who are bringing over their, their anarchist ideologies. There's a fertile cross-mixing of anarchism, European anarchism with local Argentine definitions of it. And you have these really militant, powerful anarchist movements in Argentina in the early 20th century um, that 
leads to full out conflict and, and battles with, with, with Argentine police and Argentine military units. There's a story. I'll, I'll tell one story. I think is pretty cool. There was a guy, Kurt Wilkins, who um, was a German immigrant to the United States comes to Arizona where I'm at now. This is why I think it's a cool story. He's actually working in the mines in Bisbee, Arizona, which is South of where I am in Phoenix. But in 1917, the Bisbee workers tried to organize an IWW union. And because of that, they're severely repressed. They're beaten down. They were Finnish workers, Slavic workers, German workers, and Mexican workers. And essentially the county police put them on, 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 um, on, a, on a railway and t- dump them off in the middle of the New Mexico desert. Kurt Wilkins was part of that famous, infamous Bisbee deportation. He leaves the U.S. From, from, he's an anarchist by that point. He leaves the U.S. and he goes to Argentina. And when he gets to Argentina in the early 1920s, there's outright street battles between the police and the anarchists. And he ends up becoming famous in Argentina because he took out the most notorious killer, police killer of workers. And he assassinated him in the 19, early 1920s. He's then caught and hung. So there's like this weird connection for me, at least, from Arizona to Argentina. It involves anarchism and it, it involves this radical period of Argentine history before Peronismo becomes kind of like the dominant uh, political structure and ideology of the country in, in, in the 40s and 50s. Yeah, so I, I want to get to talking about the, the dirty wars and the disappeared people in Argentina. But first, I'm gonna, this is the hardest question I'm going to ask you because I think that if you asked 30 different people this question, you'd get close to as many answers. As you said, Peronismo or, or Peronism has such a br- broad uh, cohort of people that would consider themselves to fall within it. What would you say is the defining characteristic of Peronism? Like what would somebody have to have to be considered a Peronist figure? Uh, as I said, you know, take your time on answering that because there's, <laughs> there's not really a perfect way of answering it, but in your, uh, you know, professional opinion, what would you say would make somebody a Peronist figure, um, across the spectrum? I mean, at the leadership level, a, a Peronist leader would be someone who would position themselves as somehow above class conflict or the conflict between state, the, co- the conflict between labor and capital. So someone like, if you were going to be a Peronista leader, you would say, I am a neutral arbiter between labor and capital, right? So it's a, I mean, I, I guess it's almost like a, like Marx's definition of a Bonapartist leader. Um, the idea that this leader with popular support, with labor support, could somehow remain above the fray and accurately and effectively negotiate and balance the demands by capital with the demands by labor. Um, but then at, at the rank and file, it's just, to me, it's interesting that, you know, there's obviously a, a nationalism involved as well. So that I think is a particular form of Peronista nationalism that will link, um, you know, uh, a descamisado, a worker, a shirtless worker, as they call them with a more middle-class, you know, small business owner. Um, but then there's a like certain nationalistic interpretation of, of Argentine identity that, that potentially can, can kind of smooth over some, some class conflict and class differences. But at the leadership level, it's really someone who can say, look, I will make society run in a certain way, and I can, uh, I can be like a neutral arbiter of the, the conflict, the, not the eternal, but the, the, the conflict between labor and capital. David? Uh, this is great. I, I have a quick question about Perón and fascism. We keep calling the Republicans fascists, but it seems to me the fascists 
did infrastructure. They did things for, as you've pointed out, for the poor. They built things. The Republicans aren't doing anything for, for the poor. So they're, they're not. Trump and his ilk are something else. How do you compare Trump to Perone or Trump to traditionally? I mean, it, it, was Perone f- fascist? I guess so, right? I mean, there's, there's, he had certain tendencies, yeah, flirtations. Um, but I always say that if you want to understand Trump, you have to look to the South. Don't look at Hitler. Don't look at Mussolini. Look South. That's, that's the prologue. But yeah, I think it's, it's a, and, and certain scholars have made that comparison, right? I think the way that they compare Trump to a Peron or, uh, the one comparison that really drove me crazy for a while was the comparison with Hugo Chavez. The, the, what they focus on is political style. So I guess in terms of political style and, and, and bombastic, uh, uh, bombastic public personality, you can make some sort of links. Um, but and this is one of the reasons why, like, the other day I was, I was tweeting about how populism doesn't mean anything anymore, right? Because if, if it, the way that U.S. media uses this to say, well... The Mexican president is a populist. Trump is a populist. Um, Maduro is a populist. Evo Morales. It like completely flattens out real serious political and historical differences. So if there's one area that I guess we could compare this is in terms of political style. I think we're lucky in the U.S. that Trump is in as disciplined as most fascistic movements in the history of the 20th century. Like he's he's so undisciplined, and that that's to our advantage, and that's to our like saving grace to a certain extent. Um, because if he if he had followed through with some of the demands that um, what's that crazy man I can't his I'm blanking on his name that his advisor at the beginning of his administration Bannon Miller Bannon if he had followed through with some of Bannon's um, recommendations of actually giving stuff to people right the infrastructure development um, you know providing some sort of, um, of direct material benefits to his political base I think we would have been in trouble more serious trouble. I mean, we're in trouble now, but it had this been a highly organized movement um, with discipline, with a fetish for violence, more so than we already see now, like we'd be in serious trouble because, you know, I don't, I don't see any sort of organized defense, broadly speaking, existing in the United States. If he refuses to concede and you were looking at the United States as you would any other South American country, how would you categorize this country with a president who refuses to step down? We have a functioning, supposedly, legislative branch, a functioning Supreme Court, a, an illegitimate president, but a stock market that continues, an economy that continues. If you were to see this as a, a South American country, how would you categorize it? I, I would, that's a good question. I, it would be, I mean, it would be something obviously unprecedented in U.S. history, um, but it's a form of authoritarian that has existed in U.S. history. The difference is that Trump is actually uh, making good on it, right? So there's, there's, I think there's a, there's, there's a reason why Trump, you know, thinks about Andrew Jackson as his, as his like avatar, right? I mean, 
and I, and I think he's, he's accurately diagnosed like the one leader in the U S history that he's political style mimics, right? This, this, the only president we know that personally drove a, say, a slave coffin was an Indian killer. Um, but you know, for him to be able to stay on based on my reading of 20th century Latin American history, he would need military support. I mean, we know he has the support of federal marshals. We know we ha- he has support of ICE agents. We know he has the support of border patrol agents. There are special forces units within the border patrol that like apparently just, you know, are taking orders directly from him or people close to him. Or, um, or uh, Eric Prince's old company, Blackwater, right. or whatever yeah. they're called now. What does it look like? I mean, what can it look like when you lose a democracy? Let, let's, for argument's sake, let's say we have a democracy now and we're about to lose it. Do we see any examples in Latin America of lost democracy, authoritarianism, but it's not the nightmare that we like in Fujimoro? I mean, in I, it's is it always a nightmare when generally yes. it always is How do, and, usually immediately after. I mean, I think Mexico would be one potential exception right, where um, the authoritarianism that took root there was, was different in the sense that it did try to co-opt popular sectors. They, it did give stuff to people throughout most of the 20th century up until it made a, a neoliberal turn in the 80s. Um, but in general, when there is a loss of democracy, it means that there is going to be a horrible period right after. Whether you look at Argentina in the late 70s or Chile right after the September 11, 1973 coup, the first period after is, is usually the bloodiest. Um, Has it ever not been bloody? No. It's never not been bloody. In terms of like an authoritarian leader taking over? No. And Fuji, Fujimoro. What, Fujimori. Was he bloody? I think that uh, he was bloody towards certain people. I mean, I, I think a lot of stuff has come out in terms of what his police were, was the type of violence his police was exercising against people they suspected of being, you know, a member of these guerrilla groups, uh, Sendero Luminoso or Tupac Amaru, or whether you were a labor organizer or you're a peasant union organizer, um, there is there's there is a dirty war that occurred under Fujimori that is that has been looked at by um, by this Truth Commission report that's been I think came out. I'm trying to remember the year it came out. Uh, but Fujimori, I think, is a good example because Fujimori was democratically elected, right? But the moves that he made while he was in office allowed him to consolidate himself as a dictator, essentially, um, using uh, the conflict with these two different guerrilla groups as a way to consolidate his base. Um, and it took a lot of sustained popular mobilization, democratic mobilization, to, to force them out of power. Was it, there was it was Shining Path? Who was the guerrilla group? Yeah, the, Sendero, the Shining Path guerrillas. And there was a smaller group named Tupac Amaru. So... Is that where Tupac got his name from? Tupac Amaru is a great anti-colonial indigenous leader that read a, led a rebellion in the 1780s. Yeah. Tupac. So Tupac Shakur. Yeah. From the 1780s um, indigenous leader. My last question, then, Henry, you continue. I, I apologize for interrupting. This is just so interesting. And I, I've been hanging on every word. Uh, I'm a Bernie supporter. And I keep saying, and I know my listeners are sick of hearing this, but I'm going to say it, that if if Trump goes gently into the night, 
I'm going to be really pissed off at the Democratic Party for scaring the hell out of us. And, you know, once again, we had to settle with Biden because the soul of America was at stake. Uh how do you view this election? How do you see this? Is, is democracy at stake? Is it as scary as I believe it is? Or is it are we being manipulated? It, it is bad. But do you know? Can we tell? I think it's I think there are. I think it is scary. I think you see certain moves that I think are scary. I think, you know, what this these federal police and Border Patrol did in Portland, right, where they were just snatching people off the streets, throwing them in vans, taking them to an undisclosed location, and then releasing them, but not leaving no record that they were ever detained. Like, there's, there's, there has to be a rehearsal or a warm up for a full on dictatorship, and and you see that in certain places, like in Chile, when Allende was still in power, you saw the Chilean military kind of rehearse, and they would lead these raids into factories and fa- and worker organizations, and it kind of like taught them to be brutal toward their own people. And so I think that's the scary part that I've seen, right? The use of ICE, the use of Border Patrol, the use of federal marshals, like they executed that, that, that guy in, in Washington, right? Um, I think those are, there's some scary uh, potentialities and, and developments. On the other hand, I also see Trump as just being so undisciplined um, that that works to our advantage. And then looking at this from a Latin American perspective, um, both Democrat and Republican presidents have continuously intervened and messed up Latin America. Right. So it, it also helps to look at this through the lens of class and to a certain extent, Trump and Biden are, are, are members of the same ruling class that occupied different positions. So I remember being in Mexico in 2007 doing research for my dissertation. And there was, I was going around the mountains with a bunch of ex guerrilla fighters and they were really excited about Obama and they would talk to me about, is Ob- does Obama, it, does this mean like there's going to be a, a new relationship between the U.S. and Latin America if Obama wins? And I'm like, you guys, like, it's either, it doesn't matter in, the, in a global South situation if the president is a Democrat or Republican. They both do the same thing. How right? much? The, the issues, the desires are beyond bipartisan. They're, they are bipartisan. How much blame can you always lay at the feet of the fascists and not at the voter. Do we see examples in Latin America of the passive voter who doesn't doesn't mobilize and lays back and allows this all to happen? Or is there an inevitability to fascism regardless of whether or not people go to the polls? How important has the vote always been? I think the vote has been really important because it's it's only being widely available to most people in these different Latin American societies since maybe the 1940s. So do we see right? do we see fascism on the rise in Latin America when people don't vote? No. Is that a cause of fascism? No, I think you see fascism or fascistic governments in response to mass popular participation, political participation. So if you don't want fascism, don't vote. <laughs> that's one, good. That's a good, good. Okay, good. It's crazy. Yeah, it's, it's a weird th- thing to take away from it. But anytime you see mass, the, the, the enfranchisement of all workers and peasants in these different Latin American societies, then the elites get freaked out and then they intervene. Um, so they're actually responding to mass political, popular democratic participation that goes from the political and then goes into the, the economic. And that's when they really freak out. That's yeah, I want to, scary. I want to I'm sorry, Henry. That's point. really scary, isn't it, Henry? 
Yeah, I, I want to raise one quick point, which is that, uh, as Dr. Vina said, whenever we see mass popular movements, that's when the elites start to get freaked out. But that's also when the U.S. gets freaked out. So, for example, you mentioned the military parades that were going on in Chile during Allende's reign. Uh, I just recently found this out, but uh, about five days after Allende took power, so this is before he instituted any of the reforms uh, within Chile that actually ended up helping the people greatly. But five days after the CIA met with a general in the military and was asking if they would, if, if that general would be willing to get rid of them because they knew the general wasn't very pro Allende. Well, the general, despite being not pro Allende said, well, I respect the constitution of 1925 and I, we're not going to have a military coup here. So then what the CIA did is they found an ex general and said, okay, how about you? Do you want to get rid of Allende? He said, sure. And so he assassinated the general that turned down the CIA and then opened up space for Pinochet to come in uh, and basically end up leading the military and then leading the, the military coup in 73. But that was five days, starting five days after Allende took office. And of course, they the U.S. government was talking even before he took office that they didn't want him in there, but they were even going with these explicit military-based tactics. Five days after he took office, it's absolutely insane. Um, so yeah, anytime the elites see a mass movement, you're bound to have blowback from the elites within that country as, as well as the U.S., sadly. Um, yeah, David, I know you want to get us out of here because yep. of the debate. Um, well, otherwise, I, I, I would have... Do- well... I was going to say, otherwise I would have Dr. Vina briefly tell us about the disappeared people in Argentina, but yeah, we'll, we'll bring them back in the future, David. I I know that you uh, enjoy these conversations and Dr. Vina, I hope that you enjoy uh, coming on to the show. This is a lot of fun. Thank you so much. Sure. Can you tell the listeners how they can follow you on uh, Twitter and, and what, what your website is? Yeah. So my, I have a website, alexanderavina.com and my Twitter handle is Alexander underscore Avina. Great. And yeah, we'll try to bring you back on again uh, relatively soon because these conversations are beg, a lot of fun. Beg, and Henry, really, beg. really eye opening. So cool. beg it's a lot of fun. Thank you for having me. I appreciate it. Thank you. Thank guys. you. Thank you, Dr. Avina. Really interesting. Thank you. Great job, Thank Henry. You. Well, this is what we're going to do. We're going to take a break on YouTube to start our debate watch party here on Zoom. And then we're going to go back up on YouTube to do a post-debate wrap-up with professors. And uh, we've got a lot, Henry. You, you're welcome to join us if you want. Uh, Professor Harvey Well, you've J. got K- quite the lineup already. You don't need me, David. We have professors Harvey J.K., Adnan Hussein, Marianne Cummings. We also have the host of the PETA podcast, Emil Guillermo. And we also have Alan Minsky from the Progressive Democrats of America. I'm probably leaving somebody out. I... Uh, I know I've left somebody out. Uh, Did I mention Adnan Hussein? He's going to be there. Before we say goodbye, I want to ask Henry a question about COVID-19, if you don't mind. Sure thing, David. Okay. You weren't here Monday, and I kept asking for you. I was installing installation on Monday. Okay. Very fun project. We had a bit of a a dust-up over whether or not somebody can contract covid Twice. Now, here's what I said, and a lot of people are saying I'm wrong. That the absence of antibodies does not suggest 
the people who say the absence of antibodies means you haven't developed immunity, they're wrong because B cells are the memory cells that can produce the antibodies once the body is attacked by COVID. So the absence of antibodies doesn't mean an absence of immunity. That's what I said. A couple of people say I'm wrong. And I maintained, and a lot of people say I'm wrong, and I should keep my mouth shut on this because misinformation on COVID-19 is very dangerous. I said you cannot contract COVID twice and that for the most part, anybody who supposedly contracted it twice probably never got rid of it in the first place. David, I've got an article for you that I wrote that would say that you're uh, you're wrong. Sorry to say. Okay. Um, so, so you're right on some parts of it, and you're wrong on other some uh, on other parts of it. So let me just clear that up for you. When you say that the absence of antibodies doesn't necessarily mean an absence of immunity, that part's right for most diseases. For coronaviruses, so and again, you were also right on the fact that your B cells are the cells that. Uh, are going to produce antibodies when in contact with that pathogen that they are targeted to uh, recognizing. So in the case of COVID-19, they recognize the SARS-CoV-2 virus. They're going to start pooping out antibodies if they've seen that virus before. So if you'd previously been infected, you're right so far. Okay. This is where things start to get a little bit muddy. So in previous uh, coronavirus studies that we've done, not with SARS-CoV-2, this is a, a brand new virus, but with previous coronaviruses, what we've seen is that at roughly the same rate that we see antibodies drop, we have the rate of memory B cells drop. So the memory B cells themselves are also not generated in some cases or maintained in other cases. So if you see the level of antibodies dropping to basically zero, Based on previous coronaviruses, we could also surmise that it's likely that you're not going to have those memory B cells present either. Now, that's not necessarily the case in this virus. We don't know. It's still new. I mean, we're just barely coming up on a year now from the very first cases that we've recognized. But based on previous coronaviruses, once that level drops, it would start to drop. Now, on the other point, in terms of reinfection, the vast majority of people that have been infected with COVID are not going to get COVID again for at least a year or two, maybe three. Okay. Um, again, based on previous coronaviruses, seasonal ones, you'll, you'll be immune for like six months or so. Um, SARS one, the, the rate of immunity, at least in terms of memory B cells and neutralizing antibodies, we saw those drop in about two to three years. This is likely to be closer to SARS than the seasonal coronaviruses. So one, two, three years. But we've already seen cases of people who have gotten more than one infection, and we have evidence for it being a reinfection and not just them not clearing it. So this is what I wrote this article a few months ago, but I'll briefly run through the details for you, David. So you're right that very early on in the pandemic, we were seeing cases of where somebody would test positive for COVID, they'd feel bad, then they'd feel fine, right? And then like a month later, they would go back in because they were feeling kind of crappy again, and they would get another um, a QPCR, a QRT-PCR test, and they would test positive again. Okay, in a lot of those cases, it was likely just junk in their system, 
meaning that these RT-PCR tests are looking for RNA from the virus and not live virus itself. And a lot of the time, I shouldn't say a lot of time, sometimes you'll kill the virus, but you'll have some of that viral junk left in your system. And when you do that test, you'll be amplifying that junk so that it'll look like you still have that viral RNA in your system from a live virus, but really it's this junk. But we have cases, at least about a dozen now that I'm aware of, where they've definitively shown that the individual has two different, not strains, but there's enough mutations between um, the SARS-CoV-2 that they were infected with the first time and the second time to show that it was actually a different infection. And the way that you can explain this is like this. We've talked before about how viruses, particularly RNA-based viruses, over time will pick up mutations, just naturally. It, it happens all the time. They'll pick up minor mutations across their genome. Most of these don't do anything. Um, I mean, the letter will change, but it doesn't fundamentally change anything about the virus. But we can map these changes. And there's, if you map it enough, you can actually figure out the rate at which these mutations will occur, which will give you an idea of how long um, it has been since that virus was there. So even within your own body, you'll pick up mutations from the very first virus that comes into your body to the very last virus in your body before you either die or you're better, right? Let's say that over the course of your infection, you'll have, this is just a random number and it's not anywhere near accurate, but for the case, uh, for this demonstration within you, you could expect, let's say 10 mutations to occur, random mutations within that virus. So it's replicating in you and every once in a while a mutation occurs and then that mutation is replicated, right? So between the first virus in your system and the last virus in your system, there's 10 mutations that have occurred. They don't do anything, but they're there. So if you sequence that virus from the first time that the person was infected and then they come back and they test positive again and you sequence it again and you see a thousand mutations, that would indicate that, that those mutations that occurred were not occurring within that same individual. That virus had gone from either somebody else into them a different time, or even if it was the same virus that them, uh, that they had originally, it went from them to somebody else, to somebody else, to somebody else, to somebody else, on and on down the line. And then eventually came back to them. And we can trace these mutations across the population. We can see how far away, um, that virus was from the person that had it. But the point is, is that there was, there's been at least a dozen cases that I know of where these people have actually had the virus not only tested, they've tested to see if they're positive, but they've sequenced the virus and they found enough variations, enough of these mutations present between the first time that they tested positive and the second time that they've tested positive that uh, they can pretty definitively say that it was a reinfection and not just the virus still being in their system and they never cleared it. I hope that that made at least a little bit of what? sense. So, I tried to run through it really yeah, fast. So he's so Trump conceivably is going to be contagious tonight. Not necessarily. Uh, in fact, I would say no. So okay. The again, the thing at play here is that he could. So he, apparently, he's tested negative since then. Um. And as I've said, in the vast majority of cases, so the, the lowest number of days I remember seeing on one of these reinfections was 45 days in between the first positive test and the second positive test for the second positive test was a different enough version of the virus that they determined that it was a separate infection. Um, 
in most cases, he's not going to be able to be in re- reinfected for at least a couple of years. It could be as little as a few months, but at least a couple of years. But the thing is, is that that first infection is cleared at some point. Usually it's, let's say, 10 to 14 days after symptoms begin onset, you'll have no virus left in your system at all. We're well beyond that. Um, so is he contagious right now? I would say no, unless somehow he was reinfected this quickly, which would be unprecedented at this point. We've seen very few cases of reinfections so far. Again, uh, we could probably, we could potentially expect more later on when the immunity in the majority of people start to wane, but we've only seen a few cases so far. And the shortest was uh, 45 days, if I remember correctly. And, and we're shorter than that. So okay. he would have had to have been reinfected, have a new virus. Again, still SARS-CoV-2, but a different time that he was infected to have the virus in his system. And then he could be contagious. But the virus from his first infection that he had is is long gone by this point. All right. It takes a big man to admit he's wrong. And I just want to say to my listeners, I'm not a big man and I stand by what? No, <laughs> I, uh, I, I was wrong. I apologize. Well, David, I apologize. You're, not, you're not alone. Irritable and I were wrong, too, uh, on certain things that we said. You may have seen an email that he sent you recently about, um, and I put it on my Patreon. So if you want more information, I just, you know what? Patreon. I don't mind being Slash. wrong. I, I, it's the chat room that ate me alive on my show. And now they're just, there's a victory dance going on. Well, sure. I, I understand. Let me, let me just, um, correct the record with one thing that we were saying so it's not that we were lying or we were mistaken about something we just have more evidence now so we've been talking about cytokine storms for a long time there's a new paper out that just came out that shows uh that it's unlikely that cytokine storms are actually occurring in covid and by the way great Um, porn actress cytokine storm Mm. talk about inflammation yes Yes, hey, there were definitely uh, certain things that were inflamed. The, the, de- um, the debate is about to start. I should yeah. mention, let me let me do some business here. Do you mind? Yeah, Henry. Go ahead. I was just going to say, that's all I was going to say, David. If you want more information on that new paper on uh, on uh, the lack of cytokine storm, check out my Patreon. I yeah, have let, me, let me do that. We'll probably you. talk about it next time. Let me, let me do that for you, because you're going to be doing another COVID town squares a week from this Saturday. Halloween. It's a Halloween. It's our special. Halloween special. Henry Huckamacki, the irritable immunologist. Please go to davidfeldmanshow.com and purchase tickets. They're not for sale yet. We're only selling a hundred, and we'll talk about all the separate tiers that are available to support this. I mean, your your interview with Doctor Avina was breathtaking. You, you are. Thank you, David. You are. Uh, I have a father-son relationship with Henry. He's both a father and a son to me. And he, no, uh, you're just brilliant. You're, you're just a, you're just brilliant. And everybody should go to patreon.com forward slash Huck 1995 to subscribe to Henry's newsletter where he writes about public health, science, and of course, COVID-19. He has been on top of this story, aggregating all the studies for us. The story doesn't end, unfortunately, and it seems to be getting worse. Thank yeah, you. A lot of David. One thing. Everybody is getting fatigued from covid stories. I get it. We've been hearing about it for a long time, but 
there's more evidence out now for a bunch of different things that we didn't know before. And there's more cases now than there ever has been before in a lot of places. So even if it's not from me, don't take COVID lightly. I know you're feeling fatigued from the story, but this story hasn't gone anywhere yet. Well, it's an American conceit to grow fatigued. The war in Afghanistan is still going on. Iraq is still going on. Unfortunately, this time around COVID is right in front of you. You have to pay attention to it. There is some good news. It's not as much of a death sentence as it was four months ago. Is that fair to say? Yes, that is fair to say. There's a couple of reasons for it, but I know we want to get to the debate, so we'll yeah, talk we'll about get that to the soon, debate. Dave, Very quick. Great job, as always. It, it is an honor to have you part of this show, Henry Huckamacki. I want it's to, my pleasure, David. I want to remind everybody that this Saturday night, the benefits continue. We're doing a pay-per-view event, Diabetic Fury. If you love the voice of Melania on this show, if you love the voice of Susan Collins on this show. That means you love Martha Previtt. And she and Jim Earl suffer from type 1 diabetes. They founded Diabetic Fury, which is set up to draw awareness, attention to the silent killer, diabetes. So we're doing another fundraiser for Diabetic Fury this Saturday night, 9.30 p.m. That's October 24th. Tickets start at $10, and there are various tiers that take you all the way up to, I don't know, $250, and they're really funny. One of them is you, Jim will write somebody's obituary for you. Jim has written a book called Morning Remembrances, and uh, they're funny obituaries. Anyway, go to davidfeldmanshow.com right now. Hit the pay-per-view button. It'll take you to Eventbrite where you can purchase a ticket for as little as $10 or as high as $250, various tiers and perks. And special guest will be Eddie Pepitone. Eddie Pepitone will be our special guest, and it is going to be really funny. It is going to be one hysterical show. We have a lot of uh, funny sketches planned and talking to Eddie Pepitone about diabetes and what it was like to do the old version of our show. This is an old uh, promo shot from our show uh, before. This was before Henry Huckamacki used to do the show. If you remember this podcast when we first started, we used to do some amazing sketches. So we're going to bring back a lot of sketches and we're going to talk science and we're going to talk to Kathleen Ash, who is a veterinarian who treats diabetes in pets. So we're going to talk about the epidemic of diabetes in pets. And it's going to be scientific, but it's also going to be funny. We're going to wrap it up on YouTube. If you're watching us on YouTube, please subscribe to my channel and In the description, you can see an invitation to join us in the Zoom room to watch the debate with us. We're going to watch the debate together, and then we'll go back and record more of the podcast live on YouTube. And I hope you will join us on YouTube or in the Zoom room. Thank you very much to Henry and Dan Frankenberger, and we'll be back later 
on YouTube. So let me say goodbye to everybody on YouTube. There's an invitation in the YouTube description if you want to join us in the Zoom room. We have a little room left to watch the debate. And if you don't want to join our Zoom room, we'll see you after the debate on YouTube. Tonight at 9 p.m., it's office hours where the listeners talk and I listen. Go to David Feldman Show. Dot com. Hit the attend a live taping menu, sign up and you'll get a link and you're in tonight. Office hours, 9 p.m. Eastern Standard Time. It's where the listeners do all the talking and I do all the listening. I'll see you tonight. Hosted by David Feldman. Saturday, October 24th, 9.30 p.m. Eastern Time. Starring Jim Earl and Martha Privet. For tickets, contact Diabetic Fury Show at gmail.com. Follow us on Twitter at Diabetic Fury. So many questions, so little healthcare. Welcome to the post-debate mop-up for October 22nd, 2020. Nobody has done more for the black community, with the possible exception of Abraham Lincoln, than Donald Trump. So says Donald Trump. Abraham Lincoln here is the most racist president in modern history. Come on, the president has a dog whistle as big as a foghorn. So says Joe Biden. As I said, welcome to the post-debate mop-up. It's 1041 in New York City. Joe Biden and Donald Trump squared off tonight for the last presidential debate with fewer than 12 days before Election Day. 47 million Americans have already voted. So was Donald Trump able to reverse course? He's not doing well. Joe Biden's lead is in the double digits. 
We'll pose these questions to tonight's panel of experts, Professor Harvey J.K., author of FDR and Democracy, Professor Adnan Hussein, chairman of the Religion Department at Queen's University in Kingston, uh, Ontario, Canada, Professor Marianne Cummings, who is not only a physicist, but also commissioner of parks in Aurora, Colorado. Aurora, Colorado? Aurora, Illinois. Yes. Not Aurora, Colorado. Also joining us will be the Reverend Barry W. Lynn from Americans United for Separation of Church and State, Alan Minsky, Executive Director of Progressive Democrats of America, and journalist Emil Guillermo, host of the PETA podcast. Trump did well tonight. And I suspect had the mute button been implemented for the first debate, he wouldn't be trailing in the polls the way he is now. As far as sociopaths go, he showed up. You know, he's a liar. He's a fraud. But tonight we got Donald Trump at his absolute best. This is the best I've ever seen. Donald Trump. We got the huckster. And I think he convinced the, the, the people who are on the fence. I think the people who are looking for any excuse to vote for him. I think he gave them reason to vote for him tonight. I, I, I think he's the worst president this country has ever had. But I understand why people call him a salesman. He actually played the part of, of the president tonight. Trump also outmaneuvered Biden. He got Biden to say he supports fracking. He got Biden to insist that he supports fracking. And he got Biden to say he supports the health insurance companies. This is not good for the Democratic Party or our country. Not good at all. But I still think, I still hope that the landslide will be too big to steal. For more on this, we're joined by Professor Adnan Hussein, chairman of the Religion Department over at Queen's University in Kingston, Ontario, Canada. Thank you for joining us. A pleasure to be here. Did you watch the debate? Were you able to? Uh, I did. Um, How do you think Trump did? I, to me. Well, I, I, I agree with you, actually, that you sort of taken my big headline, which was that I think Trump did a lot better because he was on his best behavior. Somehow he managed to control himself. And I think the mute button actually worked to his advantage because um, he was restrained from interrupting and um, really making a fool of himself, which is what he did. And uh, in the first well, there, debate, how's Lindsey Graham going to do in South Carolina, do you think? Excuse oh, me. I am praying for a victory for President Trump. What is going on here? We, are, we, we have a problem right here. Hang on. Harrison has been putting out. Sorry about that. Something. Go ahead. Sorry. OK, so I just I think that, um, you know, that Biden wasn't able in the first debate to really make his points. And now, um, you know, he didn't have Trump getting in his own way. And it really exposed how imprecise he is in being able to articulate his points. So there was a lot of vagaries coming from him. And um, I think there was much more spotlight on him as a result of Trump not getting in the way all the time. And I think what Trump managed to do is to run 
against a Biden incumbency. He managed to turn himself back into the outsider, non-politician who's running against the establishment, even though he's the incumbent, by constantly saying, you say you're, you're just a regular politician. Uh, he really... One of the only good moments uh, that Biden had in the first debate was when he uh, stopped the squabbling about corruption and uh, people's families, you know, his son and uh, Trump's family and said, this is really about, you know, you out there, your family. He tried the same thing and it's clearly a little bit canned. And this time Trump was ready to turn the tables on him and say that's just he, he mocked that and said that, you know, you just don't want to talk about the issue. That's a typical politician move sitting around the table, the kitchen table. And he managed to try and frame Biden as a failed politician who represents the establishment and is promising a lot of things that he never delivered during the eight years that he was the president. Essentially, what he's trying to say is that you were already in office and you didn't um, achieve any of these things. So he, you know, started this insurgent campaign again and also at the same time managed to come across as following the rules of the debate and um, not being a complete nightmare on a personal level. I think that was all, you know, fairly positive for him. Yeah, I want to continue this question, but I want to remind everybody they're watching the mop up for the debate and the mop up is brought to you by Let's ask immunobiologist Henry Huckamaki to step in here for one quick second. Who is sponsoring this segment of the mop up, Henry? This segment is brought to you by Feldo's, the cereal of dreams. When was the last time you had a cereal that made your heart race? <laughs> now, with Feldo's, you can say tomorrow because it's got 40% more hydroxychloroquine than other leading brands guaranteed to make your heart race. Yeah. Also now comes with a free Scott Atlas decoder ring because if there's anything that you need to decipher what Scott Atlas is telling you, it is a decoder ring. Clearly Donald Trump has already gotten on this bandwagon and you too can get your Scott Atlas decoder ring by buying your box of Feldos, the cereal that is guaranteed to make your heart race. Now back to your regularly scheduled programming. I'm, I'm sorry, I had to do a little business there, Professor Hussein. That is an immunobiologist endorsing my cereal, which, as we all know, cures COVID-19. Thank you. Feldos sold at all your favorite health food stores. Professor Hussein, the pandemic was obviously the first topic i again i thought if you're not really following the news if you're a low information voter i.e a republican i thought trump acquitted himself if you don't know what you're talking about he he kind of did okay didn't he yeah, I think um, his prepared opening statement, he knew he was going to be asked about this. He had a prepared opening statement on it that listed off a lot of um, accomplishments, made a lot of promises, um, you know, and, and uh, if you're not really paying attention to the dangers and like Biden, incapable of really exposing the real fallacies, I think it's possible to give yourself an excuse to say maybe it's not as bad or maybe we're through the worst of it. I, I thought his remark that we can't live all live in a basement like Joe Biden was 
you know, a little bit of an effective barb that there is a privilege that some people, you know, uh, can afford to work from home or stay at home. And um, he's really exploiting the kind of working class anxiety that if you have a job, you need to keep it and you need to keep working. And I didn't think that Biden made the point effectively enough that we should be supporting people with a basic income or with the kind of support that allows them to stay home so that they're not worried about their jobs. He tried to make it, but it wasn't quite as effective. What he did say that was effective, I thought, is that he said he didn't want to tell you about this because he didn't want you to panic, but he panicked. And I thought that really got under Trump's skin, uh, actually. And that's when he started slinging the mud about Wall Street, you know, because he talked about shorting, you know, Wall Street, about Wall Street getting the information ahead of the American people. This so is what Biden to make money. This is what Biden brought up. That's right. This yeah. is what Biden brought up and that he panicked and that he, you know, he but he did tell Wall Street that would have been a great point to keep hammering that he cares about the rich. He doesn't care about you. That was what he did effectively. The one thing he did effectively in the for, in the very first debate, and he didn't really follow up on it. And Trump was really, I think it got under his skin and he immediately started slinging mud about you're corrupt. You, who are you to talk about Wall Street? And I think he did manage to muddy the waters because he was so consistent in bringing up and alluding to three and a half million from Ukraine. You've been getting paid for this or that. And, you know, Biden really all he could say is not true. And I I don't think he looked as strong as 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 he as he could have. Biden compared Trump cozying up to North Korea to uh, the appeasement of the Nazis before World War Two. I thought Trump did a pretty good job by saying there's no war. It does make you wonder how quickly Biden is going to start dropping bombs once he becomes president, if he becomes president, doesn't it? Well, I mean, he's been committed to all of the major U.S. interventions abroad um, since the I don't I don't actually recall his record on Grenada, um, (laughs) but (laughs) post Grenada, I think he's been um, a booster and a cheerleader for muscular U.S. intervention abroad, the first Gulf War, um, all of the post 9-11 interventions, including the Iraq War. So, so yeah, I think that's definitely a problem um, in his record. And Trump did make a big deal about how he inherited a mess on um, North Korea and that there's been no war. Um, Again, if you're not paying attention, you just look at the overall situation. You forget the fact that, well, they've been, uh, you know, North Korea has been able to develop, you know, increasingly uh, uh, long range ballistic uh, uh, warheads to deliver nuclear weapons, uh, you know. And technically speaking, he's wrong when he says there's no war we've been at war with north korea since yeah, the early right. 50s right that's right we know the 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 arm the, well there was no real peace treaty there was a cessation of hostilities but there was no actually negotiated uh peace treaty so we we're technically still at war um but what yeah, about so the environment oh go ahead i'm sorry go ahead no no that's fine yeah what about the, the environment i mean it just felt like biden got cornered in defending fracking this cannot be, well, forget the country and the planet. That that really, that's bad for Biden to have to, couldn't he have punted on fracking? Why does he have to? 
incomprehensible, uh, incomprehensible his political approach on these things because he gets caught defending fracking, but then turns around and says, yeah, we will have to phase out the oil industry. You know, you're getting the worst of both uh, situations uh, there because Trump immediately seized on it and said, well, I hope you're paying attention, Texas and Ohio and Pennsylvania and Oklahoma. He didn't sound consistent and strong on that. So I think you're right that he was maneuvered uh, into it. Although Trump is so absurd, he says things that are so crazy um, that even a low information voter has to question, um, is the Green New Deal plan really about reducing your window size? I mean, you know, uh, fear the Democrats. They want to take away your windows. I mean, this is sort of the kind of message that uh, he was peddling at a certain point. Uh, you also already mentioned uh, what I thought was the most stunning uh, statement he made tonight is that with the possible exception, I mean, you really have to debate this possible exception of Abraham Lincoln. <laughs> He's done more for black Americans. I mean, if you say things like that, I think even low information voters have to say this is a BS artist on some level. Right. Right. I don't understand Biden and Freck. I mean, our Texas supposedly is in play. I would assume fracking's popular in Texas. Pennsylvania, as I understand it, his gambit when it comes to fracking is to win over the voters in Pennsylvania, which he needs. He needs Pennsylvania. But fracking doesn't poll well in Pennsylvania. The people of Pennsylvania see the results of fracking. So the only reason Biden is coming out in favor of fracking is he's in bed with the oil industry. He's getting money, campaign donations from the the oil industry, which begs the question, how dirty is Joe Biden? Because Hunter, you know, there's something there. I know that the national intelligence experts say there's nothing there. It's Russian propaganda. But there is something fishy about the brother Biden, the brother Biden and the son Biden, isn't there? Well, even if there isn't anything illegal, even if there's nothing technically uh, wrong with it, it's just a matter of privilege and connection um, to people in powerful positions in public office that isn't a good look um, if you're trying to run an insurgent campaign against uh, somebody and you can hit them with this kind of a profile, it's negative uh, for you. And I think Biden wasn't able to really shake the sense that um, he's a typical politician and um, it allowed Trump. I mean, it allowed Trump was saying you're making all these millions of, you know, dollars. He's the most corrupt politician we've had probably in the history uh, of this country. And yet he's able to make a credible case, muddy the waters uh, and characterize Biden as a corrupt, typical politician whose family has benefited from uh, Biden being in high public office. That is a loser for Joe Biden, it seems to me. You don't want to be talking about. And I would say in general, Trump being on his 
you know, best behavior still managed, it seemed, to bring Biden into this back and forth and bring him down a little bit to his level. I thought Biden should have tried to ignore Trump as much as possible, just speak, you know, his message to the American people. He's in a commanding position. The only way to undermine yourself is to get caught up in, you know, mud wrestling with with Trump. And I think he did a little too much of that. Okay, we're going to bring in Professor Marianne Cummings in a second. I want to talk about the laptop for a second, if you don't mind, because I always ignore these stories at my own peril. I have not been following Rudy Giuliani. I know this is a lie. I know it's garbage. But this is from the National Review. I pulled this just so we give it a little oxygen. This is from the National Review. Giuliani, Rudy Giuliani, that's the president's lawyer. You can see him in Borat's new movie uh, on Friday. Giuliani provided a trove of documents to the New York Post last week that includes a number of emails between Hunter Biden and Forrest foreign business partners, one email exchange between the younger Biden and representatives of a Chinese energy firm reads, quote, 20 for H and 10 held by H for the big guy. Tony Bubulinski, who is listed as a recipient of the email, told Fox News that the big guy is a reference to Joe Biden, who was slated to receive a 10 percent equity stake in the joint venture. The the New York Post, which will print anything, the, the reporter wouldn't even put his name on it. I mean, this is complete garbage, right? This is just complete manufactured sleaze. As much as we don't like Joe Biden, this laptop, you know, Giuliani should worry about his own, what's on top of his own lap than Biden's laptop. I mean, this is, this is just garbage, isn't it? Oh, it sounds like very poor uh, October surprise material that they're trying to come up with here. Um, you know, uh, who's H? I mean, H, know. it's, you know, in, in Trump world, H is the, you know, Joe Biden's first initial. That's how you spell Joe with an H. I don't know. I don't, I don't know. Yeah, it's like none of it makes very much sense. Um, I doubt it'll work, uh, but that's clearly um, that is a, the, there's nothing there. The strategy is clearly to try and throw as much mud uh, about Biden's corruption, about him being a typical politician um, and hope that this gives a reason for that kind of anti-establishment vote that Trump received in 2016 uh, to still continue thinking of him as the insurgent outsider. Right. Um, and I'm not sure it's going to work, but it was a tactic and they pursued it, I think, a little bit more effectively than they did, you know, at the last debate. Yeah. Going up against the deep, dark state. I have to say, I saw that Showtime special with Jeff Daniels, the, the Comey, the price of loyalty. And it ends with Comey standing outside the FBI with his wife and the swelling music. And we're supposed to get emotional about these sacred institutions like the FBI. It, you know, I, I it's just propaganda for the administrative state. And, uh, you know, there, there was a little part of me that said, good for Trump. 
you know, he's horrible. He's a Nazi. He's a fascist. But at least he was willing to take on the FBI and the, the CIA. I mean, this was that Comey show on Showtime was a hagiography for the institution of the FBI, which has destroyed so many lives. I mean, the FBI. Anyway. Oh, they're just a lovable, you know, yeah. uh, wing law enforcement, uh, fuzzy, furry friends. Uh, yeah. yeah, no, I mean, this is this is sort of silliness. And I felt that was another mistake of the VP debate as well. Emphasizing the national security apparatus, supporting the Democratic presidential ticket, including Republicans. This is not inspiring no. at all that five CIA chiefs are supporting Biden. I mean, that should be a reason to be extremely afraid. Yes. <laughs> you know, yeah. Right. By the way, beware of American heroes like Deep Throat, Mark Felt, who was Deep Throat, one of the worst players in American history. He uh, he was he was pardoned for breaking into people's homes and illegally getting evidence. That's Mark Felt, the big hero from Woodward and Bernstein, Deep Throat. He he started leaking because he got passed over. He didn't get to run the FBI. He had sour grapes after J. Edgar Hoover died. And so he started leaking to Woodward. This guy was breaking into people's homes and gathering information without a warrant, and he had to be pardoned for it. Beware of American heroes. Joining us now, if you can stick around, Professor Hussein, let's go to Marianne Cummings, Professor Marianne Cummings. She is the Parks Commissioner in Aurora, Illinois, not Aurora, Colorado. I want to be very careful here because Professor Harvey J.K. is here, and we will not, I'm being serious, we will not discuss not voting for Joe Biden because out of, but, uh, you're talking about, I'm not voting for Biden after what I just saw. Oh boy. Okay. Hang on for one second. Uh, but so let's tiptoe around this, uh, out of respect for professor Harvey JK, you are not a Biden supporter. Uh, did anything happen tonight that moved you? Oh, are you asking me or Harvey? I'm asking you. But just okay. remember, Professor Harvey yeah. J.K. is listening. Uh, and, no, and we don't want to, We yes. don't want to get him angry. Harvey's delicate sensibilities at all times. Yes. OK. OK. Well, um, I was a little disappointed. I didn't catch the one time she used the mic cut off. Somebody said she used it once. So very disappointing that uh, people weren't cut off. And yes, Trump is on his best behavior. Trump is a showman. I mean, this is all kind of what was frustrating to me was that I found myself going, yeah, you could like punch him right now. And I can't stand Biden, but he can't. He's got some memorized things. He's like that. He's been spending all week being drilled on and drilled on. He wanted, you know, he did a little pivot. You know, I'm sure that was a rehearsed line, but that was the most effective line. His, his pivot away from uh, talking about his son and his brother to, you know, your family. Um, the, uh, yeah, and, and by the way, you know, the, the problem with Biden, and I think the problem was, is that he couldn't punch him 
where it would really hurt because he's uh, he cannot hit he cannot use the arsenal that would get get him like 60 percent of the vote and that's you know medicare for all in the middle of a pandemic a green new deal when the, when the planet is melting down and so he's easily just kind of pushed into these corners defending fracking because in fact his bill it's worse than just not adequate i mean we know who's on his uh, his, uh, his transition team we have read some of the plans his bill when he says uh, when he says a a zero carbon emissions net emissions by 2035 now that was his big hand what he is relying on is technology that isn't even proven yet not to mention you know forget about being scaled up his carbon capture and sequestration and enhanced oil recovery is part of his energy plan and they are relying on something called NETs when you see that they're negative emissions technologies. In other words, technologies, again, not developed yet. To capture the methane the, that comes out or the that leaks. Or the carbon in the air and sequester them. Right. So what he has, his plan calls for up to 100 years more, uh, more carbon extraction from the ground. And the third problem, so there's, 100 years of carbon, we are still bringing up carbon from the ground. And I would suspect that there's more of the EOR, the enhanced oil recovery, than the CCS, carbon capture and sequestration. That's part of the use it uh, legislation that was uh, promoted two years ago. I think it was passed in the Senate. The House hasn't touched it. But, you know, this is basically a fossil fuel green plan and all of the people on his transition team involved with energy are part i have bought into this and the third part of this so you know carbon out of the ground reliance on technologies that don't exist yet and the primacy of it has to be a market-based solution again if you that's how we defeated hitler the whole planet we've got 10 years and counting and less it's not a marketplace, you know, this is, marketplace was 50 years ago, if you wanted to do that kind of stuff. Now it's a World War II scale mobilization that has right. to take place. And if we do follow with that, it will, you know, the other countries will follow us. It's not the damn Paris Accord or Climate Accords. All of these things are just paper. They're not real plans and real mobilization. So, um you know, I and unfortunately, in this venue, when we're just talking, oh, is Biden melting down? Is Trump melting down? Is Biden? Does Biden remember his own name? You know, it's, it's like God. The, the consideration. This could have been a real debate, and it, but it can't be a real debate because of the two principles involved. And sure. as far as Trump, you know, Trump has been making overtures to the black community. I just keep remembering why that people they blamed African Americans in Wayne County and Detroit and Milwaukee County and Milwaukee for not showing up. And the New York Times, actually one of the few times they actually sent reporters out to report. And they asked people who had voted twice for Obama, black people in Milwaukee who had voted twice for Obama but didn't vote for for uh, Hillary and they all said variation of the same thing. Nothing got better for us. 
and yeah, all they got worse. The and so when Trump comes along and says, what do you have to lose? And he did make small step, the, the quote, first step legislation he signed that freed a lot of people from prison. And, you know, it was a mild kind of gesture, but it was a gesture. And so he's able to do some nominal thing like that and put it to Joe Biden said, you guys had power for eight years. You know, why didn't you do this? I mean, that's where it landed legitimately. And there, the, the, the Trump campaign is making old, fa- I mean, they, they've gotten millions of people, they got knocked on millions of doors. They're doing old fashioned campaigning. The Trump campaign is? Trump campaigning, yes. Really? That's it, yeah. So, you know, that's, so I guess my problem, the tragedy is this guy is so beatable. This guy is so beatable. And, and Biden is just hamstring from throwing his biggest punches. Even on Trump's massive corruption, they can't do that. You know, they can't come out, they can't go after his Deutsche Bank accounts because you start pulling on these strings, you start bringing the whole system down. So the, they're relying on this Russiagate and even the silly, you know, email which, uh, story, which, by the way, you know, that was a small story. The, the emails are probably real, but they didn't reveal anything. If that was the October surprise, you know, nobody, no, no one is going to be persuaded from their position on that. But what made this story bigger than it should have been was the fact that suddenly Twitter isn't allowing people they weren't allowing people to right. repost. I went, wait a minute. You know, you reposted the BuzzFeed article on, you know, the the uh, Steele dossier, and that's turned out to be total bull crap, and that was reposted all over the place. Um, you know, you're... <laughs> When did you, when do these big platforms decide to be the arbiters of what news we can read and what news we can't? And that's what got serious journalists into like commenting about it, like Glenn, Glenn Greenwald did and Matt Taibbi did. He said, wait a minute, you know, there's a ton of, I mean, there's just a billion nonsense stories. They, some of them might have a grain of truth, but the idea that you're not going to let this story even be published that's what made this story gave it gave it much more legs and several more news cycles than it otherwise would have had. So, are you afraid? Tonight's debate. Um, it was. I, I think it went to Trump only because Trump was so boorish over the top in the last debate. Things go to the winner when something good, unexpected happens. I mean, let's let's just set aside that the bar for both sides is just so low; it's it should be an embarrassment. I mean, we should be sad. Anyone voting for either one of these people should be incredibly sad and depressed about this. But Trump surprised somewhat because he was able to restrain himself. I thought, and Biden recited the talking points that nobody was surprised about. I thought Trump and Biden looked presidential, which speaks volumes to what lousy presidents we've had. <laughs> oh, what well, we have allowed ourselves to accept. We've been beaten to crap. And this is what we're told. We have to accept. Right. Let's go now to Wisconsin, where Professor Harvey J.K., author of FDR on democracy, is standing by. Joe Biden tonight. I have to assume... Now, this is not a joke. You're in Wisconsin. It's a swing state. 
The spike in COVID is off the charts. You are in the thick of it. But I have to assume that you were appalled that Biden pulled nothing out of his hat when it comes to health care. That you're living in Wisconsin. He had the audacity to appropriate the line universal health care is a human right. But he was really saying access to affordable health insurance is a human right. That I, I thought, boy, I hope <laughs> Professor K already voted because I, I did. OK, I, how I appalled were you by that? Well, I, OK, it, starting there. Yeah, I, I thought to myself, I actually tweeted, I believe the Americans have wanted universal health care since 1943. I don't think a single year has passed since 43 in which less than at least a basic majority of Americans have wanted universal health care. OK, and I was really surprised. And I actually did hope, although I, you know, I had pretty much given up on a lot of things in terms of Biden surprising anyone. I think he's pretty much convinced his team is convinced. Just stay the course. Trump is going to is going to die along the way. Uh, politically. Um, so, yeah, I mean, I, I, I was I really outraged and pissed off. No, I just thought uh, it's just, it's more of the same. And as you know, I, I I support Biden only as a consequence of my utter disgust and opposition to the Republicans and their president, Donald Trump. That's that's all it means. Now, I want to start off by saying that I agree with Marianne on everything until she said that, that Trump probably won. Trump lost last time so effectively, so effectively that there was no redemption for the man. And if you looked and by the way, standing still, he looks like he's doing a hell of a job with his hands. And I rarely pick on people for physical things, but his gesticulations were absolutely disgusting. OK, I mean, he reminded I think he was reminding people that moment of how he lied four years ago and he's lied ever since. In other words, he was the same candidate he has always been. He lied about the fact they have a health care plan ready to go. I mean, he lied about just about everything. And I actually don't think, look, the people who are going to vote for him are going to vote for him. Did he sway other people to vote for him? I doubt very much he swayed anybody else to vote for him. I also doubt very much that Biden will have persuaded anyone who was rather lethargic to turn out, especially in light of, of the COVID. But I think it's, I, I think, look, the th three possibilities. One possibility is it's literally, you know, a grand slam for Biden this time around. And the Democrats actually take back the Senate, even if they don't get a filibuster proof. OK, the second possibility is it's a very close election. And that is a worrisome thing. I mean, a Biden victory, but a close election. And Trump just you, you could see that he was ready to gesticulate all the way into to 2021. And then but or or in fact, by some bizarre, you know, something really bizarre, uh, Trump actually wins because of voter suppression that's taking place. There is not, look, he lost last time by 3 million votes. He's not going to, Biden is not going to lose those 3 million votes over Trump. The only question would be whether or not in Pennsylvania, Michigan, and Wisconsin, 
Trump is able to hold on to his his vote. And, and remember how close they were. They were what? 22,000, I think, in Wisconsin. Am I wrong? Maybe Something like that. 40,000 yeah. in Michigan with a much larger population. Um, and, and Pennsylvania, I forgot. Was that 20,000 as well? I'm, I'm forgetting. Something I mean, like that. It was like. Something like that. Yeah. It, it's very. Un- Look, I mean, it's likely that Biden's going to win. Am I excited at that? I'm not excited at, at Biden winning. I'm excited at getting rid of Trump. And I'm hoping, I really am hoping that there are enough victories in the House that possibly we can get rid of Nancy Pelosi as the majority, you know, majority, what they call Speaker of the House, and she'll be gone. Okay. And that basically, the big question that came out, of, out today for me politically um, is the fact that Politico reported that, that Bernie is sort of negotiating or looking to become Secretary of Labor. And I have mixed feelings about that. We don't need to get into that. Well, But I, but I, but I can tell you that, that he was interviewed this week by Crystal Ball, whose recent interviews I've not cared for very much, and I am a friend of hers. Um, but it is the case that she really did a good job uh, – that's that's the, the story, right? Yeah. But she really did a good job with uh, with Bernie and the and and I was right. Bernie had, as I reported a couple of times, made it clear that not only is he in favor of reducing the Medicare age to fifty five, which is fine, but he's going to push for Medicare for all kids, which I've been pushing for for a long time. So why couldn't uh, Biden so say that tonight? What's that? Why couldn't well, that- Biden? That's right, David. You bet. I mean, how many? I mean, for a year, who's going to who's going to say I'm not voting for Joe Biden because exactly. no, he wants absolutely. to give Medicare? Have, there is no. I can't. Right, we're on YouTube. There's no fucking defense. Okay, no fucking defense of Biden's inadequacies. None. Absolutely none. Except, but I don't understand. I'm being serious. I, I, I want right. Medicare I for politically. Why would either. you not do that? I, I don't understand it either. And I don't understand why why Biden couldn't bring himself to just turn to Trump and say, if if you think you think that protecting the health care or providing the health care for kids is going to subvert the United States. <laughs> I mean, give me a break. It's unbelievable. It is absolutely unbelievable. You bet. It's almost enough. I won't say it because you're in Wisconsin. I want to ask you, I want to stay on Wisconsin and the COVID situation. And there was one other thing before we hold on to your thought, because okay. we can hold on to your thoughts more effectively, perhaps. Um, well, they're smaller than yours. Okay. Well, I, I, they're fewer. I, I, I there was this talk. I think it came up even in this little conversation. This talk about Trump's appeals to African Americans. Look, African Americans are no are no smarter or dumber than Jews or anybody else. You know, just to put it in my own terms. And then when they heard, when they heard, <laughs> when they heard Trump compare himself to Abraham Lincoln, come on. I mean, give me a I, that he just lost additional votes. I just hope it meant that more of them went to the kitchen table and finished off their mail in ballots and sent them off. Well, you, you know, look, Lincoln, Lincoln freed the slaves, outrageous figure. And if he's president again, we are all fucked. That's all. OK, we're right. all fucked. And I don't mean like four more years. We're fucked beyond fucked this time. <laughs> OK. Uh you're in Wisconsin, which is right. pretty effed. And this is a yeah. story that The Atlantic has. Uh, everybody should read The Atlantic. 
this, let me read this to you. The United States is sleepwalking into what could become the largest coronavirus outbreak of the pandemic so far. In the past week alone, as voters prepare to go to the ballot box, about one in every 1,000 Americans has tested positive for the virus. Are you reading this? And about yeah, two in every 100,000 Americans have died from it. Today, today, the United States reported 73,103 new cases for the third highest single day total since the pandemic began Do you think tonight Joe Biden presented a plan other than walking on stage wearing a mask? Is that the only difference? What is he what did he say to the American people about covid? Because we are about to start winter and people are going inside and it's about to get even worse. Okay, one thing to remember is that I've already said I think he's an utterly inadequate figure. Should have been Bernie Sanders. Every time I hear Bernie Sanders speak, I, I die another time that he's not our candidate. Let's get that clear, okay? But, I mean, but it is also true that all Biden has to do on that is talk reasonably and with a sense of real concern and basically portray Donald Trump as somebody could give a shit if the person who lies next to you in bed is no longer there. Right. Okay, lays next to you, lies next to you, whatever the proper English is. The point is, the point is that all he had to do tonight, Biden, was make it through without a major gaffe. His only major gaffe, which no, not even Trump bothered with, it was he called he called the the proud boys, the proud boys, the po boys, like their sandwiches in in, <laughs> in New Orleans. Okay, <laughs> and I thought, oh God, is he gonna? Is he because if if he goes after him for saying that, which would have been natural for him at least last time then then i think biden might have start started tripping up on even more things and that's the one i heard but but seriously i mean do i think he i don't think biden impressed anyone with anything other than the fact he is clearly more knowledgeable more sensible more more if you like sympathetic a person than than the than the so-called man standing next to him across, you know, on, the, on that six feet distance or eight feet distance on the stage. The, the, tonight will not affect the outcome of the election, period. It's already determined. I'm not telling you the polls are giving us the story. I'm telling you it's already over. But it could have been more effectively over if Biden had said Medicare for all kids. And and by the way, and by the way, one other thing, one other thing, I I was a little surprised by his by him going by his going after oil, as he did his willingness to to defend fracking and go after oil drilling. I mean, by the way, if he had if he had a halfway decent president, he might well have made more of the contradiction as opposed to the, oh, we're going to have a depression and all that kind of stuff. OK, I mean, we're already in a fucking depression. We're like this close. So, I mean, you know, were you stunned by Trump's equanimity? Would you tell me what equanimity means? I don't know. I was just trying to impress you. <laughs> I was hoping. No, seriously, I, I, I'm not kidding. The, the, I, I the, his presence of mind that, again, he's Satan. 
But this is a guy who supposedly has just come off the sick bed. And didn't he play the role? Wasn't he almost Reagan-esque in terms of playing oh, the God, role no, of the absolutely president? Absolutely not. Oh, okay, no. good, good. No, no, seriously, I never, I, I have never gone on record as picking on somebody's physical appearance. But tonight I found his hand motions to be so alienating combined with his pseudo concerned voice. I mean, there's no way people were fooled by any of that. Come on. I, I can't. They just weren't. And by you, the way, if I'm wrong, I don't give a shit. Right. But I, I did understand a bit of his his charm. I think he's I've known of Trump since charm? Know, the late. Se- did you like the, when he called your city my city? How'd you like that one? My city. He called I, New York his city. He, by the way, he did move and and change his registration. <laughs> you know, now he so, you know, he's finished. He's he's finished. Is Biden he may be finished, too, very soon, but, is, but for, in different ways. Is he finished? Is he going to go gently into the night on November 3rd? What do you predict? Yeah, that I can't predict that. I can't. But he's not doing himself any good by threatening the likes of Christopher Ray and uh, and, his, and his attorney general Barr. Right. Yeah. Interesting. Very interesting. Yeah, what, really to- what was there anything he said tonight? Was there anything Trump said where you thought not bad? Nothing. <laughs> Why do you hate America? There was nothing you liked about our commander in chief. Nothing. Well, it was very sweet of him to tell the moderator she was doing a good job. When, but, but she for him, she was she, she should have cut him off at least half a dozen times. Okay. Seriously, he was not obeying the rules. Just cut him off. Just stop him. Period. OK, let's go to California. And Emil Guillermo is standing by. He is a journalist. He writes a weekly column for ALDEF, the Asian American Legal Defense and Education Fund. And he is the host of the PETA podcast, People for the Ethical Treatment of Animals. And he is a world class vegan. You are a David, master vegan. David, I will say this. On, as far as the vegan vote goes, I think Trump, in the sideways view, lost the vegan vote. It's clear. He, uh, his corpulence spoke for itself. Too many I, Trump uh, stakes, you're saying? Too many. I, I, you know, I just, uh, you know, I am surprised by your. Well, not. I guess I'm not really surprised. Very. I do not think Trump won. I voted already. I voted in California. I voted early. Uh, because I was afraid that someone, something might happen to my, ma- I'm a permanent mail-in voter. I said, I'm going to, I'm going to drive down to the county registrar. I'm going to put my ballot in. I'm going to put on my mask. I'm going to do the patriotic thing. Nothing tonight would make me want to break into the county registrar's office and change my vote. I would right. not, I would not do that. I'm not, I was hoping, I was watching tonight's debate for entertainment purposes only. I really was. I was Come on, I don't know anything about the last four years. I'm going to try to repress what I know about the last four years. I'm going to try uh, to repress all the things I've learned from uh, listening to Rage on Audible to put me to sleep at night. You know, Bob Woodward's book, I was on the uh, maddest chapters last night, straight to sleep. I, you know, the, also the, uh, the well, I, I, I was just trying to look at it very objectively. And if you just watch the debate with the sound down, 
how can you like Donald Trump, even from the corpulent side view, just looking at his face? The You know, he's Harry Hubris waiting for to take his fall. You know, he is just looking at uh, he cannot just sort of you were hinting at he was kind of presidential. Uh, maybe he had the equanimity after, you know, suffering from COVID. What does equanimity mean, please? What does that mean? I think it don't has use to words unless you know <laughs> I was borrowing from you. Oh, okay. Well, I'm a fraud. It has to do with this a sort of equilibrium in uh-huh. your your sensibility and your facade. I look. The the thing is, Trump uh, did not impress with the sound down. I just want to confirm to you, like if I was a deaf mute watching this, I would do, would not be impressed by by Donald Trump. But you do realize that people watched Reagan debate and saw yeah. something. That wasn't well, there. Yeah, but, but people but, saw Reagan, things in George W. Bush that wasn't there. Yeah, so, yeah, but, but Reagan wouldn't have, you know, that scowl, that that Trump frown. He is not a good man. If the <laughs> debate, if this was the first debate, mm-hmm. what would the poll numbers be? Oh, you know, they'd be. I he'd be doing better. It would be tighter. He'd correct. Be doing better because because he wasn't this. Uh, he wasn't this thug talking over Biden. And I think this is the hallmark of this this debate. The moderator. I know a lot of people. Have she said, was good. Yeah, Kristen Welker was very good. She didn't. She she didn't. I don't think she got run over a couple of times. Maybe she could have been more forceful about Trump talking over because there was some talk over in some parts. But I think for the most part, this was a well muted debate, <laughs> a well muted debate, and that's what you need. It needed, it needed that touch of Zoom, you know, where right. you know you can mute people at will and. I thought uh, when Trump was talking, you could see his lips flap and you didn't hear anything. Right. That's when I know well, we got a good thing here. And and we got what if you ever deb- if you ever judged a high school debate, the number one thing you look at is you look for clash because you want to see clash in debate. You know, the cross swords, you know, here they're going at it and they're not, you know, and I thought there was some clash here. You know, on the coronavirus, but but now what people are getting into here and this panel is saying, show me the plan. Trump has no plan. Where's your plan, Biden? Tell me about uh, Medicare, you know, Medicare for kids. Tell me you don't do that in a in a debate that where you have two minutes to go over policy. You, you get over you, you try to score on these other ways like, you know, clashing, putting the putting away the other person's argument, maybe advancing a, a smidgen. I know we want more, but this is a 90 minute debate. And, you know, the amount, if you ever seen a bill pass through Congress and all the crap they put in the bills that no one talks about that, oh, I didn't know this was the bill. Oh, oh, that was in that omnibus bill. Look, you're not going to get policy talk, but we did get a few chunks, right? Just like in the last debate, they talked about the, the crime bill. Uh, Biden said the, the the same thing that he said the last time, but I don't think Trump was effective when Biden was able to point out, hey, what about your your, your views on the Central Park Five? Right. What about your views subsequent subsequent to the crime bill? You know, putting everyone away. You know, so that's a bad issue for Trump. Where I thought Trump kind of could run with something was on that oil. You know, you're going to put the oil companies out of business. You're going to close them down. And you know, the fracking thing of Biden's. I I just think that. 
you know, Biden didn't have to go there. He didn't have to go to, oh, I'll, I'll close down the oil companies. But he did it. On, that was his one principled stand. Hey, we got to reduce these emissions. You know, we should like him for saying he's going to close down the oil companies. But, you know, the, the people who are the big business people, you know, they're going to say, eh, you know, I don't know about that. But, you know, look at that closing statement, though. And you can tell where these people are, you know, and and Trump still has no plan. But he says, look, if he gets elected, we're going to go into depression and look at your 401k. That's always that's Trump's appeal. Your 401k is going to go to hell. His words. And Biden, Biden, to his credit, said where I come from, people don't have stocks. Yeah, I, I, they I own I real estate, <laughs> <laughs> private islands where he goes, you know, with the split screen. It works. Th- it does work. I, but I think Trump missed a golden opportunity. He should have learned sign language. He could have uh, interrupted I, Biden and people. I think that would have been incredible. At least he should have learned how to say F you in sign oh, language yeah, or the, loser. The lip, the, the lip, uh, what, you know, the lip readers, they would have gotten off on if, 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 no, now if, if Trump had gone if he had done like a funny mocking of of Biden instead of just looking at him sternly or something or like, you know, shaking his head, if he was a little more creative about that, that would have been very funny because I thought the split screen was like, um, you know, I, I, I was sort of like I knew they were going to have plexiglass. Right. So I was imagining like a hockey game mm-hmm. where a team was trying to kill a power play and they were smashing against the plexiglass. And I thought we'd see Trump actually banging the plexiglass. But. No, we didn't. We didn't get that tonight. Well, but, let us uh, now let, let's go to let's go to Los Angeles where Alan Minsky and then we'll go to the Reverend Barry W. Lynn and then we'll fight it out. And 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 you have to unmute yourself, Alan. Alan is the executive director of Progressive Democrats of America. I understand you spent the evening with Daniel Ellsberg. I was just on, I uh, briefly was on, I um, got to introduce Daniel Ellsberg on a, a PDA panel that and, PDA California put together. It was with Representative Ted Lieu as well. Um, and then earlier I was on a, a lead-in for two hours with some students at Pomona Colleges who all did a watch party, and we had a two-hour conversation before that. So it's been, this is me on about five and a half hours of straight engagement. What did Daniel Ellsberg have to say? Before we hear what you have to say, what did Daniel... Actually, I, I, I David, I ran over here after I introduced him. So and, you and chose me over Daniel, us, uh, yeah. over Daniel Ellsberg. Yeah, I consider your, your, your career work to be the equivalent of bringing forward the Pentagon Papers, David. Well, I am leaking, but that's not... <laughs> so, Thanks. all right, hear me out. Um, I've known you, Alan, for 10 years. Okay. Uh, maybe longer than that, David, yeah. Okay. Mm-hmm. Am I the only... I hate Trump. Okay? Jimmy Dore, right? I, he and I don't get along, but I can I'm, watch... I'm, I'm more responsible for Jimmy Dore's ascendancy than for David's okay. if, people want, if people want to throw rotten tomatoes at me for that. Jimmy Dore and I don't get along. I hate John Stewart. He's anti-union. But I can watch The Daily Show when John Stewart is on and go, that son of a bitch is great at what he does. He's just anti-union. Jimmy Dore is, to me, you know, he's used to be my friend. He's not my friend anymore. I watch him and I go, ah, no schadenfreude. He's really great at what he does. Why can't people watch Donald Trump? Explain this to me, Alan Minsky. Can you watch somebody you despise? We, I hate Donald Trump. I wish him 
what the Secret Service wishes him because they're all catching COVID-19. I hate Donald Trump, but I can appreciate his superhuman strength. Why can't anybody say this guy is effing amazing? Why is it that hard to say Satan is strong? I thought he was good tonight. Oh, no. See, I, I think there's two different things there, and you can separate them out. Yeah, Donald Trump has a lot of mojo going in his crazy Donald Trump. Is. I think maybe if people don't want to admit that to themselves, and they're probably lying to themselves. I mean, he's you an know, inspiration to me. He's an inspiration. inspiration. He's an inspiration. Okay, he's he's a dumbass fool who has, like, the, you know, um, emotional maturity level of, it's an insult to infants. <laughs> um, you know, I mean, come on. The guys, the guys... I actually was wanting to jump into the thing about Dora for a second. We can talk about Jimmy Dore another day. Because, uh, you know, Jimmy Dore throws throws a lot of, of bombs, and he's very aggressive, even towards Bernie Sanders, his former hero, and stuff like that. I think it is incumbent upon the political movement that I'm a part of and the PDA is, uh, positions itself and tries to remain central to that we don't alienate people who are very pissed by uh, the fact that, that you know, the, you know, very muscular, aggressive progressivism isn't pushed all the time by everybody. Look, it shouldn't be that shouldn't be an audience that we fully alienate. We have Did you see Jimmy with Tucker Carlson? Yeah, I'm sure that won't make me like Jimmy anymore. But, um, you know, when good. I hear Jimmy, I still hear him at least trying to advocate for bad policies that support the working class. Right. OK. So anyway, let's leave James. All right, enough with Trump, Jimmy. Donald Trump is so what? He's so he's got a, he's, he's a big infant up there, and he treats public policy and real decisions and governance uh, with about the maturity level I just described. Uh, that he can you know puff his chest out and put and, and push his chin out like Mussolini and has a lot of energy and such. No, I just think it's and in, in the cult of personality around his energy and his. Sits people in responding to him like he's powerful. Or the guy who wrote Dilbert last time, remember, he was on the media saying that this guy's going to win because he's the most incredible communicator with his very short sentences and fifth grade vocabulary, and that works for America and it's genius. I never really bought that there was any genius. There's no conscious construction of it. Donald J- Trump just happens to be sort of slotted in at that level of, of I mean, look, he was a complete failure and a con man as a, as a businessman. I mean, he lived his whole career, you know, inside the logic of if any of us own money to a bank, it's our problem. If you have a lot of assets, a huge balance sheet, then it's the bank's problem. Right. And he's a mobster. He's mobbed up. Yeah, my certainly uh, career would seem to be like mob uh, contingent, right? Mob mob affiliate. Um, So how did Biden do tonight? You know, um, and I, and I maybe get what you're saying, that at times you look at Biden. You know, Joe Biden, eight years ago and before, throughout his whole career, you know, was a re- re- relatively fit guy. Obviously, he had a lot of work done, what we call work out here in Los Angeles, right? He has, uh, you know, whatever, his, his teeth are, than they used to be, and so on and so forth, and his hair. Um, but he's um, um, he's not that way anymore. He's not not too vibrant, not too you know, powerful looking or a presence on stage. He's looks like a guy who's, you know, in a, in a phase of physical decline, that's pretty noticeable. And, you know, you go back, if you had a standard candidate and a standard candidate, yeah, the consultants would tell you that the guy who has more physical vibrancy is going to, you know, just sort of, you know, in an unconscious way, appeal to more people as a, as a leader, right? Mm-hmm. There's that. But, uh, I mean, Joe Biden right now, 
I'd even go a little bit further than what Harvey was saying, though all the substance of what Harvey was saying I'd agree with. Um, I think that Joe Biden against Donald Trump, even though, you know, even where he was being more progressive, and actually I want to go to something Harvey said. Um, why is it that nobody says we can have Medicare for kids? Why isn't it that we have a more, why, how can anybody oppose that? And the problem, I think, and this goes towards not just the consultants that Biden is speaking to, but the fact that he does have a huge Wall Street. Call it Medicare for fetuses. The, the thing is, is it breaks with the logic of the that everybody, you know, that's that was a, a major aspect of what Thatcherism, Reaganism through Blairism and Clintonism was all about, was that you didn't turn it, take anything back into the public realm. You turned everything over into private hands. And what I think that the the markets are still going to in the markets. What does that mean? The markets are going to be resistant to um, the, the logic of financialized capital. Capitalism doesn't want to see anything that is placed back into the hands of government. OK. And once you start moving in that direction and it works, that's what financialized capital doesn't ever want to see. And and so that break with neoliberal logic, the idea that we can go away from that, that is an impetus to oppose it for the politics of, you know, the political unconscious of financialized global capitalism or the investor class and hence the donor class. So that's why I don't think he's why. Why doesn't somebody get up there right now? I didn't mean Bernie Sanders would have done this, of course. But, you know, we should be advocating for we're the only country in the world that doesn't have vacation leave. We should have national vacation leave. I think that'd be a popular issue. Neoliberal capitalism wouldn't like that. That's that thing. And I would never expect a neoliberal. I would expect Bernie to endorse that. That might have been given the way that Bernie has a hierarchy of addressing needs might not have been as important to him as a 15 hour, $15 minimum wage, which was great to see Biden advocating for. That is obviously thank you, Bernie Sanders right there. Um, and, and the configuration of the Obamacare structure in a more progressive way. Yeah, that way that that's marginally better. We should thank Sanders again for that as well. Almost everything we see good there for Biden. I think the climate emergency is always a little bit different because there are other forces other than just than Bernie's reintroduction of social democratic politics, democratic socialist politics into American electoral politics. The climate emergency is, has its own other forces that bring it foregrounded. Um, but Joe Biden, and this is the fundamental answer to your question for me, he is representing, and this is where we have an alliance like they failed to have in Germany in the 1930s. We need at this moment to have an alliance between the bourgeoisie, in this case, the neoliberals and the left, us as the progressive left to defeat this psychopathic infant, proto-fascist authoritarian fool. And at an even more fundamental level, Nothing, almost nothing constructive can happen out of governance, governance, except the diminishment of the structures of our of our democratic, Republican constitutional structures. Right they're they're weakening under Trump. But an actual constructive government response. I mean, the, the Congress did pass the first stimulus. It was very friendly to Wall Street. We probably would have gotten the same friendliness to Wall Street out of a neoliberal Democratic administration. Probably I mean, more. it was innovative to come up with the corporate lending window through the Fed. They probably would have been just as innovative because it's a different context than the, than the market crisis at the, in 2008, 2009. But um, the, Trump is 
again, I, and I got, this goes back to me to the idea that the reason we're seeing this authoritarian right wing response around the world gaining traction is when you have this kind of oligarchic structure in society, you cannot allow the maintenance of democracy. So we are supporting Biden right now, I think, at least unconsciously, all of us who are and rooting for his defeat because we know that democracy still the idea it's one person one vote as opposed to the people with the power and the money get to make all the decisions this right-wing authoritarianism is about the takeover of the political systems by the money power people okay that's what you have in eastern europe with the oligarchs basically running society with putin as the front person and you have it with bolsonaro you have that basic alliance in the right-wing european parties and you have it with trump Right. Trump came into power with all sorts of populist bluster. And what did he do? He made sure that he gave out to the oligarchs more power, taking the the amount of power and money power controlled by the one percent, making it even greater and concentrated. And we have to stop that, get this guy out of power, put in somebody who at least has a responsible relationship and rational relationship to public policy issues. That's what I think we see with Joe Biden. So. Yeah, Trump has more energy on stage. You know, I, I, I don't give that any, that, that's nothing to me. If, if anybody is constructing a narrative out of tonight's performance that this is going to revive uh, Donald Trump's um, uh, electoral prospects, I'd be surprised. Right, I'm not I'm saying that. About, I'm a little bit, little bit worried about the oil thing in Texas. And right, Pennsylvania. yeah. That's the only worry I have out of it. Right. Let's thank you. Please stick around. Before I bring in the Reverend Barry W. Lynn, uh, I want to tell everybody that besides being the executive director of Progressive Democrats of America, Alan is also the executive producer of the Ralph Nader Radio Hour. And this week on the Ralph Nader Radio Hour, Ralph said, why can't the Democrats do something as simple as say, vote yourself a raise, vote yourself a vacation, that it's that simple for, for Joe Biden to say, this is what's in it for you. If you vote for me, you get a raise. If you vote for me, you get a vacation, a paid vacation. They can't even bring themselves to go against their neoliberal paymasters. It, it, it's a lie, at least. I mean, you know, Biden, I'm hoping Biden is lying about fracking and health insurance. I'm saying, please get elected and, and I just be, lie to me. I hope you're lying to me about this, but he's not, unfortunately. Before I bring in the Reverend Barry W. Lynn, I want our chat room to know that I threw the animal out of the chat room. I apologize. And uh, he's gone and hopefully he's never coming back. That's we tried to back. He's back. I think somebody using the same name, Lucas Trump, is back in the chat. He is back. Okay, let me pause for a second and think. How do I keep? Oh, you know what? Uh, Okay, Lucas Trump. Uh, Let me. uh, Okay, he's getting attention, but it. um, Uh. I have to figure out, well, why don't we do this? Let me bring in the Reverend Barry W. Lynn and Dan will remove Lucas Trump. And the what I've 
you were on earlier, the Reverend Barry W. Lynn, and then we'll take some questions from the audience. What did you see tonight? Yeah, well, one thing I saw was um, that there are a lot of people saying, um, you know, Trump didn't do as badly as he did in the first debate, which is certainly true. But it's a little bit like, you know, I'm a big movie fan. It's like saying, you know, Critters 2 was a lot better when you think about it than Critters 4. Mm-hmm. In other words, it, it was. Well, all, it was a great movie. One. Yes. What about Critters 3? Now, but here's the other thing. All Joe Biden needed to do tonight was not collapse. And I would be very surprised if the numbers of people watching at the end of this debate were even close to the numbers of people watching even the vice presidential debate. Because I think by the the end, by the thing that you're talking about, the, the fracking comments, the oil company comments, people like us worry about that stuff. But I don't think the average person, even in Pennsylvania, as you noted, fracking is not a big deal. People are not dying to have fracking. They're dying from fracking. They're dying from fracking. And just like people in West Virginia, they've seen it up and close and they don't like it. But I don't think that anybody's going to vote on the basis of fracking. As far as the oil company stuff, I, I was frankly, I was starting to fall asleep by the end of this debate. And I think a lot of people were doing that. I don't understand why Joe Biden didn't do more with two issues. Number one, although he he hinted at the reason that he didn't get much done, he and Obama, was had something to do with the Congress. But he should have remembered that line from Mitch McConnell when McConnell said his principal purpose as the uh, leader of the Republicans in the Senate was to prevent Barack Obama from getting anything done. And that's the answer to why there was no immigration reform, why there was no criminal justice reform, because of one person's icy control over the Republican Party in the Senate. And I think he should have made a little more in talking about the crime bill. I mean, I don't know. Obviously, uh, I mean, I, I was floating around Congress and worried about the crime bill for many, many decades. But I will say that he said, yeah, I made, a, I made some mistakes, but he never really took on the Central Park Five. He never said, I mean, he, he hinted at it. He said, well, and this guy, you know, wanted to lock them up and then execute them. More should have been made of that because Donald Trump took out full page ads in New York newspapers during the Central Park Five and basically said they are obviously guilty. They should be executed. And I think that if Biden had made those two points and made them stronger, uh, we'd have seen a, a better outcome for for Biden. I mean, it would have been, as someone pointed out, this is what good debate. I mean, <laughs> presidential debates are not to be mistaken for good debates ever, but at least they would have joined a couple of the issues in the same way that Biden did join some issues on COVID-19. I mean, there's so much, so many lies that, that Trump was talking about. And when Biden said um, something like, uh, we don't have to learn to live with this. It's a good, he said, if the best thing that this man can say is that the death rate is only 200,000, he doesn't deserve another term in office. And he doesn't. And this nonsense about 
the the presence of vaccines in a matter of weeks to be sent out by the military to just going to come they're going to come to all of your houses confiscate your guns no but give you a vaccine that's been untested and we know how much trump supporters love vaccines (laughs) they love vaccines they don't they're the pro-vaxxers of course they're the not the pro-vaxxers of course um but i do think i just think we overthink this, as I said to you earlier, when I was on earlier, this is a not a very revolutionary country. I mean, this just isn't. And much as I can blame the Democratic establishment for helping to support Biden and destroying Bernie, um, people were not warming up to Bernie either. I mean, he's he's hardly a revolutionary, but people were just kind of nervous about it. I didn't quite understand him. And I, I, to this day, think he would not have been doing any better in the polls than Joe Biden is, because we're just not the left country that almost everybody in this Zoom chat want it to be. We're not there. So we've got to be willing to deal with some kind of That's really interesting. Yeah. The Reverend Barry W. Lynn. Yep from Americans United for Separation of Church and State is saying something that at some that I've wrestled with. I'd like to get Professor Harvey J.K. to respond to this. Because, you know, do we have to wake up one morning and realize who we're married to? You know, I love America. Who am I married to? Is it possible that she is not as liberal, not as to the left, or he is not as liberal and to the left as I projected onto her or him? I'd like to hear Harvey's comment. This is a little, you know, Jack London was more than just a novelist. He was a socialist and a good organizer in San Francisco. And he used to grow, get so enormous crowds would come to hear him speak and he said if i'm so popular i think i'm going to run for mayor and he was slaughtered in that mayor well that's why people that's why he drew the big crowds i'm being serious because it was the only way to see him (laughs) what's the only way to see well no i mean you can draw big crowds by not being as pop i mean that's people are very protective of you if you're not if you if you speak the truth but aren't succeeding Professor Harvey J.K. <laughs> and remember, he's a reverend. <laughs> I've gotten over it. I mean, I'm, I've, I've heard. I mean, look, the guy you just threw off, you know, it was so shocking. I almost fainted here. Uh, Sorry about that. Go ahead, Harvey. Okay. I, I, look, I, I mean, I'll say it again. 45 years. Look, it's been a 45-year-long class war in which the Democrats turned their back on American working people. They didn't do anything about truly fighting the the war against the right, the the voting rights of Americans, the the rights of women to control their own bodies. And, um, you know, the the capacity of working people to determine their own lives by, you know, organizing together and creating labor unions and pursuing collective bargain. They just didn't. I mean, the Democrats have been a disaster for 45 years. Okay, and tonight's debate and Biden's performance is a reflection of that. By the way, his performance, if we're going to judge, if Biden was just up there acting, it would have been a terrible performance. Sure. 
Okay, but the fact is, he was he 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 had already won because of the last time around that he came across as a reasonable man, and he was a reasonable man tonight. Okay, so but to come back to the question of have I misjudged my fellow citizens? I mean, years after years passed in which working Americans out here in the upper Midwest and elsewhere saw the Democrats as awful, as abysmal, as literally, as literally screwing them. Okay. I mean, look, you could look at, look, most people don't look at inequality tables and all that kind of stuff, but they experience it. And they know that they didn't, in fact, in some cases, they did worse under the Democrats than they did under Republicans. Okay. Because neoliberal, whether you were neoliberal or conservative these past 45 years, your first priority was to grow the corporate economy, which meant you were going to literally enable the corporate world to take the wealth generated by working people and put it in their own pockets, their own bank accounts. I mean, it's what's happened. So, well, there really was no, there was no reaching into what was at times evidence that Americans wanted things to be different. And, I, and I've written about this so many times that when I say it, I feel like I'm telling people what they, they've already heard me say. But the best evidence of what I'm referring to is back in the 1990s, there began two real popular cultural phenomena. phenomena. One was the founding father stuff, and people really responded to it. And why do they respond to it? Not because of the way in which commerce fooled them into responding to it, but because the founding fathers, Americans knew that the founding fathers had envisioned something utterly different than what these folks were doing. Okay, so it was a way of expressing that kind of frustration. And moreover, since, you know, the greatest generation, excuse the expression, the greatest generation, but the generation had literally confronted and fought the Great Depression. And or, I mean, I can go through a whole litany of things that were accomplished during the 1930s and all of those democratic achievements. And then add to that what transpired in the 60s. All of those democratic achievements were under assault by the very same people who were celebrating the greatest generation. So what were they? What was the alternative? Well, they actually indicated some degree of a desire to make to bring about change. They voted for a black man who said, yes, we can. They did. If you had told me that somebody was going to the majority of American voters were going to vote for a black man at any given time within my, you know, it, it wouldn't have occurred to me. OK, especially and especially not not given the places in which those that occurred, in fact, similarly. They voted for three million more voters voted for Hillary Clinton. OK, and that took a lot for me to vote for Hillary Clinton, but they voted for Hillary Clinton. And we've seen four years now, four years of Republican and Trump administration and governance that nobody that the majority of Americans rejected. And what have the Democrats done? They pursued a half assed impeachment process. OK, they had the audacity to respond to Black Lives Matter by donning so-called African attire and and performing like they were like they were black football players on on a uh, you know on the stadium field, and then today had the audacity after doing absolutely nothing to halt or slow down the appointment of an utter reactionary in to the Supreme Court. What do they do? They 
boycotted the, the vote. Well, I can tell you, I despise the Democrats more than I despise the Republicans because the Republicans never surprise me. And right. the Democrats over yeah. and over again attest to their own willingness to be Republicans. Okay, so why would Americans? Well, I don't that Americans even bother <laughs> vote for Democrats amazes me. <laughs> Why do you think, Harvey, that today uh, they went through this stunt, they put up the pictures on, on their chairs and they, they decided yeah. that they could actually make some procedural point, which is true. You have to have two members of the Judiciary Committee minority in order to conduct business. But we also knew Lindsey Graham was never going to do that. But why is there no one, not a single Democrat, not Elizabeth Warren, not a Bernie Sanders, who I've already said, instead of going out and doing a press conference, we're going to use every single procedural power that we have to gum up the works of the United States Senate as long as we can. And you know what? Mitch McConnell, just like Lindsey Graham, doesn't give a shit about the procedure. He wants to use a raw power to win. But I'd like to see one Democrat, one, stand up and say, I am not going to let this go unchallenged. And if Mitch McConnell wants to say, I'm not going to recognize you. I'm never going to call for a quorum call. I'm never going to uh, care what you think about unanimous consent. You're just trying to gum up the work. So be it. One, one Democrat. Yeah. I wouldn't give 10 cents the next election cycle to any Democrat who doesn't make an effort to stop this woman who is completely unqualified, an ideologue of the worst kind and not even a good one. And a person with the severe character flaws that Amy Coney Barrett has already demonstrated. Not a one, not a penny. Right. And that's not even to mention Diane Feinstein's oh, kissing of Lindsey Graham. Of course. Without a mask. Without yeah. a mask. Right. Yeah. Who does Terrible. she think she is? Leslie Stahl? <laughs> Did you see Leslie Stahl without a mask on? By the way, this oh, yeah. is Mitch McConnell. They say he's. Uh, can you see that? Yeah, we can see it. He's got they're saying he has he's on blood thinners and may have covid or something he does not look well uh that's in the news tonight no, he, yeah um i i don't know i can't diagnose anybody long distance <laughs> and i'm not a doctor hey, Bar- hey barry can i ask you a question sure you wouldn't give any money to a democrat who would muck up the works and throw a monkey wrench uh, but you know you've covered congress you've been in congress you know how it works when the shoe was on the other foot Boy, the Republicans were obstructionists. The Republicans messed with folks. Why is it when the shoe's on the other foot? Uh, the Democrats sort of go along with the Republicans. They block up things. Yep. And and suddenly we're so we're supposed to be surprised when 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 Lindsey Graham goes against his word or when you know Mitch McConnell. You know, uh, say something that like Wait. he's not going to go. Wait, Barry and I are no. going to give to the Republicans because they're mucking things up. No, no, no. We're not. Yeah, I'm not giving money to Democrats who won't muck it up. In case it was maybe it wasn't clear. But no, I uh, I don't give. I will not give money to any incumbent senator who does not try. Try even knowing that she or he is very likely to be crushed 
It's all on C-SPAN. I think people should watch C-SPAN more often. And here's why. Because they'd see how little work is actually being done by the United States Senate. They, they show the entire Senate chamber, three people there, three people there. Mandatory quorum. There should be a mandatory, Man- mandatory yeah, quorum. Well, they, the reason there isn't, the Constitution says there has to be a quorum in the Senate, but the reason there isn't is because nobody challenges the absence of a quorum. And, uh, you know, when, when there were actually Republicans who were more progressive than a lot of Democrats, they used to do these things, I mean, 20 years ago. And uh, I, I used to work with them on that because you really can gum up the works. And when Chuck Schumer says, or, or it's worse, uh, Dick Durbin said a couple of weeks ago, well, there are ways we could slow this down, but it would only be for a couple of hours or maybe a couple of days. Please, Alan Minsky, if it's that important, gum it up for a few days at a minimum. There's so many aspects to this conversation where I would have wanted to jump in on. Um, first of all, I, I don't, this goes back to the before the last exchange between Harvey and Reverend Lynn, but I do not agree with Reverend Lynn that the Sanders agenda is, quote unquote, too far left for the American population. Um, I think that um, uh, clearly if people under 50, under 50, so as high as 50, only 50 and under were voting, Sanders would win in a landslide. Okay. Right. And um, so there's obviously a generational shift, and that generational shift goes towards what Harvey's talking about, which is the inadequacies of the neoliberal social contract. And I don't think it's that surprising that older Americans are now voting much more conservatively than younger Americans because the social contract in the United States was was much more generous in the United States. Um, And older people live through a more prosperous society for the balance of their lives. Young people are growing into a society where the American dream is simply the quote unquote American dream. It's not even it, it is a pipe dream. Anybody who's under 40 has almost no prospect through basic wage labor of getting into a situation where they can own a house in the area where they want to live, go to a good school district, have good public services, et cetera. And, and that's what you had in across the United States in the 50s, 60s, 70s. And, you know, it, it started to get torn asunder by neoliberalism. Why but, isn't that a fact? Why isn't that an accepted fact? Well, OK, but the point is, is that you described then the policies of Bernie Sanders. And if we keep reiterating and reiterating, they're so common sense and the fact that even neoliberalism, which has taken a good bite out of the Western European social democracies, they're not as generous as they once were. But in the most prosperous, best educated, healthiest, happiest societies, according to all these kind of indices that they throw out there, right, with very few, um, you know, sort of endemic social pathologies. So, you know, it adds up to about 120 million people when you throw in Germany, the Netherlands, Denmark, the Scandinavian countries. That's a lot of people, and they're living with almost very little poverty, right? Um, Again, very little in the way of social pathologies, very well educated. Now, why isn't that that social template can't be applied here? Okay, there are a lot of historical reasons why these are very different places, of course, but if you break them down policy by policy, they are going, and you let people know that these function and they are available, you do not anymore live in, you know what the 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 answer is one of the things that we just conveniently forget is the difference between 
the United States and those 120 million countries is we think we're indispensable. Therefore, we spend more than a trillion dollars a year that we know of on defense. All our money goes towards defense. And in order to spend that, excuse me for one second, in order to spend one trillion dollars on defense, we have changed the character of this country. We have been manipulated into believing that we are indispensable. We are the greatest and that we stand up to bullies and we're strong. It's not just spending a trillion dollars or more on defense. There's a whole thinking that goes, it's contempt for the weak. You can't spend a trillion dollars on defense if you don't convince the voters to be contemptuous of the weak. That's the difference. And, and, and it's why empires, it's, this is what's killing us. The, the thing that's supposed to keep us safe is what is killing us. And that is spending a trillion dollars on defense, not health care. That's the that's difference. Correct. That's absolutely right. I, I wonder, though, if uh, Alan uh, or you, David, why is it that in this country, the generations of people say between 50 and 70, still believe that their children are have a chance to live a better life than they do. Senility. They still believe that. It's senility. People believe no, but I mean, but I mean, it, but I mean, we, we have so many economic myths by which we live. We cannot, and I blame the public schools for this. I blame the public schools for rarely teaching anything about economics, basic economics. I blame them for not talking about history, for not, for, you know, I, I learned most of what I knew about labor history from listening to singers and songwriters to sing about it and tell the stories about it. And I, I just think uh, we, we've, we cannot allow the privatization of education to continue. I don't want private schools. I'm not even sure we should have any private schools, um, including I agree with religious you. private schools. And we certainly shouldn't have charter schools. Why do progressives? I remember you know, Ralph Naver, who you both know much better than I do, but he called me up one day and he was on a he's on a, a, a board that's giving out grants and he said barry you hate charter schools right i said of course he said well come over i want you to be my guest and you talk to them at lunch and eventually i said you know if there really are rules in public schools that shouldn't be applied then the answer is get rid of them for all the schools don't say well uh, for 16 uh, schools we're going to get rid of them these schools are supposed to be public schools, but they're not. They're taken over by religious or ethnic groups. Or union busters. Or union busters, and they're crap. They're terrible schools by every standard. So I I think the- And they get to weed out, they get to weed out the the problematic kids. They send the problematic kids to the public schools, schools. and they teach to the test, and their (laughs) their numbers are still bad. Charter schools are a fraud. Yes, they are. They do worse. Look at how many times education came up tonight. 
you know, we could we, maybe we should have been rallying about public education and making it better instead of about well Medicare for all. And that's important too, but. Education is very important to Barry's point. And look who we have as president, a man who doesn't want to read, a man who'd rather, you know, he, he called uh, going to Walter Reed, you know, the, the, uh, the non-book learning college for, for, for health care or for, you know, COVID. I'm just saying, excellent point on education. And while we're watching our democracy fall, you can point back to public education and the failures in public education as to why we have what we have, we have a president who has no knowledge of presidential history. You know, we have a president who has no idea. I mean, one of the things that impressed me about Obama, he had a reference for history. He read about what the presidents did. He was a smart. Well, we know he's. A I'm smart. looking forward, Professor K. Let me find it. Go on. <laughs> I'm on to you. David. David, last week I was on a show with you and you said Obama read five hours a day. The, the pitch was five hours a week. What are you talking about? Obama, you were on, I was on a show with you and you had said that Barack Obama read five hours a day. It was in the exchange with with uh, with uh, Professor Kay about uh, Obama signing the book. And that's incorrect. Obama advocates reading five hours a week. He advocates, but he reads. He reads every night for about three hours. And I'll tell you one book he reads. I don't want to embarrass <laughs> Professor Harvey J.K. here, but this was sent to me. And they wanted me to point this out. This is a this is a President Obama, who Professor Harvey J.K. is no fan of, I might add. But here is uh, President Obama giving an interview on Australian television. And what do we have there? Oh, my God. I believe I believe President Obama is reading I believe he is reading this. I don't mean to embarrass Professor Harvey J.K., but I believe that Barack Obama and I are reading the same book, Thomas Paine and the Promise of America. Interesting that Barack Obama and I have similar tastes in our reading, but here's the difference between me and Barack Obama. I have an autographed copy of this brilliant book. Anyway, just thought I'd share that with everybody. He do, he does read about three to four hours a night. You don't believe that? I, I, I don't know. I just read. The, I, I looked that up. You said five hours a day, so I scrambled. Obama reads five hours a day. Well, that's you know, that's impressive. And I, it's, no, he was advocating five hours a week. Wait a second. He advocates. Read, read the story in the New York Times. It's, it, the headline is something, something, seven almonds. That at the end of the night, he mm-hmm. sits, he would sit in the treaty room reading for about five hours. That's not that difficult to do. A long time each night. That's that. Well, turn your right effing there. television off. Stop listening to Rachel Maddow. He, 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 he would watch Sports Center with the guys. They said that his White House was a big, like, you know, pardon, it's getting late here. I don't know what language to use, but it was the women didn't feel welcome in the scene. They would all watch Sports Center, ESPN Sports Center, back when that was still in its old form every night. And that was the big bonding thing. There was, as far as I know, there was no reading going on. I, I don't. I don't buy it. And I don't think I, I think don't, if, I don't see I don't buy yours. I think that's a bunch of the Obama, you know, propaganda hype. Professor Adnan Hussein, <laughs> if you if you are judicious as you are, 
you can read a good three hours, three to five hours a night. If you have servants, if you have your dinner, your seven almonds brought to you, right? If you had your mother-in-law living with you, raising... Oh, that's the, the previous generation uh, all had wives. Um, <laughs> they're all men, pretty much, and they had wives who took care of all that business. And no wonder very productive but barack had his mother-in-law living with him in the white house and the upside no sex huh no sex with the mother time to read he had no time to read but he had time to listen to five hours of david feldman's podcast (laughs) i'm telling you the man read five hours a day professor hussein you read five hours a day don't you count emails (laughs) professor marianne you read how many hours a day do you read you know, sadly, I think I'm writing more than I'm reading, and that's not good. Does anybody read? <laughs> Ralph Nader reads the Wall Street Journal, the New York Times, and uh, what was the other one? Uh, Washington, Washington Post? Post every morning, cover to cover, all three. He says that's his baseline. How? I mean, if that's your, I don't know. The Reverend Barry W. Lynn, do you, well, you read a lot. I do read a lot, but, you know, um, frankly, I have uh, an eye problem that makes it difficult for me to read as much as I used to. And um, so I read, I look at screens, I read, I write, but uh, I don't read as much as I used to. And I'm very sorry about that. But, um, you know, I I have to, uh, I'm on my, I'm actually up in Massachusetts. I'm on my grandfather duties, so I really have to get off Oh, you still like your grandchild? Yeah, I still like all three of them now. Can I I at least throw you off the show? It's more fun if I throw somebody off the show. Please, throw me off the show. What do you want me to say? Something really Something, but it's it's just I want to say, get get out of my living room. Okay. Um, Well, look, the revolution may be coming, but uh, it's going to be a little more incremental than I think most of us would like. Throw me off. Throw me off if you don't like it. You're in, Throw me off. You're in Feldman country, partner. Get out of here. Get me out of here. The Reverend Barry W. Lynn has a website, barrywlynn.com. Follow him on Twitter at Barry W. Lynn. Reverend, stay out of trouble. Only good trouble. Thank Bye-bye. you. Bye-bye. Thank you. Great job. Bye-bye. Thank you. Bye. We have, I'm not cutting out right this second, but it'll, by 1130, I should get off. I'm, I'm act, I didn't move the computer out of the bedroom, so I'm okay. in the bedroom. My wife needs. Yeah, to and I, I, I got about five more minutes. I'm gonna throw. Let me at least get, you know. Can't text me so I can throw you off the show, so I can have a little <laughs> self-esteem here. Laurel, where are you calling from, Laurel? Um, Orange County, California. Okay. What's on your mind? I didn't raise my hand. I, I don't know why you wanted to unmute me. Oh, I thought you raised your hand. You popping up and I kept muting it and unmuting it. Okay, your hand was raised. I want to do an entire episode where people just say that. John in West Hollywood, tell me you just accidentally raised your hand. John? Okay. All right. We are not taking uh, John. It was an accident. <laughs> I want to do an entire three hours on this show of taking calls 
and everybody says, oh, I'm sorry, I uh, <laughs> didn't mean to talk. All right, we, we'll, we'll wrap it up. Uh, Professor Harvey J.K. is the author of FDR on Democracy. Hang on, now people are raising their hands. Let's go to Lance Jeffries in Pennsylvania. Okay, Lance. Is this Sam Cedar? Is this the Majority Report? No, it's David Feldman. Go call them. Bye bye. Oh, okay. Sorry, <laughs> sorry. I'm not Sam Cedar. Let's go to uh, Andy Brown in Minneapolis. Hello, Andy. What's on your mind? What say you, Andy Brown? You have to unmute yourself. What's on your mind, Andy? Okay. Can I ask Andy a question? Sure. You... So, Andy, did you get snow in Minnesota the past 24 hours, 48 hours? Andy? All right, let's go to Kathleen in Los Angeles. What's on your mind, Kathleen? Uh, yes, I'd like to make a complaint about the Plumex that I received in the mail. Oh, Plumex. Uh Yes, well, we're in the middle of a show right now. But well, no, it's important. I've been dialing all day. No one's been helping me. You, you got a, you, you've got my fecal plume neutralizer that I'm selling. It kills the COVID. That's what you call, the label was peeling off, sir. Okay. And I saw what was underneath. Mike wasn't plugged in. And it wasn't Plumex. It wasn't Plumex. I'll have to it, speak. No. Well, we we. All right, I'll speak to the slave. It's it's. We locally source Ellen. prison labor in America. Oh, and that's so, part of the reason why I purchased it. But um, It's locally sourced prison labor. It doesn't come from prison labor overseas. The David Feldman Plumex, the fecal plume neutralizer, kills COVID-19. Yes. Alex yes. Jones doesn't sell this. I do. And can it, I, can it, I confess that I'd never heard the word Plumex, so I just Googled it? We made it up. <laughs> Came up with plumbers, soft knit house shoes. So what? what but obviously, I'm not answering the question. What? No. <laughs> well, well, what, well, wait, we, were they uh, <laughs> were they union prisoners? I, I, that I don't. It's none of my business to ask those kind of questions, John. They're locally sourced. It's locally sourced prison labor. And I, I, Kathleen, I will have them look into your. We'll, we'll, when the show is over, we'll send you a fresh bottle of Plumex. David Feldman's fecal plume neutralizer kills COVID-19 dead in its tracks. Alex Jones, this is this this stuff works. I'm telling you, Andy, let's uh, try once again to talk to Andy. And yes, Andy. Uh, hey, Pete Dominic, uh, longtime listener, first time <laughs> caller. I'm just wondering what your thoughts are on David Feldman. Could you just tell me why is he such a beta uh, I I like his show, but God, is he just such a complete and utter beta? Okay. What are your thoughts on that? Yeah, thank you, Andy. This is David Feldman, not Pete Dominic. But thank you for the call. And let's go to Mexico, where Rodrigo is standing by. Hey, Rodrigo. Good night. Um, I just wanted to say that from what I've heard, the charter schools were originally a leftist slash teacher idea. And it's one of many things that the right-wingers have 
appropriated and distorted to such a degree that we all hate them. And we should probably make a list somewhere of all the things that right-wingers have been, over the years, taking from us. Thank you. Yeah. And, and can, I, can I just respond to that? and Take hold of our history. Go ahead. It, it may well be that Rodrigo is thinking about the fact that there was a big question, this goes back about, I don't know, 30 years, about these, these mega high schools that were so alienating to students and the troubles they were having them. And there was, a, I forget the name of the woman, Deborah Meyer, I, maybe I'm wrong, who came up with the idea of allowing these mega schools to create schools within schools. And those were in some ways considered charter schools. And indeed, I don't know if that came before or at the same time as this push for charter schools, but that may well be what Rodrigo is thinking of. Well, before you go, Professor Harvey J.K. is also the author of Take Hold of Our History. And one of the things I've learned from reading that book and our visits with Professor Harvey J.K. is that if we don't take hold of our history, the Republicans will. And they'll pervert it the way Ronald, I'm, I'm spitting back Professor Harvey J.K. That's how you get an A, by the way. You spit exactly the professor's words into his face. And he goes, this man's a genius. I'm giving him an A plus. But right. That's what they do. If we don't use our history, that's what you've taught me, Professor K. If if we don't use our history, they will take the the patina and then pervert it. Right. Yeah. Uh, Yes, absolutely. Uh, They recognize the power of the past more effectively than than do liberals, progressives, radicals and socialists. Alan. Uh, David, so I just saw some snap polls came out. Have you seen those, what they are saying as to who won the debate tonight? Well, I'm going to assume I'm going to assume that people are saying it was close. Uh, Yeah, but not that close. Pretty, pretty, pretty much almost identical to where the polls are nationally. CNN came up with 5339 for Biden over Trump. Data for progress, I think, was 5241. Maybe 52.3. I don't have it in front of me. But isn't this the Tom Bradley effect? The Tom Bradley effect? That goes back to Los Angeles history, right? Yeah. What was that? I can't remember. Emil, do you remember the Tom Bradley effect? Yeah, yeah. Uh, Yeah, yeah, the first election with Bradley, right? Where people wouldn't admit that they weren't voting for Bradley because he was African-American. Well, look, you always have to figure that people could be lying, Right. Would anybody, I mean, would you t- talk polls? I mean, I don't, I don't recall the Bradley effect, but, you know, people don't have to tell the truth to pollsters. And I, I, did, I thought it was pretty clear. I would say, yeah, it looked like Biden, barring any kind of major gaffe, held his own and, and won yeah. tonight's debate. But I, I think it's, it's hard to, to, to take these polls. Well, it depends on who they, who they poll. You know, some some tend to vote or go with more Democratic listeners or viewers. And so, think, but go ahead. Yeah, I, I think Alan basically uh, nailed it when he said that it reflects the national polls. So I think what it means is that it, it didn't change anybody's mind, perhaps, you know, mm-hmm. uh, people who are in favor uh, of Trump are still saying, oh, he won the debate and people who are going to vote for Biden feel like he did well enough that um, he wasn't damaged. And um, so they they thought he did. He did well. They're probably not judging it 
as a performance, what happened tonight, they're judging it and expressing, you know, where they feel they're going to, who they're going to support at this point. Right. Uh, and as far, actually, I just did want to say, as far as uh, Rodrigo's list of things that uh, the left developed, that the right appropriated and perverted and used against the left, I'd say number one on my list is postmodernist uh, theory and identity sort of politics is that something that the left uh sort of uh, developed and then you hear somebody like uh donald and and about how we can't know things for, for you know things are relative and we can't understand things um objectively and so on and then you hear donald rumsfeld talking about how there are known knowns and unknown knowns and and so on um and that's where you end up with uh uh, being able to convince the American public to go to war in Iraq because, right. you know, we, you know, we, there's things that we know we know and things we know we don't know and so on. Very yeah. quickly define postmodernism for us. I know Jordan Peterson always talks about it. Please. Oh, gosh. Very quickly. With equanimity, yeah. though. Do it with, with equanimity. equanimity. <laughs> <laughs> and 2X, please. My understanding of postmodernism is. Well, I don't under. What is it? What is it? Well, it's just this kind of um, theoretical questioning. I would say one of the key points for me is questioning epistemology, how you can know things and questioning whether it's possible for there to be objectivity. Of course, we should be a little suspicious about claims about truth. But what it ended up doing was undermining genuine kind of commitment to evidence and argument and saying that the medium is the message, for example, right? Uh, this kind of uh, emphasis on the form rather than the content because it's all discourse and we're all staking out positions uh, that, um, you know, are determined by power rather than um, there being some objective reality that we can study and have as the kind of common ground. So that so I'm not so sure it began. On, I, and by the way, I, I'm not. I, I don't care for postmodernism. I thought it was a perversion to begin with. But but it's also the case that it actually did begin on the right. If you if you go back and look at uh, you go back and look at the, at the at a lot of the Nazi stuff and Nazi philosophers. It's there's no there's no foundations there. It's all it has to do. It's a will to power idea. You know, That's I mean, good. I, I like that. Yeah. Is, is that why Trump could get away tonight with saying I'm the least racist person in the room twice? Yeah. Yeah, actually, it's interesting. I'm, I'm not sure. he. I, I mean, I'm sure he doesn't know what postmodernism is. He just knows what bullshit is and he can get away with it. But but I actually think most postmodernists were doing that. And the language they use to explain themselves convinced me of it. Um, <laughs> yeah. um, well, you might be right, actually, Har 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 Harvey, because uh, I, I think that's a really good point, because actually a lot of this does go back to sort of Heidegger. And, you know, That's this right. sort of yeah. Weimar era, but it was conservative um, uh, uh, Schmidt and, you know, the yes. uh, That's right. emergency sort of theory uh, that, yeah, yeah, I agree with you. I think that yeah. Derry, Derrida's philosophical predecessor was very much Heidegger. Yeah. 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 Good point. Oddly enough, so was Hannah Arendt. Yeah. Yes. Yes. Though, uh, though Derrida and Heidegger, as far as I know, were never lovers. <laughs> right. <laughs> Alan Greenspan was Ayn Rand's lover. 
if it's worth anything. <laughs> Let me plug a gig. Guess you almost you almost forced me to like think good thoughts about Heidegger when you bring in Greenspan. <laughs> no, seriously, Alan Greenspan uh, supposedly had an affair with Anne Rand. Well, he was very close to her. He was. They were part of like the the. Was, what was her thing called? Object, Objective. Called? Uh, objectivist. Right, right. That they were yeah, no, you're right, well. David. I'm sure you're right. Yeah. 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 Yeah, and then he ended up with, what's her name? From NBC. Mitchell. Yeah. Andrea Mitchell. Andrea Mitchell. Andrea Mitchell. A plagiarist, right? Andrea Mitchell's a plagiarist? Am I getting that wrong? No, you're no, thinking no, of wrong. Doris Kearns Goodwin. You're thinking of Doris Kearns yeah. Goodwin. Sorry. Yes. My bad. Yes. Yeah. Well, let's wrap this up. Let me plug. <laughs> Let me thank everybody. Let me thank Professor Marianne Cummings. Brilliant as always. Alan Minsky from the Progressive Democrats of America. Brilliant. <laughs> Professor Harvey J.K., author of FDR and Democracy. Emil Guillermo, the host of the PETA podcast. And Professor Adnan Hussein, how was your lecture on the, the plague? I think it went pretty well. It was fun. And can we see it on YouTube? Yes, it should be up on YouTube now um, on the channel of the School of Policy Studies, the Contagion Cultures uh, series. Okay. It's on Camus or, or on plagues no, in general? So it was on the Black Death and mm -hmm. what it might tell us about the current situation, or at least some things to consider with historical uh, analogy to uh, the situation of the global pandemic of the Black Death. In all seriousness, I am truly honored to be in your company, all of your, yeah, your very yeah, I, want, I want to thank you. This is a really nice group. I it really is. enjoyed this. Thank you. It is. Very much. It's, it's, it's an honor. And the, it's an honor to have everybody in the chat room and listening to us. And before I go, I want to tell you about a special event. The pay-per-view events continue this Saturday. This Saturday night at 9.30, Jim Earl, Eddie Pepitone, and Martha Previtt and I will be doing a fundraiser for Diabetic Fury. Go to davidfeldmanshow.com, hit the pay-per-view tab, and you'll be taken to Eventbrite. And we're going to talk about diabetes, which is the silent killer. And we're going to reunite Jim Earl, Eddie Pepitone, and I will do some of our famous sketches that you might remember. And Martha Previtt, who is the voice of Melania Trump on the show, will also be there. So please, I don't ask you for much. Please purchase a ticket to attend our pay-per-view event. It's Saturday night at 930. We're only selling 100 tickets and all the proceeds go towards diabetic fury and their funny tears along the way uh, in terms of prices. You can get in for $10, but if you pay a little extra, you get various goodies. Anyway, thank you, everybody. Office hours every Friday night at 9 p.m. And I think that's it. What a great show. Thank you all. I will see you all on, I'll see you at Diabetic Fury, and then I'll see you for Monday's taping. Stay strong and protect the weak. Thank you all for, for coming.
earplugs ain't pretty Hot times in the city I'm feeling kinda bad Seven to eight hours twice a week Don't have time to take a leak Hot times in the city in the city Hot times in the city Hot times in the city Hot times in the city Professor Ben Burgess joins us, I believe, in Georgia, where he teaches at Perimeter College. He is a columnist for Jacobin. He has two books that everybody should purchase right now. Give them an argument, Logic for the Left, and Myth and Mayhem, a leftist critique of Jordan Peterson. His new book, which comes out next year, it's hard to believe, is called Canceling Comedians While the World Burns. And you actually have an interview with a canceled comedian, David Feldman, I believe. Is that correct? Yeah. Yeah. No, I'm probably going to uh, going to take some heat for that, but I'm, I'm willing to talk to Feldman. <laughs> I was canceled, not because of anything I said. It's just they just decided to cancel me for no reason. <laughs> and give them an argument is also the name of your <laughs> I'm sorry, what? They just decided they'd had enough of you. Just cancel them. Just <laughs> Give Them an Argument is also the name of your podcast. And I am going to be on Give Them an Argument when it drops Monday on YouTube and wherever you get your podcast. I'm excited about that. Yeah, me too. Me too. Okay. Let's talk about the election. It is fewer than 14 days away. Can you believe that? Yeah. No, that's right. We've got less than 200 days left until we know who will win the election. <laughs> we'll know. Don't you think we're going to know by now? No, I, actually, at this point, I think we probably will. For the longest time, I did think it was going to be something like that, that like uh, that best case scenario, Biden would win. But there would be like two months of fighting about the result. But I actually think, I mean, who knows if the polls... If the polls right now are accurate, then Biden might actually win by enough on election day. That would just be it. I think so. Eighty nine percent of the total 2016 early voting has already been cast, according to The Washington Post. But unless there's a surge of Republican votes on November 3rd, it's going to be a tough one for for Trump to steal, don't you think? Yeah, no, I, I do. I think that he's. Um, I mean, actually, I, I saw uh, Crystal Ball say something on Twitter today that I, I had never thought about it this before, but like it made a lot of sense to me. Which is that the Trump campaign is like way, way too online. That they're all you know fo- like hyper focused on this like really inside baseball Trump based stuff. Like Trump won't shut up about Obamagate and Hunter Biden and all this stuff. I don't think any of that is what most voters care about. No, they don't. 
what were you saying four years ago? What was I saying for No, look, I'll, I'll, you know, I mean, look, I, this is why I try to, you know, I try to edge these things a little bit now and not be overconfident because uh, because uh, four years ago, I thought that I thought that Hillary Clinton was going to win. Right. That's why I tell everybody there's no way Trump is going to lose. That's I just say that to make the gods punish me. I'm tricking the gods. This is stuff so they don't do, teach you. You, you want Trump to win, so you'll have uh, you'll have four years of material. No, 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 no. I just I'm trying to trick God. This is something they don't <laughs> teach you at philosophy school. But if you tell God, if you say with supreme confidence, "There's no way Trump can lose," then God goes, "Oh, okay. I'm going to show David Feldman. I'm going to make Joe Biden the winner." Fifty percent to forty-one percent in the latest New York Times Siena college poll but that's nationally that doesn't include the the swing states where yeah he's also, he's also up in pretty much all the swing states yeah except ohio what's the matter with ohio we should ask thomas frank <laughs> the, the heavy guns are out barack obama has come out of his shell and is campaigning strong for joe biden i'm telling you that you, you wrote give them an argument Barack Obama, this is the greatest argument for Joe Biden. This is what he said last night. And with Joe and Kamala at the helm, you're not going to have to think about the crazy things they said every day. And that's worth a lot. You're not going to have to argue about them every day. It just won't be so exhausting. That's that's the pitch for Joe. He won't exhaust you. That's pretty good, right? I mean, look. I, I obviously because because I hate it, uh, but uh, uh, but I, I think that it might resonate with some voters. You know, I, I think that a lot of people probably do want things to just go back to not being on fire. So uh, so that might be good enough. But, yeah, I mean, that that kind of sounds like Obama speak version of like, um, you know, oh, we can go back to brunch. You know, <laughs> that, uh, that everything's fine. You know, you can stop worrying about politics. You know, you can just trust these liberal technocrats to take care of everything for you. I mean, the thing I'm cautiously optimistic that maybe it won't happen that way. Right. Obviously for reasons you and I have talked about a hundred times, I won't bore anybody with, you know, like I, I do, I do think it matters who wins, you know, I, I do have a preference. And we both but, are voting for Biden. Yeah. Yeah. We're both and we're both Bernie bros. Yeah. I, yeah, that's right. I mean, I already voted for Biden. I sent in a mail-in ballot. Um, but, um, Obviously, I tried very, very hard not to get Biden to not be nominated. Uh, right. You know, I, I, I and Kamala and Kamala. Yes, I, I, I would have wanted neither of those people to be nominated. I, I tried very hard to, uh, you know, get Bernie Sanders nominated, but we lost. And you know, elections have consequences, and unfortunately, this is one of them. But, uh, but, but, I will say this: right, that like. Uh, I am cautiously optimistic that if what we want happens and, and, and Biden wins, that it won't play out the way that Obama just said. Uh, I, I see why some leftists would worry that he's exactly right, uh, mm-hmm. that, uh, that without this kind of ostentatiously crazy person on the top uh, of the system, uh, then, you know, lots of people who might otherwise get upset about what was going on, you know, stop paying attention and, uh, you know, what, uh, you know, go back to brunch. Uh, but um, but I'm, I'm cautiously optimistic that the opposite might happen because uh, 
I hear this this a lot. It's like, oh, well, you know, people are, are mad about things because Trump is doing them, but then like a Democrat can get away with murder. And I think there's some truth to that. But I think that the opposite is also sometimes true. Like, we forget this, but there was a lot of opposition to the system going on under Obama. Uh, Black Lives Matter started under Obama. Occupy Wall Street started under Obama. Bernie Sanders won 22 states while Obama was still president. And so I, I think that the the optimistic scenario is that um, when a ostentatiously right-wing Republican like, like Trump or George W. Bush is in office, opposition to what's going on gets channeled like him as a personality whereas when there's you know some bland inoffensive democrat in office uh then uh people actually oftentimes direct that towards these larger systemic problems like economic inequality or police brutality uh so so i i'm all of which is just to say that that I I hope and if I weren't an atheist would pray that Obama is wrong about that. Right. So Joe Biden's going to claim he's got to keep his coalition together with the Lincoln Project. He's going to say, "I'm only here because of the Republicans who voted for me. I can't give the left anything they want." So that's going to really anger our side isn't it it is i mean and and i mean and i i guess i just want to be 100 percent clear about this i think that absolutely will happen uh, i'm not under any illusions whatsoever that uh that biden is going to turn into something other than what he's always been uh i don't think that he's going to like have an epiphany and do medicare for all i, I don't uh I, I i do think that he'll appoint lots of Republicans, you know, lots of these like neocon, never Trump ghouls. You know, yeah, can you come on board? I really need somebody to tie my hands. <laughs> yeah, totally. Right. I mean, that is what will happen. Right. Like, I just think that a lot of times people have this debate about the election on the left where they act as if the big question is, how can we pressure Biden and these centrist Democrats do things we want them to do. And I just think that's not the question. I think that I think that Biden and the centrist Democrats are what they are. What we need to do is this long term thing of, of building up some alternative political force that can actually win primaries and beat these people. Yeah. Are you exhausted? Did Trump exhaust you? And can we go back? This is kind of like make America great again. With the the Democrats saying, well, let's go back to the halcyon days of the Obama administration. You can't go back. No, you can't. I mean, I would when Biden takes office, we're still going to have a play uh, the economic effects, you know, of of that. Uh, There's we're we're still going to have like a country that's like much more bitterly polarized about the police stuff, you know, than it was, uh, than it was before. Like none of that's, none of that's going anywhere. It's not like, it's not like Biden can magically make it 2015 again. And also 2015 wasn't that great. That's why Trump is president now. Trump is out of cash. He's gone through at least a billion dollars. My theory is, you know, he's dark in, in the swing states. He's not running ads. He's depending on rallies or he's not running enough ads. They don't have enough money. You and I both know what happened to the money. They can't help themselves. And he's he's hoarding that cash because he realizes he's going to lose. And Letitia James, the attorney general 
from New York is going to start prosecuting him. You can't pardon away. Or can you? Do you think Joe Biden is going to make a deal with Trump and say, if you concede on November 3rd, I will pardon you or we'll give you a break. We won't prosecute you. I mean, I think it's entirely possible. Uh, the the precedent has been set and set and set, you know, going back to the uh, uh, the original sin of, of Ford pardoning Nixon uh, and and going through Obama doing the uh, we're looking forward, not backwards. So if right. you're in the CIA and you pulled out people's fingernails uh, <laughs> and, then you know, you get off scot free because we can't look backward and prosecute crime. Right. right. So. So I, I think it would be very unsurprising. I think, look, honestly, I think that uh, I, I think at this point, unfortunately, you know, Biden could could pardon Trump. He, he could give he could give Trump the same pardon that, that Ford gave Nixon, you know, that I'm just going to give you a blanket pardon for anything you might have ever done. Right. Uh, and people would grumble about it on Twitter. But, you know, by and large, you know, I, th- I think most Democrats would accept it. And uh, and we'd also be hearing a lot of takes about how what a brave and healing thing, you know, that was right. uh, that was. So, unfortunately, I, would, I wouldn't be surprised. I, I, I think that anybody who's in any kind of position of real power actually facing consequences for anything they've done is by far the, the exception, not the rule. What do you think is more honest, Gerald Ford pardoning Richard Nixon or uh, President Obama refusing to pardon George W. Bush, but instead committing the same exact crimes he did and giving Bush loyalists the gifts of what about ism? Yeah, well, he did both, right? I mean, like first when he first came to office, uh, and he was acting like he was going to reverse some of those policies. Uh, people forget this, but in two thousand eight, um, Obama ran on you know he said he was going to close down Guantanamo Bay and restore habeas corpus, and his defenders will obsess about the fact that oh he actually wanted to close that particular facility at Guantanamo and Congress didn't let him, but they'll ignore the fact. He actually expanded indefinite detention elsewhere. He dramatically expanded the drone program, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Right? So the gift of what about him was, was absolutely there. But even before that, uh, he did he did do that thing with the, with all of the Bush era, you know, torturers and you know, surveillers and lawbreakers, uh, where he said no. Uh, all of that was bad. He was still saying at that point, like early 2009, it was bad. But, you know, we've got to look forward. Uh, so so we're just not going to we're not going to prosecute any of it. Um, and uh, and yeah, I mean, I, I think that uh, it, it is actually incredibly hard to remember this. But in like 2007, 2008, beginning tip of. 2009 this the standard liberal line was look george w bush isn't just a normal republican he's this like radical new dangerous you know kind of kind of right-wing extremist who 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 good republicans like well if it was early enough in 2007 that said good republicans like john mccain right uh, you know that like you know they think that good good republicans you know are, are totally different and now um George W. Bush has been completely rehabilitated by the liberals. Uh, the 
all of the all of the the neocon monsters, you know, from the George W. Bush administration, you know, they rebranded as the Lincoln Project, and the liberal line is is that Trump isn't just a normal good Republican uh, like George W. Bush; uh, he is this new dangerous, you know, extremist kind of Republican who who real good Republicans are against. So we need to unite with the good Republicans, you know, against him. All of which makes me like fairly certain if wins, you know, which I think he probably will, you know, I certainly hope so. Uh, then in, uh, in eight years, we're going to, you know, when I don't even know, Tucker Carlson uh, is, uh, you know, is being elected president, you know, we're, we're right. going to hear a lot about how Tucker Carlson isn't a normal good Republican like Donald Trump, you know, right. like this, you know, it's like new dangerous kind of Republican, you know, that we, that like, you know, now, you know, Donald Trump, say what you will about him, you know, he could make a deal. Right. He can make a Don't deal. Play. He can. Well, Lindsey Graham, is he gone? God, I hope so. Jamie Harrison, according to the Morning Consult poll, is leading Lindsey Graham 47 to 45%. Lindsey could go. And the Senate Judiciary Committee showed some tes- testicular fortitude. They boycotted the vote on whether or not to approve Amy Coney Barrett. She's got approved anyway, but now it's going to the full Senate. Did the Democrats do anything right? I guess one thing they did is they stuck to her judicial philosophy. They didn't bring up any old rape charges against her. They, you know, not that the the ones against Kavanaugh weren't important, but. but but, But it was also a little weird as a strategy because if it had worked, then, I mean, it's not like the Federalist Society doesn't have lots of people on its bench who didn't rape anybody. I mean, they right. must have some. Right. Uh, so, uh, so that's tough for the like, that's tough for Feinstein and the Democrats and the Judiciary Committee that they do have some people from the Federalist Society who aren't rapists. Yeah, that's and, a problem. And, 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 Right. And so that's the that is a problem, because what's the because uh, what's what's the remaining objection uh, or, or really like think about it this way, like if um, let's say that uh, that that Antonin Scalia had had managed to hold on to his wretched life for a few more years. <laughs> and, uh, and so he'd only died at the same, like maybe on the same day as Ginsburg, they were supposed to be friends, you know, right. so like maybe they were going out to a restaurant or something that got into a car accident or the so, elephant they rode together. Tipped that's over. Right, that's right. So, uh, so Trump had gotten to have two, um, vacancies filled at the same time. And remember in this scenario, there would be no Merrick Garland precedent to allow the Democrats to at least argue hypocrisy. Right. Then, then what possible grounds would they have to to object? Right, like 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 it's it seems like the problem is that unless you're willing to just admit that the Supreme Court is not some sacred disinterested institution, uh, you know that that protects freedom, that the Supreme Court is just a kind of embarrassing anachronistic super legislature that you know allows. Uh, you know, that allows like nine presidential appointees representing the ideological preferences of whoever appointed them to rewrite our laws. Like as long as you're pretending that that it has this special dignity and status, then you can't just say what you should say, which is, oh, well, we don't want the Trump people on on the lifetime super legislature because they're going to be awful and we won't like the decisions they make. Right. You and I 
are voting for Biden. We urge everybody to vote for Biden. We wish it had been Bernie or at the very least, and I do mean very least, Elizabeth Warren. But we would have been happier with Elizabeth Warren. Certainly certainly would have been happier with with Warren, would have been much happier with Bernie. But Joe Biden, here's the thing about Joe Biden. I think he's trying to rev up Bernie's base. I think he's listened to Bernie's supporters. We, as you just said, are very unhappy with the trajectory of the Supreme Court. We want big, bold moves like FDR, who packed the courts. This is going to really stir up the base that Bernie kind of abandoned for for Joe. But here, here's what Joe Biden is floating. He's not going to tell us whether or not he's going to pack the courts, which he should, or unpack the courts. I think we should just have. Three. No, I, mean, I, mean, I mean, he should, but he won't. I mean, I, I think that I, I mean, look, my, you know, I'd love to be wrong about this. But I think that the reason that uh, that that Biden and, and Harris won't say whether they're going to to expand the Supreme Court or not uh, is that uh, they don't have anything to gain with with either answer, because um, if yes, then that would alienate these like suburban moderate Republicans. They're obsessed with courting and not to mention it would also be embarrassing later when they didn't do it, which I don't think they will. Uh, and if they'd said no, which I think is the honest answer, I have a really hard time imagining them actually doing anything that bold. If they said no, uh, then that would, uh, that would demoralize uh, the democratic base just before an election because, um, you know, because because you'd be admitting that the Supreme Court is is potentially lost for, you know, God knows how how many years. Right. Unpack the court. That's my solution. There's nothing in the Constitution that prevents a filibuster proof Senate from picking off judges. They were going to try to do it with Earl Warren, who, you know, was a Republican. But before you go, the debates we're talking before the final debate probably the final debate that ever takes place. I think debates are good. I just think the way they're managing these debates is wrong. They're saying you're the author of Give Them an Argument. This is my last question for Ben Burgess, author of Give Them an Argument and his podcast. Give Them an Argument drops every Monday, wherever you get your podcasts, also on YouTube. They're saying that in order for Trump to win, he has to come across as a better, <laughs> better human being. How important is humanity in making an argument? Do you have to be? Can't you be like Dr. Spock and make a like Trump did? I think Trump was unfairly treated in the last debate. He was making a rational, emotionless yeah. argument. He gave it. Do you have to be a human being in, in a debate? Uh I mean, <laughs> I guess it depends to, you know, you have to be a human being for what? I mean, I I actually think, um, you know, boring answer, but I mean, I, I one of the big things that I argue in the book, uh, give them an argument, is, uh, is that this idea that uh, emotions uh, are are like a separate thing that like irrational people come to political conclusions on the basis of emotions and rational people come to, you know, political conclusions on the basis of, I don't know, facts. 
uh, I think it's just kind of confused. I think that the uh, the facts by themselves can never tell you uh, what should happen, right? That, you know, uh, once you, you always need to have some sort of goal that you emotionally care about uh, in, in, the, in the driver's seat, because if, because uh, if you don't care what happens, the facts are just irrelevant. The facts don't tell you anything that uh, like, you know, if you have some goal in mind, then sure the facts can be relevant because they can tell you how to achieve that goal. But if you, if you don't, if it's just uh, like, if, if you were just indifferent to, to outcomes, then you wouldn't come to any conclusion. I mean, anytime you've got a, a normative conclusion, a conclusion about what's good or bad, just or unjust, what should or shouldn't happen, there always has to be some sort of normative premise, you know, driving it along maybe with some factual premises. So, so yeah, I mean, I think that, um, so I, I think that if some, if you, uh, really were emotionless, which by the way, is the last way I would ever describe Donald Trump. Um, but if, if you really were, were emotionless, then you just, you just be indifferent to, to all of these issues. You wouldn't be arguing for any position one way or the other. Now, um, as far as how relevant it is to a presidential debate, I think that's a slightly different subject uh because we're not actually uh picking somebody to um you know to be our kid's godfather or to be our best friend or anything like that uh you know we're, we're deciding who we want uh who we want to be empowered to make certain kinds of, uh, of political decisions. And really from my perspective, you know, we're choosing which, uh, servant of the ruling class that we want to struggle against for the next four years. Uh, and when it comes to that, I think that, I think that individual personality actually matters less, uh, than some people might think, uh, which is good because I, I actually think Joe Biden is a terrible person, right. but, uh, but I, I think that, I think that, like when it really comes to the thing that I think is most important that's at stake in the election, which is all of the very unsexy stuff, like, you know, the thing I'm always obsessed with, right. You know, who's going to be appointed to the national labor relations board, uh, personality actually becomes pretty much completely irrelevant to that. Right. Uh, that Trump, will appoint right-wing Republicans. They, they're not people that he, he's going to appoint because he knows them. They're his friends. They're, they're, you know, they're people he's going to appoint, you know, because, you know, Mitch McConnell or somebody, you know, gave him their names. Mm-hmm. And, and Biden is going to appoint mediocre machine Democrats. Uh, and because I care about having an organized working class, I, I actually care very much whether mediocre machine Democrats or awful union busting right wing Republicans are appointed to those positions. But it has absolutely nothing to do with Joe Biden's qualities as a human being. Will we know the results November 3rd? Will, will Trump go gently into the night? I think if he wants to destroy the Democratic Party, Trump yeah. should go gently into the night. Because he can just say it was one big scam. I proved my point, and now I'm going to go own my own television network. And people like you and me are going to be so pissed off at Obama f- for scaring the crap out of us that the Democratic Party will split asunder if he goes gently into the night. The only glue that's going to keep the Democrats together is Trump taking these election returns all the way to the Supreme Court. That's 
Uh, well, I hope you're right because I, I love the Democratic Party to be uh, to be split asunder so we can get something better. But uh, but I don't think so. I mean, I, I think that the I think the two party system is is incredibly durable. I, th- I think I think it really is going to take something cataclysmic to to uh, to undo it. Um, so, so I, I'm not, I'm, I'm not very optimistic about that either. Right. You know, I, I, I mean, I, I think that, uh, I, I mean, I, I think that maybe like, maybe we can get, you know, we can, uh, we can get Biden in. He's going to do a lot of disgusted neoliberal things that I hate, but, uh, but he's also, um, He's also not going to appoint people to the NLRB who are going to try to wipe out what's left of organized labor, and uh, and probably also he'll do better job of technocratically managing the COVID crisis. So, uh, you know, so we won't have quite as many mass deaths, you know, which which would which would be nice. But uh, but this is like this is not a step towards anything. This is just like, this is just this like unpleasant defensive thing that we need to do right now. Uh, and then we're going to, you know, we're not even going to go back to the 2015 status quo. Like right. we were talking about earlier, there is no way of going back to it. You know, we're, we're just, we're just not going to go into the pit quite as quickly. And, and maybe I, I really, really, really hope uh, that the, the left can, can get its, you know, shit together. So, uh, so that in four years or eight years, there isn't somebody like Biden being nominated. Well, thank you, Ben Burgess. I'm voting for Biden because I'm older than you. And I know why civility is important. Civility is very important. That's why I'm voting for a sucking bag like Joe Biden, because we need to restore civility. And this motherless Joe Biden is going to restore civility. Ben Burgess is the author of Give Them an Argument, Myth and Mayhem, a leftist critique of Jordan Peterson. His new podcast is called Give Them an Argument. It drops Monday on YouTube or wherever you get your podcast. Thank you so much, Ben Burgess, for for joining me. I really appreciate it. Thank you. Thank you, Professor. Thank you, comedian. Hello to my friends in the purple states. While we're here in this endless Zoom meeting, I thought I'd tell you about a painful decision I've made. I understand if you can't agree with me, but I would ask that you at least consider my argument. We're stuck with the Electoral College, so we're confident in the knowledge that not all votes are created equal. In California, for example, they have fun with third parties they sample, but it's our job to avoid the sequel. All right, fine, I guess I'll vote for Biden, even though he's one of those guys that we've been fighting. His praises I'm loath to sing, but they say the state will swing, so please hold your nose and vote for bad old Joe. I like my Bill of Rights, and I've been having sleepless nights, and I fear for what is left of our democracy. Yeah, he's got some problems with race, and I know you can't stand his face, but there's worse things in the world than hypocrisy. All right, fine, I guess I'll vote for Biden. Promote him from that basement where he's hiding. His praises I'm loath to sing, but they say the state will swing. So please hold your nose and vote for bad old Joe.
rode Amtrak into the ground But I think that he's more sound Than the narcissist who's holed up in the West Wing Joe might be a handsy creep But the methane continues to seep So I think of both the options he's the best thing All right, fine, I guess I'll vote for Biden Because fascism is where we are sliding His praises I'm loath to sing But they say the state will swing So please hold your nose and mask your face And distance yourself Read a book and organize and unionize And check your privilege and go protest And check the box real hard for Battle Joe Tonight at 9 p.m. it's office hours Where the listeners talk and I listen Go to David Feldman Show Dot com. Hit the attend a live taping menu, sign up and you'll get a link and you're in tonight. Office hours, 9 p.m. Eastern Standard Time. It's where the listeners do all the talking and I do all the listening. I'll see you tonight.